Fire Prize. Go ahead. It would get him off the CC big. Did everybody in the seats, please? Welcome everyone to uh, the March uh, workshop session. We are going to have just one day of meetings today, so the workshop will start just in a few minutes, and then we will have a formal action uh, meeting after that. But as we do always, if you all please stand and say our Pledge of Allegiance. Pledge of Allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands, one nation under God. Individual with liberty and justice for all. Thank you. Um, I do know I did receive word from uh, both uh, Mr. Connors and Mr. Cole uh, that for personal reasons they will not be attending today, but I think we have a quorum. I, and Mr. Manny, I guess uh, Sonny's not, it's not here too, but uh, I think uh, who are we missing on the end down there? That's Mr. Dyke. Oh, Mr. Dyke. I did receive from Mr. Dyke. He's watching, and I assume he'll be texting Mrs. Dyke. I mean, uh, <laughs> actually, I, I actually encouraged him to text Carol. Carol, Carol, Carol. Right, but uh, Mr. Dyke. Mr. Dyke. I'd actually like to call him Carol. You're way better off. Carly. Yeah, Carly. Yeah. 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 So anyway, we do have a forum. We decided to have one day to day. We've been going at it pretty strong, uh, and, but I will, I think from here on out, we can expect two days. With the one exception, we do not meet in office. We have one break, but there'll be two days. Um, also want to apologize to the board. Some of the stuff got to you uh, and uh, uh, later than I would like, some of it just yesterday. But there's nothing in here that we're going to vote on today. This, all this information will be useful to you for votes you'll take next time um, in terms of uh, we start looking at the plan, so uh, we plan to not have make this, uh, but with the session winding up, winding up and the legislation and all, uh, we sort of got uh, behind the eight ball a little bit. But nothing is going to be voted on that you haven't. Are going to be, you know, uh, this information, particularly Mr. Lawson's 60-slide presentation, will not uh, be voted on anything today. Uh, the other thing we will do, in addition to the agenda and the workshop, there's a couple of other topics that probably need some discussion that we may talk about and, and some of the legislation that actually got passed. Uh, I know Mr. Lawson had a little bit in his presentation, but I would ask if we can get into a deep discussion on that, maybe afterwards if you want to, in that regard. I want to update people on where we are on 66, the project. We did announce inside the Beltway uh, this past week, and of course outside the Beltway, so I want to make sure people uh, understand where we are, what path we're going down uh, with that. Uh, and then I think uh, Charlie, uh, Mr. Kilpatrick, uh, we uh, do have in relation to that, uh, there may be some uh, uh, monies we may need to move around to get the planning going on that. It's not critical we want to vote on it. We'll brief you. If you don't want to vote on it until next time, that's okay. But uh, it's pretty administrative in nature. But as we go through that discussion, we'll bring that up. So that's what our plan is today. Carol will let us know what's time to eat. Uh, and we'll uh, take a break on that. Um, but with that, we'll call up uh, our first uh, interrogator, I'm sorry, participant. Uh, and we got uh, Chief Engineer Garrett Moore, and he's going to talk a little bit about some of the things we talked about last time, our performance and, and how.
how we're aligning our money. So welcome, uh, Mr. Moore. Mr. Connors is online. Mr. Connors is online too. Okay, so uh, thanks uh, for him for joining too. So, uh, Garrett. Thank you, sir. Good morning, Mr. Chairman and uh, members of the board. Uh, last uh, month we talked about state of good repair and tried to give you a policy overview of where, where we think we need to go. And uh, Mr. Cole had brought some issues up about how does performance work into that. And so what I'm going to try to do today is give you all a glimpse, it, because once you get below the policy level into the execution level, there's a lot more detail to it, but give you some samples of what we do in our performance management. So it's, it's not meant to be complete, because we could spend all day on this, but it's just give you a glimpse and, and kind of see what we're doing when we are executing uh, the policy that you all give us. And the first thing that, that we is available to you and actually to the public is our external dashboard. And our external dashboard is something that we are graded publicly on, and it has many of the things that are our core things. You can see safety is down there, condition, and there's a lot of drill downs in these things, and also it talks about projects on time and on budget. And this is something we've been measuring for over a decade. Uh, all of these things in here. It's changed a little bit over time, but it's something that measured for quite a while. And you can go on the website and, and your district engineer should be briefing you on some of these things and kind of letting you know where things go. But it's out there and it's available and you can see the, uh, the actual website is there if you ever want to go in there. And, and my father used to actually, before he passed away, would actually go in there when I was a district administrator a resident engineer and look and see what it was like a report card. So it was one of these things that, and you know, I didn't know it was like what the report card said, but you knew what was there and you knew what you needed to improve. So it's something I think within the field of VDOT, and certainly I as a uh, coming up through certain levels of leadership, we, we embraced it and I think it's pretty firmly embraced by our folks. It's a, it's a, it's a good tool. Uh, one of the things that we have done over time with this within the engineering directorate in the field is we have done several things in how we measure. And the first is that it's outcome-based. This doesn't measure how you get there, it measures outcomes. Was it on time or not? You know, is it you know, this condition or not? And those things are pretty objective. There's a little, very little subjectivity to those things. And, and that way it's an outcome and we're not measuring you know, Rube Goldberg type of processes, we're measuring what does it look like in the end. The other is that uh, it's objective in those, and then the other thing we've tried to do is make sure that they're simply and easily measured. It may be that it would be better for us to measure something else, but it's too hard to do, so, and so, so we might have something else that tracks it, and there's a few indicators of that. And we've also, there might be five things we like to measure, but we measure one because that might be a, 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 an indicator of all of them. The other thing that's important is these are very mature, and they have clear and defined business rules. And you can see the last one with data integrity. I'd say that's, that's very good as well. Now, data integrity is never perfect. You know, you're, we're always sitting there asking the question, you know, should you measure it this way or should you? And, but in recent years, we have not been changing the business rules on these very much. They've stabilized. We know what our core business is. And, and that's a good thing because then you can have a baseline in the last few years that you can measure against. So that's, that's the things we do. The other, but moving right along, there's a few things I'd like to point out, and this is going down into just one area, project delivery. And that uh, on there, if you look at uh, up there, it's got my name for the state, and next to it it's got Kerry Bates, uh, the state construction engineer. 
And as a former Commissioner Shuket used to say, that's the one neck. So I'm responsible for this stuff statewide. Kerry Bates is the, just the state construction engineer. He's, and I'm on three or four of these things. He's on one. But that way you know who to reach out statewide who is responsible for it. I think that's important. And, and recently we just put the, the division name on there too to show their ownership to it. And, I, and like I say, very important. Uh, the other thing that it does with things like this is it, it develops credibility. If you go to the upper right-hand corner where it's got project delivery and you look at 2000, 2001, uh, we were delivering 27% of our projects on time and about 55% on budget. And people used to say trade time for money. And what that did in those days is we had something called a, a, uh, a calendar day project. And somebody would bid that, but then they'd get weather time or delay time. And so we would tell a county or a locality or the state, this project's going to be done on this date, and then it's not done until 18 months or two years later. Our credibility was terrible with this. And so what, what we find, you know, three or four or five years later, once we start measuring it, and what we also did is we went to fixed date contracts. In other words, the contract completion date was the contract completion date. And we set goals in the high 70s or low 80s. We didn't set them at 100% because we didn't want to push people to cheat or to make the wrong business decision because there are exceptions where you've got to do that. But we found that we've stabilized up there in the high 70s, high 80s. Uh, some districts uh, get higher than that. And, and you can see the, the budget is, is 91%. One of the things that happened is we use incentive more. Uh, that helps us. We have less people riding the jobs anymore. So we, we hit that point where we're trying to finish them as quickly as we can, but at the same time, and resourcing that way, but not so quick as to uh, impede traffic or make it uh, so that it's too difficult to move while you're building. And that's kind of a tension on, on developing the time a project should be. You want to make it as quick as you can, but you don't want to make it so quick that the people can't use the road. And, that, and that's a, a friction that we, a tension that we work all the time. The other thing is that we, we use incentive more for early completion. That works very well. It's not a race to the bottom. That's changed some of the, the ways things happen. And the other thing that I'm kind of proud of is in Virginia, if you're a minute late, the project's late. There are some states that they count, and I, I can think of one state where I went in, they had 599 of 600 projects that were on time. I said, who's kidding who? But what they do is if there's any sort of weather problem, they, they give them an extension, and that, that to us was just a recipe for disaster, so, not disaster, but to, to, to pencil whip this thing. So we, we've said in Virginia we're going to have a very strict standard on ourselves. If we're a, a minute late or a day late, we're going to be late and just count it that way. If you have to make a business decision, it happens sometimes, we're going to be late because the conditions were different and we really need to take care of this, just bite the bullet and we'll be 95% instead of 100%. And that's kind of the way that we approach that in doing it. This is not an excuse to make a bad business decision on the project. And we tell our folks, you don't, you, you don't get to use that excuse either. You've got to be on time a certain amount of the time, you know, above that goal and do it consistently year to year and you have to make the right business decisions. Um, but I, I think this has really helped with our credibility with, with, with the localities. It is very fairly rare now that we have a project that's late and even with one being late, it's usually a matter of days or weeks and it's usually not that visible to the public. So it's, it makes it very easy for them to plan and, and, and helpful for us 
The other thing it does is it puts discipline there in what we do. And, you know, on time, on budget, and, and that's something that our organization uh, continues to work on. The other thing, and I'm mainly showing this, this happens to be Stanton District, and the main reason I'm showing this slide is if you look at the upper right-hand corner, it's got uh, Randy Kaiser, as Mr. Whitworth works with, and so for every district that you go to, the district administrator, his name is on there, and he owns that. And we're proud of that because to the public, that's our report card. In many ways, it's, it's overtaken our, perform, our written performance evaluation because it's out there, out there in front of the public. And, and again, some, it, it's our report card that we're proud of. That's all to the public, and it, it's on our core items. There's some other things that we do internally that I'm just going to show you some portions of it because we measure some things that we show to the public. There's a lot of other internal stuff that we measure that is not necessarily all core stuff, but it's important in what we do. And there's even more than this because we can tell if things are trending up or down. And this is what uh, is known affectionately in, in the department as the bingo card. And this is, if you can see, if you're green on there, you're doing well. And I, I think this is actually a few months old or maybe earlier in the year. If you're doing red in an area, you're not doing so well. And you, if you look up there, there are one, two districts that are all green. There's a couple of others that have one red. And it is very difficult to hit all green with this. There are three districts that have hit it for a certain period of time, and generally it's very difficult to stay there. But if you hit green and you stay there for a few months, you're doing very, very well. So, and I'll, I'll throw the plugs out, out to them because there are tremendous staffs there that have done Stanton, Culpeper, and Lynchburg have hit uh, all green. Uh, Lynchburg and Stanton have done it multiple times, and uh, it, it's something that, like I say, that, that takes to, to be, to do it in all those areas, and that doesn't mean others aren't doing well because some of these are legacy things that they're improving over the years. But it's, it's it, I can show you the next slide, or, or a couple of slides from now, and you'll see why that's important. I have a quarterly performance meeting where the district engineers and the central office engineering staff, others are invited, but I also bring in the residencies and the staff by video. And we do this once a quarter. And we focus on these things, the core areas, the areas that we talked about like in uh, state of good repair, but it also includes safety, both internal safety, worker safety, and traffic safety. We are try and we are making progress in bringing uh, traffic deaths down. A lot of that's to the auto industry, but we're working at it too. The other thing that I haven't put on there is congestion. We're working on that too, you know, speed of, of travel and so forth. Those are the focus areas in that uh, quarterly presentation and they brief about six minutes and everybody in the state knows who's doing what and the whole idea there is, is to get everybody even the people that aren't in the engineering directly focused on what our core goals are focused on progress and seeing how they how their part of the effort supports that the other thing this is one of the drill downs and, and we have several in there I'm not going to show them all but this is the one on bridges and you can see there's a number of different areas and it's not everything but one of the things we do is we track our progress on whether we're improving structurally deficient bridges. And you can see over time that we are doing that. And the bottom line is, has the culverts in there, the top line is, or I'm sorry, the top line has the culverts in there, bottom line has bridges only, which is the larger structures. We, we are improving both of them. Uh, as I've said in the last brief, 
A lot of that is low-hanging fruit. We're getting up to 57 structures in the interstate. We're getting up to some hard lines that we're going to have to think differently and, and work some things to do that. But this shows some of the drill downs we can do. You also can drill down, if you go back to the dashboard, uh, your district engineer can show you how to drill down within the district how they're doing and track their progress. So we do this down to that level. And at one time, you could even do it to the residency, not this line, but show the difference. And, and again, very important stuff. And, uh, and something that, that, again, you just have visibility that's out there. Not everything in here can you get, uh, but you can see the status of bridges by district on the top. But this, this lower chart, um, it's not exactly the same, but you can track that by, by district and, and track the, the progress. Uh, this also is, is very similar in that uh, it's more drill downs that we do, and if you go to the lower right-hand corner, one of the things we track is the difference between how many bridges came on structurally deficient and how many came off, and we can do that by district. We can also track the PMs uh, so that they're doing the preventive maintenance. And again, I don't mean for you to go through all of this, but it just shows you the kind of detail. We do similar things in safety, similar things in, in pavement and so forth. Um, and one thing here is, is, is that it shows that, that we have used the small bridge program uh, basically to, to replace small bridges with state forces at generally 60% of cost. It saves us a design costs. It saves us often right away. And it saves us an, an awful lot. The, the construction industry does much better and much cheaper at, at medium and large structures. We do it cheaper at small structures. And it's just, it, you know, it's just uh, got us to the right place where we can get the right money and the most cost-effective way to do what we need to do because we don't have a lot of room for, for error on this. And, and, and this was not done in all the districts you know, eight or ten years ago. And what they've done is started copying each other on what's successful and what, and not every district's the same. I mean, Hampton Roads has an awful lot of large water crossings, but they can still do some of this, but it's not, not as much as you would in the western part of the state where you're at the headwaters and most of the bridges are smaller. So there are some differences in the districts, but this is one way that you, you can uh, get some results. <coughs> the reason I wanted to show the bingo card is this goes again to the what is measured gets done. Uh, and this isn't all of them, like I said, this is just a sampling, or maybe it does have, but if you can see from 2012, and the reason we picked that to 2015 is there has not been a lot of change in how we look at these things. But you can see that we've gone from red to green, that uh, from 61 reds, uh, to 23 reds in February of 2015. So when people are looking at it and they're comparing it, and I don't even think it's so much me, you know, coming in and say, you know, you've got to, you, you've got to fix this. It's almost, it's, it's pure competition. Nobody wants to be the guy with the, with the most reds. And, and that's a good environment to be in as long as it's positive. I mean, people aren't pulling the rug out from each other, but they are looking and, and, and trying to make sure and watching it all the time. The other thing that it does is there's a tendency to, to always have urgent things come to you. You, know, you get a citizen call, you get a political call, you get this or that. And then the, but the real important stuff that, you're, that sometimes prevents those calls from happening gets ignored because you get into, this brings everybody back to our core business. So you have to review this and do it. And that, that I think, helps us out with the citizen calls because no, if we have better pavement, we have less potholes and we get less calls. If we don't close bridges, we get less calls because the bridge is cold. You know, and you bring that into a tighter uh, condition where, where we're not handling 
the urgent stuff as much because we've paid attention to what's, what's important. Uh, I bring this one up because this is less mature, and I'm not as directly involved in this, but since Quentin's taken over as Chief Deputy Commissioner, he has instituted the same, a, a similar bingo card to the business areas and how they support executing the job. This is not mature, and that's the reason we're not showing a lot with it. It's not, the, the data integrity is probably not there yet, but even though this is less than a year old, maybe nine years old or nine months old, we took one thing out here, and that's the, the uh, phase closeout for, with, with, with closing the books. And we've actually found that even though we haven't settled on everything, was once we started looking at it and measuring, very quickly the closeouts went from what, what in the nation probably isn't very good, it's not just our state, but probably not as good as it should have been, to, to we're becoming one of the leaders in the nation about closing out our books. We've got a ways to go, but immediately we started seeing progress. And, and Quentin and the financial guys, they've really done a good job, and the programming guys on doing that over a matter of three to six months. The measure may not be completely flushed out, but just the idea of looking at it, we, you know, we've seen progress. And probably maybe three years or four years from now, it'll be mature enough that we'll just track it, track it uh, month to month or quarter to quarter. And again, this is, that, that's the brief, and again, the, the key to us is getting everybody focused on the long-term, consistent improvement of, what, of the important stuff. And we need to do the urgent, but we need to not let it take over from what's actually important. And that's kind of how we manage, and then that fits up to meeting your policy goals that you give us. And, and that's it. Thank you, sir. So just a comment on this. Part of this uh, is to show as we move from the legislation and aligning our pots of money that we have the procedures in place for VDOT to perform. And obviously, uh, you know, you're not going to be responsible looking at all these, but we do want to make sure that, uh, that we translate that all the way through to execution. This really gets back to, you know, how many times VDOT has been reformed over the years? Every time there's a new administration, there's a reformation. We chose governance and execution over reformation. In other words, quit talking about it, let's do it. And I think uh, under the Tiffish's conscious leadership and Garrett and the others, that, that's what we're focusing on, uh, not doing another study as to you know, what's going on. So um, that's sort of the theme of good governance, good execution, uh, and let's actually see these dollars get put to use. So uh, any questions for Mr. For Mr. Uh, yes, Mr. Uh, uh, yes, Garrett, how often do you compile the bingo cards? Is that monthly or quarterly? I, we go over them quarterly at a minimum. Um, the, I, I turn, <coughs> I you do them more often than that? It's actually monthly. Monthly. So, but if I'd say quarterly, there's people go, I, they don't go over them monthly, but unless there's something that sticks out. You know, so there's a the flag. Is, this is information for us as CTV members, because the line responsibility is obviously a VDOT, but for us then to go over quarterly with our district engineer would be probably appropriate? Absolutely, absolutely. And this, uh, we have been doing this for about four years now. Uh, we, uh, uh, Commissioner Worley, when I came back as the Chief Deputy Commissioner, one of the things he wanted to reinstitute were regular meetings with the district to go over their performance, which had not been done prior to, to Commissioner Worley uh, uh, being appointed. So we, we began this process, and this came together pretty quickly. 
One of the important things is, Derek showed the, the change in, in red to green. We didn't change the grading scale, and this is something that we've been, been very, I'll call it conservative and strong on, that we're not going to ease up on the grading scale. If anything, we've actually raised the bar, especially in some of the pavement areas. We set the bar a little bit higher because we believe we should be doing better. And so the, the way we've measured it over the, the period of time is a consistent measurement um, and, and it's showing a positive trend. But absolutely, this is something that uh, I know the district engineers would be, would be glad to go over, district specific, and even to, to this, this dashboard. That's the first screen. You start clicking and you can really get into the, uh, into the details down to a project-by-project project level uh, of into individual projects comes right through this screen here. So it's a, it's a great tool for us. And as Jared said, we are, we're finding that our, our staff, they really, uh, they take this very seriously. And it's a, a healthy competition. Uh, we also are very uh, strong on, we're not gaming the system. Back to the point of, if it's one day late, which drives me crazy, by the way, because my feeling is project is a day late, um, that, that we should have done something from, from months prior. If, don't wait to the last, don't do your homework the night before it's due. Um, so anyway, uh, we, but we don't, they don't get a pass for that. Uh, so this is, this is a, an excellent tool for the, for the board just to get a feel for how things are going on in, in the districts and at a corporate level. I know, uh, try speaking, but uh, we're doing similar stuff at the RPT, uh, working through, uh, again, focusing on execution, not doing studies on reform. Uh, and, uh, uh, and so, and again, we don't have responsibility here. Port of Virginia, same type of thing we're going through. So, uh, again, I think that's really from, you're right, you guys should know. Uh, and if you see something, obviously, Charlie's people responsible, but you ought to know what, what's going on. But I think what we can do is incorporate this into, I know Scott and I and Jim have monthly meetings, but uh, to reinforce its importance, just asking about this and putting it on the schedule, Scott, I think we'll, we'll, we'll do that. It's a great idea. And, and when we developed a lot of these years ago, we would go out and use these to brief General Assembly members and ask them the question, is there anything you see that we shouldn't be measuring? I know I never got anybody that said you're you should measure anything different than you are. So it was a tool that we've used with citizens, boards, everybody to go, you know, it's a transparent thing that's out there that people can look at. They don't, they don't that much anymore. Oh, just as a, just a matter of interest, uh, does, the does our state Compensation policy allows for merit adjustments based on performance. Um, he can ask for be that. Yes, there is a there are provisions that allow for uh, pay adjustments, uh, pay increases, and and for bonuses um, for performance that that are um, uh, that we have used. Uh, do we use it as extensively as private uh, world? No. Uh, this is kind of the structure of, our, of government. We, we don't have that flexibility. So we don't use it to the extent that I was used to as in private business for the bonus and increase. Yeah, think about having a private business who's legislated how many people it can have and how much money it can take. <coughs> so it is utilized. We're trying to get through that. Of course, uh, again, 
you were to ask that question at the court, the answer is much more because it's not as inhibited uh, by some of the rules. But that's what we're really trying to do at, uh, for execution and performance. Tied to, uh, together. Thank you. At what point does the clock start ticking on the project delivery? The, I don't know if this answers the question, but most of these are tied to complete and, and for project are tied to the fiscal year. So on 30th of June, any project that was completed in that fiscal year would count late or not, and then it starts over again for the projects that would finish the next fiscal year. There, the safety ones are not necessarily that way because the, some of the systems that are external to VDOT that are nationwide for tracking fatalities they'll be calendar year, but typically most of these are fiscal year and in and for completion dates we score the projects that are the contract completion date is within that fiscal year. Then then the clock starts again for the ones that would complete. Does that answer the question? And the completion date is, is the it's not substantial completion, it's completion date. So uh, in, in the vertical world you use a term where you're basically complete and you can move in. In our world, the punch list is complete for it to be complete. So we, we measure it differently. When we say complete, there's a form, it's called a, a C5, a construction division form 5, which says the project is done, the punch list is done, uh, we're, we're preparing the final estimate. Okay. More Thank, you very much. Thank you. Very informative. Uh, Mr. Lawson and Mr. Pitter. We'll assume you'll go through these 60 slides relatively <laughs> at a pace. Thank you, no, Mr. Well, Secretary. Are you feeling better today? I, I'm, I'm getting there, slowly by slowly. Good. Um, thank you, uh, Secretary and members of the board. It, it's been some time um, since we have uh, come to you with, with what I would call a, 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 a transportation finance primer. Um, many of you have a short tenure on the board. Um, there's been some significant change over the last two or three years, with 2313 and then HB2 and now 1887. So instead of, at, at this point in time, Steve and I would typically come to you and just talk about what's, what the funding look like for the next six year program. Uh, we felt like it, this was a good opportunity just to take a sh short step back and just kind of reiterate you know, some of how the revenues are determined and the programs are sized. As the Secretary mentioned, I'm going to skip through this pretty quickly. Um, hopefully you'll, you'll see this stack of 57 slides as a, as a takeaway that helps with, with understanding um, the, the process, and I'll certainly uh, be glad to talk to you about any of this specific details, and it may even point to things that you would like more specific discussion about at other, at other meetings. Just one comment on that. This my early comment about you guys really should take this because this will be the basis of the six-year plan. I mean, we talk about projects all the time and the six-year plan, but I want you to really understand you know, how the monies flow in and what the ramifications are into the six-year plan. All right. Um, we, pr we prepare in DDOT what we call a, a six-year financial plan. It's their internal tool for determining or, or identifying the revenues that are available um, for programming uh, to the transportation agencies over the upcoming six years. Uh, we, we base it off of the official 
tax estimates or state revenues. We use the best data we can get from Federal Highway to do the federal revenue estimates. And then we look to the policies and the objectives of the agency head and the board to determine how we allocate those programs you know, within the parameters of the, of the law. We also then, based off of the, the resources that are determined to be available from the six-year financial plan, we, we both do a six-year improvement program. This is, the, this is the actual list of projects that we plan to fund over the, the six years. We identify the, you know, the, kind of the timing of the projects, the funding that's being provided to the projects, and right down to the type of funding that will be used. In terms of the, the, the plan um, and this upcoming cycle, the 16 through 21, uh, this is really a very much a transitional period. Uh, we are, the 2313 revenues <coughs> are just getting fully implemented. Uh, we are looking to 20, HB2 prioritization. As you know, we, we started with, with a revision last, last November <coughs> to, to start pulling monies off of the HB2 eligible projects. And then we're looking at now the, the, the new structure, the, the revenue structure and the program structure that's been implemented or will be implemented by 1887, starting now but uh, not fully implemented until 2021, which is the last year of this upcoming program. Some key points related to 1887, and we've talked about 1887 on and off during session, but I just want to point to some of the key, the key aspects of it in, in the bill as it was enrolled. As, as you all know, it, it, it increases the independence of this body. Uh, you, you are now, um, can only be re removed by cause, and, and obviously that, that puts you in a, a, hopefully a position to where you are more able to, or you know, to speak your thoughts and question as you should. Um, the bill also is, is aimed at addressing funding to transit capital. Uh, it restructured some of the key programs within the, uh, the, the construction side of the house for the first time statutorily dedicating monies to the state of good repair as well as creating two programs for capacity type improvements uh, one constrained at a statewide level and, and the other being monies to local governments through a district grant program. 1887 doesn't create new revenue. Uh, again, we, we were building off of the, the successes of HB 2313 that, that did create an additional re revenues for transportation. But what, we, what was done with 1887 was kind of a relook at how those revenues are being used. And it was determined that there needs to be a greater focus on, on the transit side of the house. So you will see that there were some kind of three things within the uh, 1887 that redirects portions of existing tax revenues to the, from other areas in, into transit uh, operating or capital services. Uh, one other thing, another thing that was done by the bill was in, certainly doesn't rank up there in, in the magnitude of the other issues, but it, it does 
um, take the revenues that are provided to the previously provided to the total solar revolving account and redistributes them to the Transportation Infrastructure Bank and to the Partnership Opportunity Fund. Just by way of a little history, the um, total solar revolving account was created back in the, the mid-80s and, and, and it's funded by the, the, the interest earnings on the major highway account. <coughs> and the intent of, of this fund was to be able to support startup toll facilities uh, that VDOT would, would own and operate. Um, it, it has facilitated Coleman Bridge, Ballot Parkway, and, and others <coughs> in years. But we, we, it was believed that we really reached the point in time where VDOT startup toll facilities are probably not likely to be very frequent, and that the monies would be more more beneficial if they were included in the Infrastructure Bank or the Partnership Opportunity Fund to support governments and the private sector bring forward um, transportation solutions um, more more affordably and quicker than they would otherwise. I mentioned earlier that, uh, there were three new programs created for the highway construction formula. The 40-30-30 primary secondary urban formula um, will be phased out as of 2021. Um, it, it does not exist and it will be replaced uh, by a, a formula that will distribute, as I mentioned, monies to those three categories. And I'll speak a little more to each of those a little later. Hi, just a question. Um, it's about $11 million a year that runs through the toll facilities account. Yes, just so, about, so yeah. about the seven or eight is going to go. The VTIP, which we never had a dedicated funding source before, in which we make decisions on, but we being the board has to allocate monies for loans and stuff. Uh, the other three million or so into the uh, opportunity fund for the governor, as you know, everything's got to go through House Bill 2. Uh, this allows, if we get a, a, a very significant uh, uh, economic development act, uh, a new Volvo plant or something like that, we need two or three million dollars to get a road in or before we have the money to do it without having to come and go through House Bill 2 and take in that regard. So that's what the thinking is there behind, you know, John mentioning that not anticipated VDOT's going to be in the tolling business uh, in the future. So the account will go away completely. Yes, how much in there now, John? How much in the account now? There's, there's, there's 10 million or so of, of unallocated dollars. Right. There's some, some significant monies that are committed that haven't been spent. Right. About 130 million is that what we About 130 in total yeah. there so in cash. It depends on what goes with those projects. That right. may be freed up, uh, but we'll bring that to your attention as to is what the recommendation would be to do with those funds. So, with that backdrop, turning to you now to just looking at the upcoming fixture plan. Uh, the fixture financial plan identifies about 33 billion dollars of, of total uh, revenues and other financing sources. These sources are kind of a combination of state taxes and fees, which is about 60% uh, of the total. We have the regional taxes and fees, which is about another 10% of, of, of the monies, and then federal apportionments, and then we have uh, a, a, a contribution from the issuance of bonds. And I have a slide on the, the totals a little, a little further into the slide deck. Mr. Chairman, may I ask ah, Yes, Mr. Freeland. Um, on the regional state taxes and fees under HB 2313, my understanding was we don't program that money. No, we don't that program it. But it's so why, why is it as part of our 
funding. Um, um, Chairman, Mr. Fraley, the, because they are a state tax, uh, they are uh, forecasted by the Department of Taxation. They are collected as a state tax revenue, and as the I call the liaison agency, uh, VDOT, the monies are appropriated through the budget, budget bill, through the Appropriation Act, to VDOT as a pass-through, pass in essence, and then we will pass the monies on to. Um, it's just a pass-through on our books. We show it coming in. And then we show uh, when they're programming projects uh, through the local aid when they put them back on. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, we have, but you were right, we have no, con I shouldn't say no control. We, how they're spent, we certainly control the facility they're spent on. That's one of the things you want to wait till later in the meeting. Yeah, that's right, yes. <laughs> it is. It's a good point. We don't, we don't uh, make the decision as to how those projects, those monies are spent. And it does show up on our. As he said, it passes through our books as part of the budget process. I just what, do we, I just wonder, is there any downside to doing that? Because I don't understand how it works with the federal government, and, and it makes our it makes our transportation budget, our state transportation budget, look larger than it is. And I, I don't know of any downside of that. But it just does. Well, it's still state transportation budget. Yeah, I was say, I it's just not available for statewide usage. In other words, I understand what you're saying, but it's not a state, it's still part of our state. Both those regions are part of the state. Uh, of course they are, but... I, but um, I, what, you're talking what, about control versus... Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. And, no, and my understanding was they had to set it up that way or the taxes would be unconstitutional. Right. Uh, no, the General Assembly had to levy the taxes. Exactly. Which they did. Uh, and therefore, we're their collection agent... Okay. Uh, All right. Well, it's probably a distinction without difference. I just yeah. Anyway, well, so, but I don't think it has any impact on federal revenues. Okay. In that regard, uh, that's, uh, but we can come. But that's why it's on there. But it is. It, it's a. It's a revenue and expenditure. <coughs> a use. I should say revenue and use that we have no control over at the Commonwealth Transportation Board level. In terms of the major revenue sources of, or state revenue sources, I highlighted the, 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 made the top, top five here. Um, you can see the retail sales and use tax it is now the largest uh, component of our, uh, tax rep, of our revenue base. In fact, it's, it's even larger as a percentage share than the federal is now. The federal is about $5.5 billion over the, over the six-year period. So retail sales and use has, has become our largest single revenue source. And you can see the, the other categories here that, that make up those major components. Mr. Chairman, I don't want yes. to be pedantic or belabor the point, but in these numbers, $6.7 billion, does that include the regional revenues? It does not. It does not. See, that's, I mean, that's, that's, why not? That, that is the retail, the, the, the numbers you see here and the 60% that I referenced uh, of the total represents the, the, the tax dollars that are at your discretion. The regional monies, as we mentioned, they come in and they flow out. We, we so could put them in there. Did not mix them into that numbers. We could put them in there. I mean, I, I'm just worried about the consistency. That's all. Yeah, it, I mean, it probably should be. It just makes that uh, that sales and use tax even larger. Correct. Uh, but there's sales and use tax gap in there. But the key here is is that um, this has an implication. I'll tell you why. Because we've got several requests from reporters. 
saying that, oh, Virginia raised their gas taxes because they're not going to have federal monies. Absolutely not. I don't think anybody who voted for 2313 thought they were taking the place of federal monies. Uh, but it just shows that the federal dollars are becoming a lesser percentage of our overall budget because they haven't raised them since 1993 in that regard. But the, uh, the intent is not to take what Virginia's done and say that's taken the place of our federal dollars. That's a perfect segue. As, as we talk about federal funds, you know, we, we really are looking at federal funding from two sources. So highway administration, we speak, think of mostly, uh, say three sources, but uh, DRPT also is, is a recipient of some FTA and FRA dollars, Federal Railroad, Federal Transit. Um, lo looking at, you know, in terms of the entire $33 billion program, it's about 17% is federal. If I look at the, the core um, construction type activities, we're up to 35% of the total. Um, if you were to exclude the, the bond-funded component of our budget, that number rises to over 40%. So even though, as we mentioned, federal is only you know, less than 20% of the to grand total budget, it does provide about 40-ish percent of the capital-related funding to the, to the program. Mr. Chairman. Oh, yes, Mr. Williams. John, does the federal allocation is does it increase as we increase spending? Is no, it, is sir. It, is it, it's a flat how much we're going to get. Yeah, you're, um, you're, you're reading ahead for me. Appreciate oh, it. I'm sorry. No, it's no, no, no. perfect. Perfect it, question. It, we wish it did, but it's not indexed <laughs> to our spending. Exactly. So we, we wish it did. We, we have not the, I was reading the, the, the eligible project list. If I, I, I just wanted to clear up whether if we do more eligible projects, are we getting more or no, sir. It'd just be less of a percentage. Funding, federal funding, for the most part, is apportioned to the states based on numerous formula, but it's obviously based upon air roads, etc. Um, it doesn't change unless there's more money available to, to be distributed. Two points on that. Uh, we're a donor state. We only really receive about 93% unless and this was VDOT, Mr. Wall, they've done a good job of getting bonus every year where other people around the country don't use. In fact, I think we're about we, we to be one of those years that yeah. didn't use. Yeah, we use it. But I'm just saying uh, um, that's one of the issues we've, we've lobbied for is it ought to be somehow proportional to how we spend and, and index to either inflation or something. But yeah, it is, and right now it is not. Virginia shares about two and a half percent of the total pot, um, and for the purposes of this program, the Map 21 is expiring as, as, as it's currently in law will expire at the end of May. Um, so there is there is nothing that would indicate the program will grow. In fact, if you could you could look at this and say it, it could fall um, because if something isn't done to provide additional funding, there, there could be reductions. In fact, the uh, House GOP Budget Committee yesterday released their budget, which would would had about a 14% reduction in transit, transportation-related funding. So we, we've, we've, we've taken the position in this program that transportation funding will, will, will be flat, uh, and we hope it will be better. And at that time, obviously, we can 
we will recognize those monies and be able to plan to use them. Mr. Chairman, Mr. Chairman, I'd like to make a quick point and then, and then ask a question. The, the, the point being that if Washington cuts our money, our six-year plan is out of balance, and we got to go in and start cutting projects. Absolutely true. So that I think the public needs to know that, yep. needs to be aware of that. That's correct. Um, the, sec the second question I've got is there's a perception out there that the feds fund 90% or 80% of interstate projects. And and that's that's just something I hear out there. That's not true either. Not, not accurate. They give us a flat number that doesn't vary. If we decided to build, I don't know, say seventy three, right. they're not going to pay ninety percent of that cost. They're going to we're going to figure out how to pay for that based on our federal allocation already. That's what makes that's something we, that, we that could, people in my that's area. That's right. We could choose we could choose to put to limit where we put federal money. We could do that. In fact, that's one of the but things. But it's not a matching it's program. It's not a matching. No, it's that's not a that's matching what program. I'm trying to. <coughs> that's right. In fact, one of the strategies that we've spoken of is potentially, and we can't do it now. It takes some time to work into it. Is is maybe we should just say this is going to be more of a federal project. So if we do have a cut, we don't cut lots of projects. We cut several projects. No, I agree with you. I, I, I mixed. I mixed yeah. the questions. So yeah. no, no, but. No. but People need to understand that it's real. It's real money, and that just because it's a federal road and a federal highway doesn't mean they're paying 90 percent of the cost. We don't. We don't get extra money. Right. Yeah. There is no extra money. We we have programmed flat the the federal allocation over the next six years. The only what we would call extra money is when we pursue what we call bonus uh, obligation right. authority, and that's a hit or miss. Uh, there are some very limited grant programs, TIGER, um, the ARA program, which is not, you know, is winding down now. But beyond that, there, there is no extra money from the federal Because the, the perception is it's like Medicaid. The more you spend, the feds match it. That's, that's no incentive to spend no, money. No, we have absolute dollar. You'll see, 900, whatever million, that's it. Let me throw you something else while we can come back to this later, too. But when I was testifying up there, this perce another perception you made too another one that private money can fill the hole absolutely not it's part of it but it can't fill it all private money is not going to fill a, uh, uh, when you're re uh, redoing a bridge without capacity but you know it, private money is not going to restructure a roadway that is not it doesn't have you know put tolling so that is a misperception uh, and and uh, that uh, that we can, there's all this private money sitting on the side waiting to come in, only if they can get a return. And I think it's a part of it, but it's not the whole package. They cannot replace our federal dollars. You mean there's not a lot of private money wanting to repave secondary roads? Yeah, that, that, yeah, that, yeah. But that's another perception out there that those, uh, you know, the Cato Institute, that's what, you know, all this money's going to come in. That's just untrue. It's a, it has it's a part of our procurement, and it's going to play a central role to our procurement, but only when. You know, when it makes sense. If, if I can add just one one um, quick point, which isn't covered here in John's slides, um, but on the transit side, there's actually um, one thing that's not covered because it's not actually part of the Transportation Trust Fund, but is um, uh, basically federal funds that go to expansion of made of transit projects, and it's um, it's called the New Starts and Small Starts program. Sometimes these are ranging from $25 million a year to $50 million a year, like the BR, Broad Street BRT project, or they can be major capital projects like Dulles Rail. Um, 
these projects, that fund is actually funded out of general fund revenues at the federal level. It doesn't actually receive gas tax revenues. So that, prog that program itself is always on the chopping block every year um, at the congressional level. It's a discretionary program. It's not formula-based like the rest of our transit funds. But what it means is that for our local transit operators that are competing for federal funds, they're competing with projects all around the country for a pot of money that's limited and getting smaller and smaller every year. Um, because it's not based on gas tax revenues, it comes out of the general fund. It's um, it, it, it's been sort of on the chopping block every year. The um, what um, the reason that's important for you all to recognize is that it's raised a lot of significant challenges to advance fixed guideway projects around the state. So, for example, the light rail project in Virginia Beach, should that go forward? Um, the state is stepping in with a funding commitment specifically because there's not enough federal, level, federal dollars out of that program for a project like this. So that's another program that's getting more and more competitive that's requiring us at the state level to step up more of our transit dollars. Our, our transit capital fund isn't designed to handle big projects like that. We often have to rely on flexible funds that we you know, work with VDOT to have those allocated as well. But I just want to make sure you, would, you know there's another piece of this in the transit side that isn't reflected here, but it really does affect you know, VDOT as well and, and sort of resources we have statewide to advance major projects. So when John mentioned earlier that we were putting more money, we're not putting more money in transit, we're trying to address so we don't have to reduce the offerings we do in transit. He is right, it's more coming out of this hot, but I mean, in terms of uh, we don't have a bunch of expanded transit options. I don't want people to think, oh, $40 million a year, we're do all that. No, we're just trying to keep in place what we have. Chairman? Yeah, just a footnote. John, do you, what's the latest on the continuing resolution of the federal government? When does that expire? Is that the crisis again? In the summer? As far as FAP 21, in the May. Yes, sir. And he mentioned that you, the, there's, the president's plan is significantly different than the plan offered by the congressional Republicans. I mean, and, uh, you know, we'll see if they find, my guess is, is what they've done since 2008, they'll come out and let's don't do anything we get to the next election. So they push it down the road 10 or 11 months. Mr. Chairman, the, the federal fund, is that, 100% gas tax, or is there other revenues? Right, right now, mostly it's it's all the collections are the gas tax, but because it's been short, there have been federal general fund appropriations that have gone in to keep the apportionment. In other words, if we were just since 2008, I think it's almost 60 billion dollars, a little bit more from general fund revenues, because the gas tax hadn't been raised since 1993. So. To answer your question, it primarily is right. The sole thing is the, is the gas tax. But since 2008, Congress has taken federal general fund monies appropriations and added to it to sort of keep the uh, uh, the appropriations coming to the state, which John mentioned earlier. So it's a mix right now. But in terms of truly collections, it's the gas tax. In, Mr. Secretary, if you made it, it also receives the, the federal excise tax on tires. Yeah, yeah. Which is it's a small piece. Small piece, but yeah. compared comparatively to the fuel tax, but that, that it really is the, the key sources to. The and, and the forecast is for that revenue stream to be flat at best. 
Uh, that revenue stream is, is, is smaller. Um, just, just put it in perspective, the, the federal program we're operating under now is about 48, 49 billion a year, and the, the revenue stream is about 36, yeah. 37 billion a year. So it is it's, uh, not sustaining itself at the moment. As he mentioned, we're they're continuing to make general fund contributions to keep the program at the current level. Mr. Chairman, I know that we have a, uh, a liaison yes. with the state government in the capital, and I assume that they're working, you know, I think if there was going to be anything other than a patch of the highway bill in May just to carry it forward, we would be hearing about it now because that's, that's a lot of work to do between now and May. Um, Maybe so, maybe not, but I, I, I just want to confirm, you guys are working closely with yeah. our senators and our representatives right. up there to try yeah. to figure yeah. out what... As of, as of Monday at the cabinet meeting, and, and Nick uh, lives up there, Nick says, Nick Dottie, you are our deputy secretary, um, we understand there's some policy being worked on, but there's no agreement as to how it's going to be funded yet. And that's similar to what we had last August. Mr. Kelpatrick got a letter. I suspect we're going to get one here pretty soon from Secretary Fox, telling him to prepare for curtailments uh, of the uh, of, of our apportionment. So uh, I mean, we're coming up on it. So uh, and again, just think about this: we're just getting ready to gear up our summer construction. That's why I made the right decision last year not to not to stop our construction because we had some. Close and that, that really resulted in getting the extra allotment because other people did. You know, we're getting close. We had to be able, we're going to have to sit down and say, you know, what do we do? I mean, right now, roll seven. Ahead. We're, yeah, we're just, yeah, we're going to roll seven. <laughs> That's right. You know, in there. So, but I will say this: several other states have already stopped. Those states that rock rely primarily and only on the, the federal monies. As I mentioned earlier, we, we do supplement the, the transportation program with, with bond funds. Um, we've been using bond funding in the Commonwealth, uh, I think, back from back in the 50s. Largely, it was intended, it was just specific statutory legislation authority to issue bonds for a specific facility. Uh, the, the, the two programs that we are currently have um, the active is the Garvey program and the, and the CPR program. Um, both of those are, were authorized. Um, the Garvey's is a $1.2 billion revolving program, and the CPR is a, is a fixed authorization. <coughs> currently, we've got about uh, just over $3 billion of outstanding um, debt. And, uh, in this current program, we, we, are, we have about a billion seven of additional bonds intended to be um, issued to support the program, which is about 5% of the total program. Now just to make sure they're programmed already. This is not additional Correct. projects that, you know, we're, we're counting on it, issuing these bonds. John will tell you, we issue them when we cash is needed and the interest rates and all that. But this is not, you know, 1.7 billion that we got to we put on other projects. They're already committed. Somewhere, and a, a small portion of the Garvey proceeds that are in the HB2 right. pool, I'll call right. it. Um, but the, everything else, as, as mentioned, is, is committed to projects. And John, so we don't confuse folks with the kind of the Northern Virginia alphabet. So Northern Virginia Transportation District; those bonds are not the Northern Virginia Transportation Authority. 
these are the bonds that were issued under older Old program. program. That's correct. So I don't want it, it gets real confusing sometimes which NVT is this. It's this 500 million. It's not the current uh, program going on in Northern Virginia. It's a it's a past program. Those projects are largely uh, completed. It, it, that program is is largely complete. Yes, yeah, only about 20 million in unissued bonds out of that authorization. And the the projects that could be completed with those with those bonds were actually enumerated in the authorizing legislation. So it was a very specific. It's a block of projects, but it was very specific in what could be done. Uh, we've talked a little bit about the regional revenues, and I won't go belabor this. Uh, they are both the, the in-air program. We do flow show the flow through of the, the state revenues dedicated to the regions. Um, in terms of the the stability, I'll call it of, of the, these revenue streams. Um, Hampton Roads it has the disadvantage of their of having this new. Uh, sales tax on fuel that has no floor. Yeah, I want to point that out. Unlike the statewide revenues, there was the 2313. I think everybody thought it had a floor in the region, but it did not. Right. Uh, and when we were at, we were looking at John, the why are we going down so much quicker in in, in Hampton Roads because it's primarily the right. uh, Northern Virginia doesn't have a floor either, but it has other taxes. Yeah, and when we discovered that there was no floor uh, in uh, on the uh, the regional revenues. In Northern Virginia receives the, the 2.1 percent sales tax on fuel uh, as well, but but have half for many years and is not considered part of the regional revenue source. So it, while they they do are subject to the same fluctuation, um, you don't see it in our numbers because it's not part of what we it doesn't come to us at all. It's truly a local tax. Uh, a, a chart with a lot of numbers. Uh, th this is the, the forecast for the six-year plan. Uh, you can see the, the revenues by, and we kind of grouped them up into major groups. You see the, 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 the top third is the state sources, that's about $25.5 billion. The, the federal, about $5.6 billion. It's just colored red just to kind of highlight its um, precarious situation, I'll say. And then you see the other financing sources at the bottom, um, the, the additional a billion seven for the total 32.9. Uh, comparing program to program, um, middle of the page, we're about a hundred million dollars above where we were, but that does, you know, that you're looking at dropping off 15 and adding 21, and 21 is higher than 15, so it kind of <coughs> masks the, the effect of, of some reductions. In fact, there's about 165 million dollars in, in reductions in state program in that overlapping time period that had been adjusted. The, uh, the regional areas uh, also reduced, had about $115 million reduction, about $90 million. Hampton Roads, $24 million or so in Northern Virginia. Um, the numbers in, in the grand total show a, where it shows the 350-ish million increase. Uh, it includes $400 million in 20 for, NB, for Route 58 bonds. I think it was two years ago now that the authorization for 58 was increased to uh, enable the completion of Lover's Leap and some of the, the sections, the remaining sections of Route 58, um, and dedicated monies to the program starting in 2020. Um, it won't be until 2020 that we have sufficient funds to make the debt service. That's, that was the reason there was 
um, delayed really until 2020. Um, so we have put, the, put that into program to indicate that it will be there to support the, uh, the projects and uh, we'll actually be looking to that as we get closer and we'll be issuing the bonds as needed from a cash perspective to support the projects based on that readiness. Mr. Chairman, can, uh, this, this is, this is a important, in the southern part of my district, this, this 58 is an important piece of this, this lover's leap. So the 58 money, the special tax money is still being collected. <laughs> if I may, there's $40 million take, really taking off the top of the recordation taxes statewide as a proxy for, for the area. It's not directly connected to the, the facility itself or the corridor itself. So that for all, so, so the General Assembly said us, we're going to raise the recordation tax for everybody in the state? They, they, when this was done in the eighties, I guess the, the, the legislation said we're going to take forty million dollars, which off of of the, the first basically the first forty million of recordation. <coughs> my, my question is: Does that money flow into infinity? In other words, is it until they change that that keeps until flowing? it's changed the money's and what we're trying to do is accumulate accumulate enough of that money to be able to issue bonds for the lovers' leap. The the. The way that it was structured, we had $40 million a year from the uh, general fund or recordation taxes, and then the CTB or the transportation dollars was required to, to kick in additional monies if necessary to make debt service on the um, on the bonds. Why, why would we have to kick in extra money? Why don't we just wait until we got enough? Well, in order to move it, and it was the way it was structured, you know, we were unable to do this, and the decision at the time was made. Um, we've done 10 or 12 million a year. Of, of state transportation dollars now in addition to the 40. So the debt service has been about $52 million on that program. In 2020, when we, when we looked at this a couple of years ago now, it's when the debt service would drop back down within the $40 million range. And the decision was, and, and the way the legislation was written, is that they, we are now being required, you are being required, to provide $20 million a year starting in 2020 to add on top of that 40 to make the debt service, which enables the, the sale of another $400 million in, in debt to complete the, uh, the quarter. Okay. So no more of that. We don't help that part. I'm just kidding. It's called the fill pot. Yeah. And that's, I'm sure. But we are essentially, when we get the money to issue bonds. Right. Now, I mentioned the CTR program. Um, the numbers we saw on, this, on the previous slide are, are trailing off. You see the, the last issue being done in 2020 that completes the, uh, the, the, the authorization of, uh, available on that program. And uh, Mr. Pittert will speak more about that um, a little later as uh, the monies, all the monies to be issued in this program are transit rail related. Um, the monies that were slated for highways have already been programmed to projects. So that was, he'll speak more to that a little bit. This, this chart, I just wanted to give you a perspective of where the money is going. Um, so here's the $33 billion just broke up by agency. So you can see where it's going. Uh, it does reflect that um, an addition of 100, $153 million across the, uh, the six years in this program a net that is going to DRPT for transit and purposes as directed by HB 1887. 
And it also, what you don't see here, and mentioned some of the, uh, what Director Mitchell mentioned earlier, is there are monies in, in the VDOT number, in, in, as it's listed here, that once we get through the six-year programming process, may well be identified for transit or rail activities. Um, just real, real, I'm going to hit this fast because I'm running longer than I had hoped. But uh, just, you know, we operate under two major funds. The Howie Maintenance and Operating Fund and the Transportation Trust Fund. The HMO is all VDOT and intended to support maintenance and administration. Um, the trust fund is, is where it was really created in 86, had the mobile distribution to the, to the four major modes. Um, there are also a few other special programs that are used to support story-specific priorities or programs. This is the recommended allocation as we are going into the program development um, based on the preliminary numbers. So this just kind of shows you uh, the picture of where we expect the $33 billion to be distributed. Uh, you know, we, we cover debt service first and other things, and I'll, I'll speak to those very briefly as I flip through the next few slides. As I mentioned, debt service comes first. Uh, we, we are uh, making debt service on, the, on those core programs I mentioned earlier. Uh, the debt service is, is about um, $2.5 billion over the, the course of the six years. You also see here that you know, there the dedicated revenues for these. Garveys come from federal revenues, CPRs, and the other programs have their own specific revenue sources that are used for those um, debt programs. Uh, we provide a significant amount of money to other state agencies. Um, 15.8 million annually to space flight. I think that carries 317 in the legislation. We provide monies to, to DMV for way stations and uh, some regulatory purposes, state police support, and you can see here just some of the other major categories of uh, areas that we provide funding to. We talked quite a bit about major. So. Why do we give the Department of Taxation $18 million? Uh, that, that is considered trust fund management. Trust fund management. To manage our money? To manage our money. Yeah. It's, it's, it's legislatively required. You might ask why we get Chesapeake Bay uh, 44 mates, because it's legislative required. So, so we're taking about $150 million annually and spending it on stuff that ain't doing building roads. We are required by law to do so. Just check. Well, well the, the numbers you see outside of space light are over the six years. So it's not. Ah, so this is over six years. Yes, sir. Much better. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, uh, for a fiscal fight. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, 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 you're right. Yeah. Uh, as I mentioned, we, we've talked quite a bit about maintenance over the last couple couple sessions, so I won't speak, speak much to that other than, you know, we've got a, um, nearly $10 billion a year for um, maintenance and operations related to VDOT. There's another $2.3 billion associated with maintenance payments for localities, so all, all, all in total about Twelve and a half billion dollars um, uh, in, in total funding distributed to uh, the uh, to, to, to make for maintenance purposes. Do want to make note that at the bottom there you see that of that twelve and a half, we are supporting um, their support there from places other than the Highway Maintenance and Operating Fund, which 
originally was intended to support all of this purposes. So we've got a about a billion four coming from federal highway dollars that previously would have been used solely for construction purposes, and about a billion two in highway construction dollars, state funds, which is what we tend to refer to as crossover. Chairman, can, so, John, can John just spend just a second explaining the Arlington and the RICO appropriation? The, the, probably do it in a couple seconds. Certainly. Um, Arlington and RICO are the two counties in the Commonwealth that maintain their own on, on, on secondary system. So as part of the, the legislation that, that established them as having withdrawn from the secondary highway system, uh, we pay them, in essence, to maintain their highway system. The amounts by which we pay them are statutorily derived. So that's what you're seeing here based on their their system is, is how we determine the amount that is. Is there a way to measure what we pay them versus what we pay Roanoke and Newport News? Oh, yeah, we have, we have, we did a whole subgroup on that two, years, two, three years, two three, three years ago, and happy to, to bring that information forward. But uh, this is back from when, uh, actually the 30s, when, remember, that all the counties used to <coughs> localities and Burn administration brought them back. The counties were allowed to, to continue on. These two chose to do so. And that has been statutorily uh, regulated uh, as to what they get. Uh, and there is a question as to how that compares to uh, the real cost, but it's statutorily uh, done. And John, the formula for Henrico and Arlington are it's a, it's a, uh, and I'll get this wrong. It's a, it's a lane mile calculation. Is it moving lane? It's moving lane mile. How is it different than run, than run out, sir? Anymore? So the rate is different. It's the rate, not the. The rate is different, and I think Frank could measure it. And Jennifer's nodding her head. It's lane miles for cities. It's moving lane miles for the two counties. I'm sorry. I'm back. Back. <laughs> it's moving lane miles for the cities and lane miles for the county, but the rate is also different. The other fundamental difference, Henrico and Arlington are responsible for the secondary system only. In the urban system, they're responsible for the, the primary extensions and what would be considered the secondary system or the local streets within the city. So there, there is, there's, a, a, there's more obligation to maintain uh, at the city level than <coughs> the county. But the rate is actually higher, I believe, on a, on a mileage basis for the two counties. There's always been a perception yeah. that it's a sweet deal. Well, last I looked, I, I think recall this, Ms. Krasinski, I think, I think in RICO we were getting a bargain, and wasn't the case. And I, I don't mean in terms of how we did the rest of the state. I'm not saying it's not worthwhile, but if you look, in RICO was getting a little less than they might have gotten if we'd done the state formula and we'll, and. Yeah, all I did was getting a little more had we done the state. But we, if, if we apply the same formula to every jurisdiction, how we allocate our maintenance money, we couldn't afford it. We couldn't afford it. We couldn't afford to allocate money under the formulas that are used for Arlington and Henrico for the for the remaining counties in the Which state. We would, we would absorb these, We would take every dime and then some. Mr. Chairman, I think this is very very helpful. One other thing, we, we, we've been talking about perceptions out there. Another thing I think we need to make clear is we're going to take $2.6 billion over six years that we could have spent for construction. 
and spend it on maintenance, despite the fact that we've had an increase in revenue. I think that's a very good point, and so and so we still are not in a situation where we're fully funding our maintenance out of our state dollars and able to use the money in construction like we would like to. And that's important. I think that's right. It's twofold. We've had conversations with the commissioner. One is, are we getting the biggest bang for our maintenance dollars? And that, and so we're going through that. I think we may ultimately, you know, Derek talked about performance, but ultimately prioritization or something in that, and that's that. And the other is, I think 87, we do recognize state of good repair will help that because, you know, we had been, a lot of that sort of bled over too, Charlie, in that regard. So hopefully we'll start attacking that. But uh, no, I, I think that's, that, is an act, that is accurate. We are spending quite a bit trying to catch up for many years of not maintaining our current system. And our system, it grows every year, especially on the secondary side. Uh, ebbs and flows depending on the economy, but we still add a couple hundred miles a year on the secondary system, in the, mostly in the, in the uh, northern Virginia mostly, but in some other parts. The other thing, frankly, is that our, our primary, all of our roads are getting older every day. But the big push of the 50s, 60s, and into the 70s of the lighting of the primary system and the construction of the interstate system, these facilities are now 50 plus years old and it, they're beyond a paint job. So the cost of, the, the cost of maintenance is going, uh, of maintaining those facilities is, it, it becomes more difficult. We don't grow, we are growing our maintenance program only at the PPI, is that correct? Uh, we're not, we're not, uh, that's how we're growing our maintenance program at that, at that rate. We haven't, we haven't driven more money to it, but just that growth rate is taking, uh, taking that level of uh, crossover. Yeah, we probably should move along. Just um, some of those other things that obviously we have to fund before we get to what's remaining for construction. We have what we call a group about administration and other. Um, it's 2.6 billion. Seems like a big number. Um, but uh, you know, 85 percent of that is, is, prob is probably like personnel. You know, it's a, a large push. Well, I take that back. Of your program management category at the, at the top, about 85 percent of that is, is, is staffing, and then the other programs are, are pretty uh, are tied to services or or other areas such as capital outlays. This is over six years. It is over six years. I just Correct. want to make sure people are real clear on that. Yes. Absolutely. But in, in all fairness, I mean, we're looking hard at this. I mean, and, and, and VDOT's been really working hard at how to do this uh, uh, in, in that regard. So we're not saying that we're just suggesting that we're not. <coughs> I really commend the VDOT staff for looking at how they're operating and what things we do in-house, what things we do out-of-house, uh, and, and trying to get that uh, uh, TAMS contracts, for instance, how we restructure those. and. We've taken a look at, uh, at uh, how we spend, you know, administer ourselves. You know, the typical complaint we get is, is uh, staffing levels and things like that. There's so many people. How many yellow shorts do you have out there? And I, I used to use an analogy to explain to people that if you laid everybody off in VDOT, you couldn't build a good-sized intersection with it. I mean, it's just... On an annual basis. Yeah, yeah. On an annual basis. It's right. not where the money... It's a good use of money, not necessarily the staffing levels or anything like or waste at VDOT. But to your point, Mr. Secretary, we have over the last several years um, 
seeing continuous reductions in the administrative areas. We did almost 10% last year. We've done we plan for another 7% this year. And, and when we make these adjustments, we make them to the base so that they carry out and not just one-time adjustments. So um, we, we're actually putting the squeeze, really putting the squeeze on the agency to make sure we are um, very, um, very deliberate in what we have to spend on administration so that we can maximize the dollars that are going to the corporate I mentioned lower distributions. Uh, I won't go through that, but you know, we mentioned earlier that the Transportation Trust Fund was set up and where it has a, a core set of revenues that are dedicated to it, and then the statutorily they are distributed to highways, mass transit, port, and, and aviation. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Mr. Pitter to let him talk a little bit about the transit and rail side of the, of the house. Thank you, John. And a lot of this, as John said earlier on, a lot of this is for y'all's information, so I'm going to kind of go through it pretty quick. But this is sort of a subset of the uh, Transportation Trust Fund, and what I wanted to do was just show you the 16 revenues to give you a feel for where those revenues come from. Um, and then I'm going to take each of those sources that go to transit, and then also I'll break the rail program down and kind of give you a little bit of information about those sources. So the, go the goal, as John said earlier, is really for y'all to take this and sort of have a deck of information to reference uh, over time and then come back and ask us uh, more specific <laughs> questions. So the first uh, revenue source is uh, the modal distribution that John just mentioned, the 14.7% that uh, goes to the Mass Transit Trust Fund. And in each of these slides I'm putting the code reference uh, in case someone wants to look deeper. Um, and in that code section, it dictates uh, to us how those funds will be split up, 72% uh, to operations, 3% uh, for our special programs, which includes our transportation demand management programs, and then 25% for transit capital projects. Uh, the next uh, large revenue source is the recordation taxes. Uh, we got a piece of recordation tax in 2007 and then again with uh, 1887 we're going to get a little bit more uh, beginning in 2017 um, and basically they're just taxes on uh, recording real estate transactions and we're going to go from the two cents uh, per hundred that we're currently getting to three cents uh, when we start 17 and, and that new penny is dedicated to uh, transit capital uh, to address that transit capital issue that we've been talking about in the past few years. As John talked a little bit about the bonds, uh, when, when these were authorized back in uh, 07, um, the, both transit and the rail uh, programs looked at it and we didn't have needs to take the 20% for transit and the 4.3% uh, that were dedicated to rail, and those were minimum dedications. We didn't have the needs, though, at that time. So we looked at it and said we would take those bond funds and spread them out over a 10-year period. And so, you know, with VDOT, they've used their funds, put them on projects, um, allocated them out. We've been allocating them out over that 10-year period, which is ending in 2018. Um, additionally, there is a you know, when I said there was a minimum of 20% to transit, there was uh, the language allowed in the VDOT portion, uh, the other 75.7 different um, allocations. And 
One of those was for matching to federal dollars. So a large uh, portion of this funding, uh, $600 million, or no, $500 million, $50 million a year for 10 years was taken to dedicate to match federal funds that went to a state of good repair program for the WMATA system, and both Maryland and D.C. put in similar funding to match those federal dollars. Um, also, some of that funding uh, of the discretionary use was also put on the Dulles Metrorail Extension Project. Um, in 2013 session, we were dedicated uh, retail sales and use tax, and as John mentioned earlier, it's uh, over the years, the retail sales and use tax has become actually the biggest revenue source um, for, for transportation. It goes to the same uh, split um, on the transit side as the Mass Transit Trust Fund, the 72, 3, and 25. Uh, the motor vehicle fuel tax, this was uh, part of 1887, the current session, um, and a lot of it was uh, dedicated to fix the transit capital uh, problem we have coming up with that loss of those bond funds. Um, but there was, uh, in part of that, there were small dedications of the motor fuel tax uh, that were made to both operations and to the special uh, programs fund, which was sort of designated, that special programs fund was uh, a significant amount of money considering, you know, 72% operating, 3% special. So if you look at that division, it's not 3 million and 2 million is not that same split. And that was by choice to try to prop up those special programs, in particular the uh, TDM, Transportation Demand Management Programs, that uh, really have been at a flat level of funding for a long time. And those are the programs, you know, ride sharing, et cetera, that, you know, we really have, as an agency, are pushing. And I think for both, uh, for both agencies, uh, it's a program that needed to grow. So. And finally, uh, on the transit side, uh, just touch on the uh, federal revenues. Um, and these are, you know, Director Mitchell spoke of the discretionary program. These are actually the formula funds um, that we do receive. And part of those are uh, from our flexible STP funds that is a pot of money and a portion of it is, is carved out uh, from, I guess you could say, from the VDOT budget and given dedicated to transit. And that's about $25 million a year. And then the Federal Transit Administration formula programs, we get about $30 million a year. And I just want to touch the two largest programs are our 5311 program, which is uh, funding for our rural providers. And then we also have a program uh, called the Governor's Apportionment Program. It takes uh, FTA 5307 funds. Uh, and dedicates those or allocates them to small urban providers. And for both the small urban and the rural, these programs are critical. Without them, you, most of the rural programs would probably cease, and the small urbans would probably reduce almost 50%. That brings us to the rail programs, and this, once again, is just a chart to give you a breakdown of the revenues and where they're actually coming from, and going into a little more detail on each of those. In 2005, we were dedicated the rental tax on vehicles uh, to set up, establish the Rail Enhancement Fund, which was established to fund both freight and passenger rail projects. Um, in 2017, 
you know, of the three percent of that tax we will receive, and one percent is going to be uh, dedicated to the State of Good Repair Program as directed in 1887. And I think it's also uh, prudent to mention that uh, we're working with the Rail Subcommittee to, uh, as directed by the General Assembly, to take a look at the Rail Enhancement Fund. And it's been 10 years since this was set up, and I think it was time to take a look at it. And uh, we're coming back, I think, in November to the General Assembly with recommendations and from the board. Um, on the bond side here, uh, same as uh, transit, um, except it's a smaller percentage. And I think here we also wanted to mention, you know, once again, the portion that uh, that 75.7 percent. You know, we're still using the rail funds, we're still using the transit funds, but the remainder has already been allocated, so we don't want people thinking that there's a pot of funds there uh, from our bond, the CPR bonds. And once again, with 2013 retail sales and use tax, we're used to set up the inner city passenger rail operating and capital fund, which basically gave us a source to pay for our six regional trains uh, that the state operates through using Amtrak, um, which prior to that time we didn't have a source to pay for that. Uh, we were just fortunate that the Lynchburg train uh, made enough money to support the two trains we were running at that time. So um, anyway, that, that's where that comes from, and it's 0.05% it's of, of the retail sales and use tax. And with that, I, unless there's questions, and I'll certainly be available for questions later, but I'm going to hand it back to John. Let me ask you just a quick question. What is the percentage of the rental tax? Um, is it 9%? I believe it's 10%, and we get 3 And we get 3%. But so it's, um, okay, so the tax itself is 10%. Okay. And I just wanted to clarify that. Just just for you, in the book we gave you earlier on the subcommittee, yeah. it, there's a detail of all of the tasks. Of all the breakouts. Thank you. Okay. John? All right, just um, moving into construction. Uh, you know, we kind of walked through this in, in, in the order we had showed the, the, the programs on the previous, on, the, on that initial slide. But in terms of funding for construction, uh, it's kind of the, the two big categories are obviously or three main categories at this point are the modal distributions, which is about about half of the uh, the total construction funds. I mentioned earlier, federal funds represent uh, 30-ish, 35 percent or so of this program, and then the Garvey's small amounts from telecommunication fees, which are provided directly to the to the counties, and then there are local contributions for participation on specific projects. Uh, before we get to Money is available for that construction formula distribution. There are a number of special programs. There are federal programs that are restricted um, to for their use or, or purpose, such as planning and research dollars, or the biggest one being the the, the, are, the regional SDP dollars that are directed to the MPOs that are at their, at their control. Um, revenue sharing program, the bond programs, and then we, we have a commitment one, another 100 million to make payment to uh, MY and 16, which will be the, the remainder of the $300, $300 million commitment to, um, to Dulles. 
Uh, revenue sharing, as you know, is a program that allows for a up to a, well requires a 50% match. Um, it is by code uh, requires uh, to be at at least 15 million. Can be funded to as much as 300 million a year. Uh, that program has been growing, as you know, over, over the last uh, over the last few years, um, with the, the with HB2 and with uh, 1887. Uh, we are, we're now looking at that as part of the program to development to see whether or not we need to uh, right size that program in order to get, to get more monies into these other programs, specifically, you know, the, the district grant program, which will be available for the, you know, the localities to compete on through the HB2 um, selection just, criteria. Just comment on that. I mean, that five years ago, the revenue sharing was $15 million a year. It's grown to 185, primarily because there were other sources of funds for the localities. And so when John mentions right uh, sizing, what we're looking at is with the new formula flow, you know, what's the right uh, percentage of having revenue sharing? Because state of good repair and district grants are going to be automatically pushed down. So we'll be looking at that over the development of the plan. Mr. Chairman, yes, um, as we're doing this, could we could we do, as we've talked about with HB2, could we kind of get examples of how this would look in the real world? Because I know for cities in particular, revenue sharing is basically been the only source of right. revenue to fix $15 million bridges where you're having to pay $7.5 locally, which many localities do not have. Um, you know, many of the cities don't have. Um, so, I mean, this is something that just catches my attention because I know how critical this has been. Yeah, so now hopefully that bridge just gets fixed. That, that would be right. ideal. Right, and so they, they'll use it on what they, I think the program was uh, uh, meant for is to really get those things that not a state good repair. So, yes, as we go through, we'll try to, you know, right-size that I think is the right term. Okay, I, I just imagine that there are a lot of jurisdictions who are going to see this mm -hmm. and get a little nervous about what this means for them. So as long as we can explain how this money will still get to those cities who have hundreds yeah. of bridges. So hopefully they don't have to worry about fixing the bridge anymore. It's fixed. Yeah, and we take credit for that. To your, your that point, that's the whole purpose of the state of good repair. That's the whole purpose. Is, that's what we went out and looked. I can't tell you how many small bridges. <laughs> the only thing they had was revenue sharing. I mean, what was one out in South when they were so proud they saved up, I don't know, eight, nine years to get a $16 million bridge. The project probably grew from Eight sixteen million while they were saving up, but yeah, you know, that 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 not the, that should have been fixed. That, so it should be a very big benefit for them. Great. Thank you. As far as the uh, the construction program, uh, the the CTD formula as it was put in place, um, as you see here, will will continue to be utilized through 2020. Uh, the, what we have done, as you know, we, 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 the, the board has the ability to hold, uh, to provide up to $500 million in, through the CTV formula. Um, what we have done, kind of again, transitional as we're working towards HB2 and 1887, is we have we've tr tried to hold the CTV formula amounts at, at the same place they were in the revised program from last November. Um, we did. We did because of funding availabilities. Um, we, we would have suffered a loss in 16 if we hadn't. Um, uh, if, excuse me, in 17, um, based on revenue availability. So we have were able to fill that hole in, in 16 to offset 17. Uh, as, as I mentioned earlier, uh, HB 1887 takes takes and goes fully into effect in 2021. 
funding the State of Good Repair, the Our Priority Projects Program, and the Highway Construction District Grant Program. And in the interim, between now and 2021, monies that are not programmed to projects are to be available for a 50-50 distribution to the High Priority Program and to the Construction District Grant Program. And that's something we will have to work through as we work through the program and as we, as we address projects that are currently underway, etc. And I'll speak to that just a little bit more lately, later. I'm not going to go through the details of, of these programs, but as you know, 45% of the funding is to go to State of Good Repair, and then the remaining is distributed 27.5% to the High Priority Projects Program and to 27.5% to the Highway Construction District Grant Programs. Again, both of those the projects will be selected through, an HB, through the HB2 prioritization process, first on a statewide basis, the, the grant, district grant program on a district basis. Uh, another chart with a lot of numbers, and I'm not going to walk through it, but basically what we just showed here is um, if you look at the, the, the total construction pool, uh, the portion that is in what we call the special programs, the things that are funded before you get to the formula, um, the Garvey program, the amounts that are in that CTB formula distribution, you'll see notice the bold line, the $412 million is as high as it goes, so we never reach um, $500 the amount of, of new monies that would be available for the 50-50 the distribution, um, as, as well as the, what the <coughs> increase is from state of good repair, that piece that you heard Mr. Pitter speak, speak of, and, the, and then the amount that's projected in 2021 to be available for the new form of distribution. You'll also note under on the top three categories, I've enumerated the, uh, the amount that is, is, is believed to be exempt from HB2 based on the projects as funded in, in the November program. So that's what we're reflecting there. The, the, two, the three lines noted as reserved for HB2 are the $416 million that we showed you last November. So obviously this is a transition, guys, as we're going from the old formula into the uh, th this is a, an indicative illustration of what 2020, 2021 will look like. Um, you see here the $657 million, how it would dis be distributed to the three programs, and um, an, an indicative look of what the distributions to um, the districts for state of good repair and to the districts for the grant program. Um, important to note that the percentages you see here are based on what we knew today. And as we get closer to 2021, obviously the variables will change and the numbers will be updated accordingly. Uh, just very briefly, I want to speak to the actual program development. Um, over the last several years, we've had a fairly static list of priorities that we've used. Uh, I think you're probably very familiar with, with these. What we wanted to do, or looking to do this time, because of this transitional period and transitional nature of this program is to kind of refine the, the, what we're doing. Uh, you know, we're, we're really focusing on, on the transition to HB2, not looking to add new projects that would be subject to prioritization. Um, we, we are following the, the CTB formula through 2020, uh, again, that had it, its, its purpose. Again, a lot of it was for payments and bridges. We have to make sure we keep our underway projects funded and moving forward. We've got some APD funds still in place to support the work already underway. 
uh, in that corner of Hue and, and other places out in the Appalachian um, area. Um, we, we talked about the, the inactive, redirecting the inactive balances that may be um, available on projects, unneeded projects, to be able to uh, minimize any kind of impacts upon the, the 416 that we set aside for HB2. And as always, we are trying to make sure we fully uh, utilize our, our federal funds. So again, just you know, the, the CTV formula remains the same. And actually, when I say the same, it's about a million dollars off when you look at it across the six years. Um, we do look to delay project schedules or use any available um, funds to address any kind of cost estimate increases. And uh, we are looking, looking to support the early implementation of the construction district grant program and the high priority program um, by taking these monies that are, are not programmed to projects and being able to, to distribute them to the two programs, which thus then be distributed through the prioritization process. Uh, we, we already talked through the formula that will be used in 2021. Uh, we are setting those dollars aside in the program. Obviously, at this point, we, we haven't uh, initiated the HPT prioritization and, uh, and are not in a position to be selecting projects, but we'll be identifying the money that would be available to, to the area. Mr. What percentage of our construction funds are going to be to the HP2 process? It depends on year. The question, what percentage of our funds? Uh, well, uh, other than the ones, when we get fully out there, uh, other than those special projects, all of them are. In other words, the special uh, things that are enumerated. Yeah, the state of good repair, 45% to state of good repair, obviously, is outside of, of HB2. It'll have its own prioritization right. methodology. But mo for the most part, once you get set aside the, so as the regional monies and things that we don't control, um, the intent is for it to be um, distributed through HB2 process. Nick, do you know? Or do you have? Yeah. So, Mr. Malcolm, it's about more than the areas that were up through the house building process. Yeah. That year, it's about $1.2 billion that's available for construction. But as the Secretary and Mr. Ross were saying, that $400 million is really the flexible money. Right. The rest of that money is either dedicated for very specific purposes by the federal program, is used for crossover, or is used to fund the replacement of bridges or construction efficient pavement. So it's a third of the overall money, but it's basically 100% of the flexible money. And that'll grow as okay. we go through and transition out. And hopefully revenues go up. Thank you, John. And I guess I'm going to close out the presentation just briefly talk about uh, some of the highlights for this year's six-year improvement program that we'll be bringing back to you all in uh, April. And I guess I've broken this once again down by transit and rail. And so just started with just showing the, the revenues uh, for the next six years and have them broken down by the programs uh, uh, for the transit side. and. Uh, the two things, I'm, I'm not going to go much detail here, but the two things I will point out is, as I mentioned earlier, you'll see the increase in 17 in our special programs uh, due to the 1887. We do think that's important and much needed. 
Um, and then also the other category, because there's always, you know, somebody puts an other category out there, people want to know what that is. Um, so other is, uh, certain items are required by the Appropriation Act by the General Assembly uh, to be taken off the top of our funding. Um, and one of those is we have a paratransit program for a million and a half dollars a year. Uh, we also have to fund uh, the new transit service uh, in the I-95 uh, corridor due to the hot lanes construction. We have to fund that off the top. And then additionally, uh, the way DRPT pays for its administration and project management is we take a percentage of the revenues uh, off the top. And it's, it's legislatively uh, uh, ceiling of 3.5%. Um, so that, those are the numbers that are in that other category. Let me point out one thing, because it came up earlier with the 40 million transfer. I want you to see there's not any huge increase in the total going to transit. We're plugging a hole. Right? So I know everybody keeps saying we're moving all these money. All we're doing is plugging a hole. Partially. No, sort of <laughs> yeah. Yeah, partially. partially. I mean, we've got a lot more to do. But my point is here is that uh, this whole thing came because we didn't pass marketplace fairness equity. That was projected to put to fill this hole. It didn't happen. There was a reversion uh, provision in the uh, the statewide to increase the gas tax from 3.5 to 5.1 percent. Every other program got funded because it runs through, you know, other formulas. Got a windfall. Transit. All we did was take the windfall and put it over to transit. In other words, in absolute dollars. Every program goes up each year. So this is not like we're taking money from another program and people keep, I know they don't mean to, I just want to point out this is not an increase in transit. It, what this doesn't reflect also, and um, Steve will talk a little bit about matching rates, but because we actually match local funds, or we, match, we uh, provide matching dollars to local transit agencies, this does not reflect all of the local money that goes into transit and transit programs. Um, I mean, we only provide a small, you know, a, if I had to guess, I don't know what it is on an aggregate basis between probably a third and half of, you know, funding for transit needs across the state. So whatever the state doesn't provide has to be made up by local agencies. So. Yeah, and we haven't talked about, we, we have a significant clip coming in the CPR bonds. I mean, you know, they mentioned it, but I mean, I just want people to understand this was not, you know, some big transfer of money to transit. It was only trying to keep whole the programs we have and the start offsetting between this and the CPR bonds, we have a very significant issue. So. I appreciate you making that point. And, and to Director Mitchell's point, I guess just on this chart, on the top line, the biggest you know, line on, on the uh, chart, we're providing about 20% of the total. So the $1.1 billion over six years is 20% of what the actual total is. So it's what seven, six, seven billion total when you add in, you know, the, the local share or the federal share that the locals are going and getting. And I just wanted to touch on a few highlights. Uh, and we've been through this uh, over the past couple years where we implemented, uh, we got the new funding in 2313. We implemented a performance metric approach to allocating our funding or at least a portion of our operating funding. Um, so a portion is still done the traditional 
methodology, which is based on your total expenses compared to everybody's added together. And then there is a portion, um, and that, that amount is set. It, it doesn't change. It's going to be that amount. Um, and as revenues grow over time, hopefully, um, well, the performance-based formula will get more and more funding running through it, and it uses those three metrics that you as the board have approved in the past. And as John mentioned, we also uh, do everything we can to maximize, uh, get as much federal funding as we can, and then to maximize the use of that funding. Also on the capital side, and once again through that uh, effort from the 2013 uh, additional funding, um, we were required to put, put in place a, a prioritization process in our capital allocation uh, uh, process. And it, it basically it tries to prioritize what we would like our partner, our, you know, our transit partners to put their investment dollars into. So we give a higher percentage uh, for rolling stock um, because obviously that's the key asset in transit. And so we'd like for people to keep their rolling stock uh, not aging and, and breaking down on the road, so we give a higher percentage. And those are the tiers that uh, back uh, two years ago, we all approved these three tiers. And I think uh, coming up in every three years or so, we still have the, uh, the subcommittee, the Transit uh, Service Delivery Advisory Committee. Um, so there will be a review done coming up in a year or a year and a half. I'm not sure the exact timing where potential recommendations could be made to change these tiers. I think the point here too, often here that we don't prioritize transit, that's not a true statement. We do, transit capital. Everybody always hear, well, why don't you do, we do. It's just a different way because of the nature of what we're doing, the reimbursement. I want to make it clear, we do every capital thing now with House Bill 2 and 87, and what we did in TISDAC before on transit, everything is prioritized before it's reimbursed or funded. It's just a different way we do it under transit. And with that, this next slide is our uh, rail program for the next six years. Um, and I'm not going to go into the detail except once again on the other, that is the uh, management. In this case, it's just the DRPT uh, management administration cost. Mr. Chairman, can I ask a yes. question? On, the, on this slide, this, this, is this the money we're spending to help freight rail? It's, it, well, when you go down this slide, I guess it's kind of broken up by the different programs. So the freight rail program, yes, is the top line, the rail enhancement line. The rail enhancement money is the freight rail? Rail preservation also goes and to freight, freight rail. IPROC is the, um, apologize the acronym, that's the passenger rail. Okay. So that's what's funding um, major passenger rail projects like Toronto. Well, and I'll add all our passenger rail projects are on freight rail lines, so generally those are also benefiting freight rails also. Yeah. But is, is that, is the, are the freight rail, are the improvements to the tracks to that, were, that the freight railroads required in order to get an agreement with Amtrak. Does that money come out of IPROC or out of rail enhancement? Um, most of it's coming out of IPRC, but when we did the Norfolk extension, there was Appropriation Act language to the IPROC didn't exist. Yeah, IPROC didn't exist. It allowed us to take it out of the rail enhancement. So, but in the future, it's going to be that way. That's what we would anticipate. Gotcha. Yeah. Because there wasn't a fund before. 
And on the rail side, uh, basically, uh, you know, the rail allocations are a discretionary-based program. Um, there's a lot, you know, I'm not going to go into all the details, there's a lot more to it, but at a high level, it's discretionary based on the department's work and recommendations to y'all and y'all's decisions. Um, and some of the highlights uh, for the current year, we want to continue to develop uh, the passenger projects in key quarters. And uh, obviously, we want to continue supporting our short line program, that last mile program. And then, as I mentioned earlier, we're uh, due to uh, General Assembly uh, language in the, in the back of both 1887 and also in the Appropriation Act. Uh, we're doing a review of our rail programs currently. And just uh, a few other items um, for y'all to be thinking about uh, when we bring you the uh, draft program. We are this year, in the past we have shown some needs data for our transit capital for the future. This year we're actually going to go ahead and allocate funding to those projects for those five out years. So that's a change. Um, we're also going to um, segregate out um, those capital projects, whether they're state of good repair projects or their expansion, because I think when we talk about um, we talk about the amount of funding and bond cliff, etc. I think a lot of people don't realize most of our core transit capital funding goes to essentially state of good repair projects. We're not, as Director Mitchell mentioned earlier, we really don't have the funds in that line to fund a Dulles Metrorail project or a Virginia Beach Light Rail extension. The next point here is, and we talked about this back uh, September, October, November, we had a, uh, a loss from 2014 of about $12 million. And uh, we dealt with that loss uh, by allowing the operating funding to stay the same level it was in the year we're currently in. But obviously now we have to deal with it in this coming secure program. Uh, fortunately, revenues are up. Um, the projections are up. So with those increases in revenue projections, uh, we're only going to be down about 3% year over year, um, 15 to the 16 program we're putting together. So we have to think about what do we want to do with that? Do we want to use transit reserves and deobligated balances to make up that 3%? Do we want to live with the 3% decline? Because we've been talking about it and we've warned that this was coming, so that's a decision you all will have to make and we'll come back with the director making a recommendation. And then finally, obviously, our, our admin level, the 3.5% off the top. And these last two slides are really just a, uh, a schedule um, for you know, putting together the six-year program, and I think the highlights are really in April. We're coming back with the draft program. Then we'll have our hearings uh, throughout May, and then um, in June, obviously, come back with uh, budgets and final secure plan for y'all's approval. With that, I'll gladly entertain any questions. Just one more thing I want to add, and this refers back to the slides that Steve had about the funding allocation formulas and the, the priority um, prioritization that we do on the capital program. Many of you um, were not here when the previous, the CTB in 2012, um, approved this distribution formula. Um, there were some concerns among many of the stakeholders around the state about winners and losers. So the CTB at the time asked us to let a year go by, 
then do a year, do a review of our FY15 allocations to see if there were any um, disproportionate impacts on providers in one part of the state versus another part of the state. So we are finishing up that review right now. Um, we're going to bring it back to this Transit <coughs> Service Delivery Advisory Committee and in um, late April, and my intent is to bring, depending on what the TISDAC recommends, my intent is to bring that, the findings of that analysis back to you all in May, so that if there are any changes that we need to fold into our six-year plan, we can do that at that time. Um, so I just wanted to, while we're all talking about the allocation formulas, let you know that, because many of you, a few of you were here then, but not all of you were. Secretary, that's yes, the uh, head of the committee that, that Mr. Cole set on. Yes. Yes, it is. Any other questions for uh, Mr. Pitter or Mr. Lawson? Uh, Mr. Whitworth. Uh, Mr. Secretary, just so that I understand, can we go back a minute to slide 44? And maybe that's, to me, kind of most critical slide of understanding this thing is um, is my understanding that uh, under the district grant program then each of those projects that, 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 that each of the districts would have those projects will still go through an HB2 pr process at the district level that's but they will be competing against only those projects that are in that district that's is that correct, correct? Yes, at the district grant level, that's correct. Uh, and under uh, the, one of the earlier slides showed that um, up to $25 million uh, would be allocated for unpaved roads. Is that money part of the dollars that are shown there? No, that's in state. It is. It is. But, I mean, that's our decision. That's if we don't think VDOT is making their progress, we're allowed to do that. This board would have to vote. Yeah, I think the, the question on the unpaved road is, is it a, a corporate decision or is it a district by district decision? In other words, can one district say I want to allocate to unpaved and another not? And I don't know that. I, I think we worked about, I think it'll be our decision to grant that. You know, at a state, at a, yeah. at a statewide level. State. And then we would push it out through the, through the unpaved road formula. Yeah, I think that's correct. Now, on, on the other side, on the uh, state of, of good repair, those percentages and dollars uh, were based upon existing situations. Is that correct? With a floor and a maximum. Uh, no more than 17 and a half percent, I think, is a, a maximum, right. and a, what is it, five and a half percent floor? Yeah. And that was based on working with VDOT and what they were doing. And there is one caveat to that this board has a discretion. If a major bridge falls down uh, and we need to do something or if there's some major catastrophe, you have the discretion to override that uh, to take care of that, but only in extreme emergencies. But that's the state of repairs today as we see it, as we evaluate it. It evolves every, as we evaluate it each year. That's so right. In, in 2021, that could be entirely different. Yes, that's correct. Right. Based on their recommendation. And once again, is each district uh, competing within itself for those dollars? It's not that, competing, well, it's based on the recommendation of VDOT staff in the district with the district. The prioritization is competing. That's what I meant. In, within its own, one project over another, 
Mr. Chairman? Yeah. If I may, Mr. Chairman, Mr. Whitworth, to your point, the dollars you see there for the State of Good Repair Program are dollars that must be used within that district. What the Chairman was talking about is there are other requirements in House Bill 1887, and after my presentation today, I think we're going to walk through some of the other nuances within this legislation. This board is charged with developing a priority ranking system that then the com commissioner is going to be using to help identify projects within each of these districts based on the funds that are provided to each district to fix some of these bridges as well as the primary and interstate pavements. And so you will have a hand in shaping that policy and the commission will be That's not a House Bill 2 competition. That is an asset management provision that we'll be working with VDOT on. Mr. Chairman? Wait, did you, does that answer your question? Uh, well, I'm not sure I understood that last part. Well, so any of the projects will have to go prioritization, right? State of good repair is not a House Bill 2. Okay. It is an asset management program, which they do very well going out and telling us which are the bad projects. Thank you, Court. Okay. Mr. Rosen's comment about these bridges out there, uh, those, whether no matter who owns it, they get fixed now. So it's not House Bill 2, it's VDOT through its asset management, whatever that determines it to be, or bridge maybe, they say this is the most significant asset that needs to be taken care of. I see, the, I see. The district is a House Bill 2, the district grant is a House Bill 2. Okay, I got you. I, I, this kind of, I think, helps frame right, the whole right. pro program to me. Right, so, so what happens is the courts his issue is that no more are they saving up. That bridge is determined to be bad, and that's the worst one in the district. Uh, BDOT and the district working together, that's what gets funded. Now, if the district gets grants and there's competing projects, it goes through House Bill 2 in their district. It comes to us, and the, the CTB determines in that district what gets funded. Gotcha. That state of repair was what Garrett spoke of last month, right? That's correct. That's why we're because you saw it's going this way. We want to bend that curve back up in each district. And every district has on the floor. There was a big discussion on the floor of the house that, uh, and it was uh, Doug Watts. Uh, you know, we we really, if we wanted to, could take every bit of our money and put state of good repair. We've got a lot to catch up with. But we thought this was the right amount. 45% was negotiated, was the right amount to bend that curve up because we do have growth in the system, as Mr. Kilpatrick has pointed out, and that's through the House Bill 2. But that's right. That, that's what it was meant to do, is to target that state of good repair. So, so, so these percentages tell you in, in a picture that where one percentage is higher than the other, there is more disrepair that needs attention right now. That, that's, that, that, that's right. That could change over time. That could change over time. I frankly expect it to change over time because we are, uh, our facilities are deteriorating, but we're also working to improve them. And, uh, you know, some of these districts are, are uh, uh, we, we frankly expect them to trend upward over the next six years. And so the needs in a particular district may go down. But remember, the law has a floor and a minimum. Gotcha. So it's going to change, but they're not, nobody's going to double for it. Man, I'm sorry to hold you up. That's all right. Mr. Chairman, I, no, I think that's really, really good, good questions. And I think one thing we need to point out here is the 40-30-30 formula or whatever it is is gone. That's right. So the, the, the cities are, not, are no longer going to get money for construction. They're going to be in a pot with everybody in the district 
under the district grant program to compete. That's correct. Cities and towns. Cities and towns. Cities and towns. The whole district. Exactly. But before, cities got a certain amount of money that they could spend on construction. Counties were... were uh, uh, got a certain amount also. Yeah. Right. But, but, but they did that in consultation with VDOT because VDOT administered those construction funds, right? No, they went through the... Well, okay. The, the, All right. The, sec the secondary funds well, that went to the counties, the, the, the way that it worked, the resident engineer worked with the board, but the board set the county board right. set the priorities. I'm not aware of a circumstance in recent history where the board, the county board went this way and the resident engineer went that exactly. way. It was a, it was agreed. That, that's my, that's my point. That's right. but, but and, and we say to good repair, we would expect a whole lot of cooperation. Well, both of a lot of cooperation between the two in developing the. Market. Once the house bill two criteria are calculated for the district grant program, and 9.6 percent of that money goes to Salem, and that number is calculated, who makes the decision? Because House Bill Two is not. It's not. This board still, still makes that decision. decision. They come to recommendations from the district. Got it. But the board, we don't advocate your decision. All right. So we. But we, it is a district-wide competition. Got it. So we will. This board will spend under these categories. The high priority projects will compete on a statewide basis, and this board will make a determination and use the House Bill Two score to help make that. That's correct. Under the Highway District Construction Program, the same thing, except there's a limited amount for each district. And they're competing only against, against those themselves. in each district. And the good repair is a formula set up based on what the state of good repair happens to be in that district and will fluctuate. That's right. Last question. Um, how were the percentages for the district grant program set? Was that set in legislation? It was set in legislation. I thought it was. Yes. Okay. And well, Mr. Mr. So, Donahue, Mr. Chairman, Mr. Fralin, the way the percentages that were determined for the distribution of the district grant program is those are based on the existing or old formulas for the primary, secondary, gotcha. and urban formulas. So, if that formula existed today, on aggregate, the Bristol district would have received 7% of the total funding running through the old 40-30-30. And so what we tried to do was make sure with what was going back to the district, everyone was held harmless. Now, on a as lane basis. miles are added, that's a self-adjusting formula over time, just I, like the old 40-30-30. Right. And as lane miles are added, and as particularly as lane miles are added in Northern Virginia and Hampton Roads because they're going to have more money to spend, it's going to change this number. That is correct. That's correct. A population also A changes population the changes it too. It's a self Right, I get it. I get it. Got it. I understand. Thank you very much. It's very helpful. Mr. Chairman? I'll come, yeah. Mr. Well, come back to you. While we're on this, the high priority projects, that is, that is really a decision of this board without really recommendations from the, the district as to what is a high priority project. Statewide implications, corridors, statewide significance, etc. Yes, I mean, you can still get recommendations from. That's the part of this is a a a project may be chosen to compete at its district and also at the statewide level. But it is, I think you're right. Generally, I think that's what the monies would be used for. 
But there is no restriction against putting the project in. I want to compete against statewide funds too. Mm -hmm. In that regard. Yeah. Well, that's uh, our discretion. That's yeah, that's this is that. this board's discretion. Accept that argument. Yeah. Right. And Mr. Chairman, I would say there's discretion at the high priority as to whether or not we follow some of the things we've talked about previously in House Bill 2 where we would solicit from the MPOs and the local governments. Um, and the board has the discretion to choose to do that under high priority or to choose other courses. Under the Construction District Grant Program, because that kind of is seen as replacing the secondary and urban funds, the board is required by law to take projects only from the local governments within that district that are nominated and supported within that area. So they are recommended from the district level. It, it is a grant program with the okay. local governments. We are not, we're not putting the projects in. We are, it's not left up to us. It's got to be supported locally or statewide. Somebody put it in. We don't get, now we may reserve the right to put in one if we think there's a glaring need that's missed. But the whole intent is they are developed from the ground up. Well, what's wrong? seven more questions. Well, no, how? Okay. Yeah. This is his presentation, by the way, he's going to go through. I understand. I understand the House Bill, too. But, but, but the question is, say uh, a locality thinks that this big road uh, is, is really important. And they say, we want to put our district grant program in there and we want some of the money to come from the statewide program right and that's okay sure why not because well, that it's going to be scored one's going to compete against districts in its own district and one's going to be across the state I, I, I would also say that one of the things that i'm going to talk about in today's presentation right, i say talk about is we have a process now that you still would like to have modifications about how we score a project and create a scored list of projects for the board to evaluate. What we're going to have to work on in the coming months is how do we go from a list of 50 projects with a number next to them to a list of projects you're funding. Right. And I think there's a lot of things that we need to discuss and I think House Bill 1887 has some implications into that, um, but that is something that staff don't have recommendations yet for the board on but know that we need to come to the board with in the coming months to really facilitate this type of discussion as to how do, program, how do the two programs work in tandem, how do they work with the other programs, and how are we really going to help you all as staff move from that list of evaluated projects into potential programs that could be funded. Right, forward. and we're going to have a discussion about this, but what, what this could turn into is a leverage. Okay. It could. I, Where we I say, agree. I hope it put does. some of your state money in here, some of your money, and then maybe we'll do it. Let's take your discussion. Well, people on have different amounts of that. We'll take 81. But if you decided to take every bit of state of, uh, of the district money on 81 and say we want to put it on that and also compete at the state, what would we care if they did that? Well, we wouldn't. But what, what I would care about is to say, hey, you want an 81 project? Put some of your money on. Well, that's 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 a different issue, and, and it may be the same issue we talk to the regions about, because you get back to scoring. Okay, good talk. Yeah, yeah. Right. So. Uh, mine is not HB two, but on the state of good repair, Mr. Roberts, I think that was really a very good clarifying question that you asked. So in Bristol, thirty-four million dollars. You've identified projects within the Bristol district that for state of good repair. We already know that's $34 million. We know they need more than $34 million right. with the money. But I'm saying you've identified those projects. We no. haven't actually no. identified okay. the project. It's based on the the uh, the percent of deficient bridges and deficient pavements. 
It's aggregated. We haven't identified the specific projects at this time. But you have an idea of where the deficient assets are. In the two areas of pavements and bridges, we know the percent and we frankly know the location. I know the location today of deficient pavements. Six years from now, my list will be completely different because over that period of time, I'll be repaving and things will deteriorate. So when you see those percentages, don't think of them in terms of we've got projects identified. We have at the programmatic level, these are the general areas. I can be confident in telling you those numbers in 2021 and those percentages will not be the same. Because what will happen over time is we'll be improving. You're assuming you don't do it evenly. I think he's right, but my point is that we shouldn't prejudge. But they probably will. It really depends. We'll know if we're bending that, what Mr. Rogozinski put out. I think you're right. I think they will. But we could spend every dollar for the next 10 years in this state on good repair. Exactly. My point is that there's plenty of projects. Absolutely. We're doing everything we can to drive the percentage of deficient pavement and deficient bridges and pavement. We want to drive them down, which if we're doing them exactly equally with those numbers set the same, the answer is probably so. The reality of how it works doesn't work that way. So that was really my question. To come up with the $34 million for Bristol, how did you do that? Just knowing that you have a sense of, you know where all the deficient projects are in Virginia, where our priorities should be. But we haven't developed the exact, we haven't set those priorities yet. This is a future looking snapshot, which is a bit challenging to do because, again, you're taking a picture six years out of where we think the percentage would be. In the broader scope of this, though, there was the feeling that the only money that was definitely going to come back to your district was the grant money. Well, this is actually showing, right, because we were saying you can compete in every bucket with this new formula in 1887. And so it's demonstrating that within every district. But if you look at just numerically, there's only three districts that could double. It's 17 and a half percent. There's only three districts that get less. My point is, Mr. Wentworth, it's going to change, but it's not going to be all of a sudden all going one way or the other. You're going to see a percentage here and a percentage there, but it's not going to be this because you're limited by a floor and a maximum. So that's really where I was getting to. So it can't be to the extent all of a sudden one area is going to be getting all the money instead of the repair. And the point is, maybe this board 10 or 12 years from now, we've done such a good job that maybe we reduce the amount of money that goes in the state of good repair. 
But that's a long ways out in the future based on where we've been. Any other? We're going to go through, I think, to be some. <laughs> he's, he's, he's got some more questions, I know. He I'm, good. 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 Yeah, I'm good. So, uh, we're going to do House Bill 2. Now, the food is here. Um, we have. When we do Broad Street BRT, you want to do that? Or? No, I no? just said that's the next that's one. Next. How long do you think that'll take? Do you have an idea? 10 minutes? Okay, all right. Well, why don't we do that? And then that way we can break, and then we can have House Bill 2 after a while. Full stomach. Yeah, full stomach. <laughs> and you'll have to give uh, uh, Charlie and, and myself and Jennifer and Nick, we, we've all, uh, we've been living this a while, so yeah. forgive us if we uh, sort of keep, because uh, that's not the intention. But, uh, uh, Carol, did, did this last presentation for John, did, did, that was not in the... I understand. So can you can you email it out to everybody though, please? Okay. So, Ms. Emmons, why don't we go through this? Okay. And I understand they have a name for this now. Uh, yeah. While we're getting that set up, I'll just mention that um, the GRTC has actually their board has selected a name for the project. I think it's Pulse. BRT Pulse. Thank you. Yeah. Pulse. They'll be uh, um, releasing more information about that. Or GRTC. GRTC. Yes. The Pulse. Yes. That was. Um, just announced, I think, yesterday. Um, thank you, Mr. Chairman, members of the board. We really appreciate having this opportunity to talk with you this morning about the Broad Street BRT project. Um, this project really has is, is one that will be probably Richmond's primary project over the next many years. It's something that's going to be transformational for the Richmond region. Um, Bus Rapid Transit is, will integrate the systems of facilities, equipment, services, and amenities that improve the speed, reliability, and identity of bus transit. However, and I think what's worth noting for you all, is it's going to maximize the capacity of the existing rights of way that we've been investing in right here in Richmond. We did receive a categorical exclusion from the Federal Transit Administration, so we will not be going outside of the existing right of way. So we really are maximizing um, the rights of way within um, within Broad Street and onto Main Street. Um, the project partners, and really this has been a very collaborative effort over the last many years um, between the Department of Rail and Public Transportation, the City of Richmond, Henrico County, the Federal Transit Administration, and GRTC to advance this project. Um, what's worth noting here, and as Director Mitchell mentioned earlier, um, we were seeking the small start funding from the Federal Transit Administration, which is their, um, their capital program for advancing um, transit projects. And um, as she mentioned, it is a very competitive uh, pot of money, and you compete for those, those funds um, with projects across the, 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 the United States. Um, however, we were in a position, in a really good position, um, when the TIGER program uh, came out earlier last year, um, that allowed for $600 million worth of funding. They received, I don't know, billions of dollars worth of, worth of requests. Um, this project, thanks to this administration, this was the uh, governor's number one project, which provided, which allowed us to go and, and, um, and we were able to, to get 50% of the funding, which was $24.9 million, um, to fully fund this project. 
DRPT we're putting in 34% of the funding. Uh, the City of Richmond will put in 15% and Henrico County will be putting in 1%. Uh, we will be working with VDOT um, and they will be doing the permitting. And uh, GRTC will be the owner and operator of the, of the system and they are advancing the project through project development and uh, construction. We do have um, a very robust stakeholder and public involvement program. We have a policy advisory committee con that's comprised of the directors and administrators um, from the localities. We have the technical advisory committee, which is the, the engineers and the, the planners that um, attend those meetings. And then we have a very robust community involvement as well. Um, because we've, you know, we want to make sure that, that this, this service is not only um, maximizing the investments that we're making, but it's going to be a, a huge benefit to the, to the community. We've already had two public meetings that were held in January, and there will be public uh, meetings that are held throughout the, the project through construction. This is a, 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 a map of the alignment. It's a 7.6 mile um, alignment from Willow Lawn to Rockets Landing. We will be having dedicated bus lanes um, from Thompson to Adams that will um, be, be in the median. We'll also be using uh, dedicated lanes on the curb. Um, we'll have five, 14 stations total. There'll be five center stations, um, nine curbside stations, and we'll also be consolidating some of the stations with the local routes to really maximize um, the capacity not only of the street, but also of the, the service that will be feeding into the BRT. Some elements of the BRT, the running way, this is just an illustration of what the, the dedicated guideway will look like in the median. Um, we'll have faster service, the stations will be very robust, um, we'll have uh, nice vehicles, there'll be branding, and of course the technology. Um, as I mentioned, the, the, the stations, they're not just any stations, they're going to be very, uh, you know, very nice stations and actually the, the graphic that you see there on the bottom, that is the station that um, design that, they, that GRTC has selected. Um, it's very nice. It will have um, off-board fare collection. There'll be level boarding. Um, the lighting, there'll be public art amenities that will be able to be um, incorporated into the, into the, the station itself. Um, the BRT vehicles, they'll be low floor, um, they'll be branded uh, so that folks know, hey, this is the BRT, this is the, the Pulse, um, running from Willow Lawn to Rockets Landing, and um, it'll have its own identity, it'll have sliding doors. GRTC has already, it, it is in the midst of converting their fleet to clean natural gas, and these vehicles will also be CNG. The technology, uh, we will have the real-time passenger information, which is very uh, critical to folks. Uh, we'll also have the transit signal priority, and this is something that, it's not like preemption, like what the emergency vehicles have, but it will allow the vehicles, to, the, the BRT vehicles to have priority through the, through the intersection, so it will delay the light um, to a green, on a green signal. It will have the closed uh, circuit TV for security. It'll have emergency phones, and again, as I mentioned, it'll, it'll have the off-board fare collection system, which will provide uh, more efficient service and, and decrease the dwell times at the, at the actual stations. The service plan, they're looking at um, 5.30 to 11.30 p.m. Uh, on weekdays, weekends, from 6 a.m. to 11.30. They're currently working with their board right now um, to possibly extend the evening hours on the weekends to 1 a.m. Um, the, it'll have 10-minute peak and 15-minute off-peak service. It will have an increase, a 65% increase in, in bus service. 
uh, in bus speeds, which again is the um, is a critical element to this to the to the bus rapid transit. The ridership and these are very conservative estimates. Um, Three thousand daily boardings uh, with 500 new daily riders. Uh, this, the fare will stay the same, um, so there will not be a premium charge for this for the service. The benefits of VRT, we did do an economic impact analysis um, for this for this project, and um, it'll increase the bus fees by 65%. It's going to reduce the travel time uh, by up to 40%. Uh, riders who switch to the BRT will save 36 hours per year. Um, the new riders will um, save four. Uh, 400,000 per year in the transportation costs. The total savings for all riders equals 1.5 million per year. Um, the increase in property values 12% or 1.1 billion years over a 20-year um, lifespan, or over a 20-year time period. It will increase the property tax revenues by 4.9 million over the 20-year uh, time frame. Reduce crashes because we're actually going to have the buses in it in a dedicated lane that, that can accommodate the buses, unlike what's out there today, which the buses actually spill over um, the dedicated lane. And there's actually quite a few um, crashes right now or incidents that, that occur because of that. Um, there will be a 406 jobs created during the construction of the, the BRT. Now, with, this, with the project, um, there will be some parking loss, some on-street parking loss. Um, however, there will not be any parking loss between the Fushi and the 4th Street, which is the, really, which is the downtown business area. Actually, we're going to be adding parking back into that area. Um, and likewise, on Main Street between 14th and Rockets, we will not be having um, any parking loss as well. Um, we'll actually be working, um, traveling within the, the mixed, um, mixed traffic. We will be uh, continuing to have the um, the signal priority which will allow us the, the throughput that we need to maintain our travel time. Um, GRTC is working very closely with the City of Richmond and Henrico County um, and the business and as well as with the business owners and the residents along the corridor um, to mitigate the, any kind of parking loss um, and, and they do have some strategies that they're looking at right now um, to hopefully reduce any of that on-street parking loss. However, um, the, the parking on the corridor is represented 9% of the total parking, you know, a lot that's, that's actually available um, adjacent to the, to the corridor. So it's a fairly small amount of, of parking that would be um, removed from, uh, from Broad Street and from uh, as a result of this project. As I mentioned earlier, we have, um, we have 50% of funding coming from the Tiger money. Uh, which is the transportation investment generating economic recovery um, funding. We also have 34% coming from DRPT and then 16% coming from both the city of Richmond and Henrico County. Uh, the major project milestones, so we received the notice um, that we re that of the Tiger Grant Award um, in September of last year. Um, we're currently working to get to 30% design um, by July. And right now, GRTC has um, uh, a request for proposals out to, um, to obtain a construction manager at risk, which will be um, the, the mechanism to actually implement and construct the project. Um, by April of next year, we'll be at 60% design, and then by September we'll be, of next year, we'll be into 90% design and ready to go into construction um, with a projected um, uh, date of 
um, operations beginning in uh, October of 2017. So we're very excited about this. This this project really has been one that um, that has been very collaborative. And it's in again, I think just yesterday we were meeting with Secretary Fox's um, staff um, on the ladders of our of opportunity. They came down very interested in this project to understand, you know, how does how does this help folks to um, you know to improve their quality of life, provide access to jobs, um, and it's it's an exciting it's an exciting project not only for uh, the city of Richmond but you know for the, for the country. Sure. I guess questioning the genesis of this idea on Broad Street. Was a light rail system or trolley system ever considered? And what was the decision making of going sure. to the BRT? Yep. Um, there, there has been um, some consideration for rail and streetcar. Um, however, given the, the characteristics of this particular corridor, the bus rapid transit was, was the best foot forward for this region. It's a very cost um, effective way of providing a premium type of transit service and um, the ridership and the, the densities would, would support a BRT. So it was a really good first step forward for them. Um, one of the things that we've talked about, I know Amy came a few months ago and presented on our multimodal guidelines about, you know, typically when we do a study to alternative to um, uh, evaluate alternative technologies like uh, bus rapid transit or light rail, um, often the decision may lean one way or the other based on population, population density. That's why in Northern Virginia or Hampton Roads you may see places where light rail is often the most appropriate technology. In a place like Richmond, we don't necessarily have the population density here to um, support the kind of ridership and the kind of development patterns that you would get around light rail um, in other places. So they both have maintenance costs, yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, but they, but it is a little bit of a difference. That's why, I mean, we did do some guidelines to look at that. So it's not always a one-size-fits-all uh, approach, or it's not always assumed that if you can't do light rail, you should automatically de default to be like Well, I'm glad you told me that, because I was thinking similarity to Broad Street to Columbia Pike. Mm -hmm. Yes, I figured that's where you were going. Right. No, and that, that came up the other day at the, the Board of Trade, and, and that's, I think, a misconception that we are and light rail are mutually interchangeable. Yeah. They're not. Yeah. Uh, Chairman. Uh, so, anyway, uh, let's see. Where else, Mr. Williams? Having attended a, a couple of the little public hearings and, uh, and spending some time with, with the presenter, and this is one of the most exciting things happened in Richmond for years. It's it's really fits the demographics of, of Richmond so well. If you look at the new people that are moving into Richmond, they're young. They're developing this corridor. It just appears like every project just you know that for the first time in probably 70 years, Richmond's population grew in the last census, and it's mostly these urban dwellers that are are looking to come back into the city. They use the bus system. This project's gonna it's going to be a home run, and it would have been real sexy to have some light rail down through there, but quite frankly, the cost would have been so prohibitive, we would have never gotten anything. And this, I think this BRT is going to work. It's going to work well. If, we, if it ever gets all the way to short pump, it's really going to be something. <laughs> I know the uh, major project milestones, you know, mm -hmm. have the construction manager at risk selected. Is a different construction technique than we may have used in the past? I understand it has some benefits. Uh, 
from an efficiency perspective and perhaps project speed? How and why was it selected? Yeah. Um, well, GRTC, um, you know, this this will be their first time, obviously, implementing something of this nature. So, transferring the risk to um, to a, a party that will be able to, to assume some of that and be able to deliver the project on time, I think was was one of the factors of, of going with this with this particular delivery method. Um, and it's it's a very quick time frame as well. I mean, we're it really is um, it's going to be hopefully running by the October of 2017. So. Does that come with a cost premium over a more traditional design build? Um, I, I would imagine there will there will be a, a, a premium for that. However, we have a we have a fixed budget, and um, you know GRTC is they know that they're not going to be able to um, to go over that budget. So um, whoever they select is going to have to 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 construct the project um, in a manner that's acceptable to us and within our budget. It's good to see innovation in the contract. Yes. Yeah, and, and one thing I do want to clarify, I, think, I know Amy talked about the roles of the different sponsors. In this case, um, GRTC is the project sponsor. They're doing all the procurement for this project. They are the ones managing it. Um, they're using a program manager in addition, to, as an extension of their staff, in addition to bringing on a uh, CMAR contractor. That was a decision that they made based on their risk profile and their experience constructing projects and um, that's what they felt was the most appropriate procurement method for this type of project for them. DRPT's role in this is going to be one of oversight. Um, we're actually going to be staffing up and probably bringing on some additional resources so that we as the state, because we are, as you saw, we're funding a percentage of this project. So if there's any, we do actually bear some cost risk if there is any potential overruns in this project. So. Um, we are going to be taking on a much bigger oversight role than we traditionally do in a lot of projects. So um, that'll be something we're going to be ramping up for over the next month. I mean, it's so exciting to um, hear about this. Um, you mentioned that the total savings to riders is 1.5 million and 400,000 for new riders. Mm -hmm. How did you come up with those numbers? Yeah, those were um, based on the basically there's a cost associated with your time. Mm -hmm. So, um, when we did the economic impact analysis, um, those are some numbers that, that are... Um, is, it, is it a formula that's used? Well, I mean, there's, there's a cost associated with your time, and they were able to say, well, you have this much travel time savings. Like today, there's, you know, it takes you an hour to get through, and there's going to be a travel time savings of, you know, 15 to 20 minutes. So, there's a cost associated with that, and that's how they're able to derive those, those figures. Okay. Any other questions? Certainly. Very exciting project. Okay. It, uh, Thank you. Uh, looking at the completion date, You're cutting it a little close, but uh, <laughs> well, it's still big here. It's, it's already accelerated. <laughs> yeah. Right. That's Thank right. you. So, um, also, uh, Mr. Guy, I would like to make a, a comment about the, the Arlington Street Crew. I'm still waiting on their bus proposal. They were talking. They had it all lined up. That's why I was asking. Yes. Yeah. I hate to see Columbia Pike just forgotten because. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so light rails. That was relevant. They had a they had a better alternative. I'm waiting to see it. Uh, you can encourage them to get to me. I'll we'll be happy to look at. It. So, um, what we'll do is take a uh, a recess. It's about uh, 20 till one. So at 1:15, let's try to be back in here. So we'll go to House Bill two.
Uh, and then uh, a couple other things, and we'll go through the next session. So, we're going to about 115. Right. The basis.
Me too. But I'm, I'm like, I'm supporting Bush. Bush. I'm like, where's my friend? Are you going to support William? Bush. Are you really? Yeah. Best chance of me. Oh, this is a brown year. You put this on your sleeve or something, I guess. Members of the board, I'm here today to give you uh, your latest update on the House Bill 2 implementation process. Before I get started with my presentation, I want to note that each of the board members has a copy of the House Bill 2 policy guide. Um, as we talked about in our previous meetings, staff has spent countless hours putting down the intimate details of exactly how we're proposing this process would work. Uh, this document within the hour will be available at Virginia hb2.org for all the public and others to take a look at and as I've said earlier we're going to leave this document unchanged in between now and the May meeting. We'll be working on revisions based on the public feedback that we get at the spring six-year improvement hearings as well as some of the feedback we've received over the last few weeks but I want to highlight this walks you through the entire process from beginning to end. It tells you exactly how we will analyze a project in the given measure or factor areas and also tells you how we'll translate that into a score that will be available for a project. And so I just wanted to note that uh, each of you should have a copy of this, a uh, hard copy um, at your desk. Um, with that, Mr. Chairman, I just kind of want to remind the board where we are in the House Bill 2 process. Um, and so over the last three weeks, myself and staff have been to all nine districts where we've held uh, regional stakeholder meetings, uh, some of which have gone as long as four and a half hours to walk really through this process and get feedback um, from the local constituents about you know, what they thought was a good idea, what they thought we needed to reconsider, and then just other suggestions on how this process could work better for the area that we're in that day. Today, we're releasing this policy guide to the public for their review and comment for the next two months. Uh, myself and staff are going to be working to take the comments that we receive, uh, as well as the feedback we receive to date, to change and enhance this process over the next two months, and it's our hope to come back to you in May 
with a revised policy guide and also a presentation to really walk through what has changed and then come back to this body in June for your consideration of that process as it was presented to you in May. What's not shown on this slide, but it's something we are doing and is in response to the board's questions at previous meetings, at the April meeting, we hope to bring to you approximately 40 projects um, that have been evaluated using the HP2 process as it's outlined in this policy guide. Um, we're working on that very diligently now. Uh, I want to say that that process is going to be very close to what's called for in this guide. There may be instances where because of just the time constraints and we're evaluating past projects, we don't have all the information we might have had from a project sponsor that we may have had to make some assumptions. But we are going to be able to come back to the board and show you how different types of projects in different parts of the states would be evaluated and would fare under this scoring process. So Mr. Chairman, what I'm going to do today is I'm going to start a little bit with some of the feedback we've heard just kind of generally at the nine district meetings we held. And then what I want to do with the board is walk you through the process that's outlined in this policy guide and where there was stakeholder feedback that we received in the nine district meetings. I'll kind of also highlight that for the board so you can consider those issues as we move forward. So I think far and away the largest issue we heard everywhere we get was, will this, is this fair for urban versus rural? And there was just, there's a lot of consternation uh, in the different communities about whether or not this, and this is also in urban as well as in the rural communities. It's not just in the rural or just in the urban, but everyone wanted to know, will this work for me? Does this, and more importantly, will I be able to compete equally with my peers across the state? There was also concern about whether or not this was overly weighted towards highways, and in other places there were concern about whether or not this was maybe tilted in the direction of transit. One of the other things that we've heard is the board has stressed a strong um, preference to have as few weighting frameworks as possible in our previous discussions. I would say that the feedback we've received from a lot of the stakeholders is they, they'd like additional um, weighting frameworks. Um, some places that they wanted their own and they wanted to be able to create it themselves. I think that would really start to get a little too far a field from you know the, the point of the House Bill 2 evaluation process, but there is just generally consternation about the weighting frameworks and whether or not the ones that exist today are appropriate for a given region or the assignment that we've made, whether or not they like that. So for example, we, there was one district who was in category B and they said, we got to be an A. There's no way that we should not be in category A. And similarly, we just got a letter yesterday from a group in category A that says, please don't do this. We need to be in Category B. And so we're going to be taking all these things into account. We're going to be compiling these comments and bringing them back to you. But that, was, I think, is one of the key. Those are the two issues we heard at every single meeting, which is really, is this the urban versus rural, the highway versus transit, and is the waiting framework I'm in the one I should be in, and can I create a new one? Some of the other just kind of smaller comments really tell me exactly how this is going to work. So when you say person throughput on a corridor or reduce person hours of delay on a corridor, what's your corridor? How are you going to determine exactly how that corridor is defined? And is that going to be the exact same for every single project? And so we're still working on some of those issues, but folks really wanted to make sure they knew exactly how this process was going to play out and that they knew all of kind of the devil in the details, uh, if you will, about each of the different measures and how they would work. And then the last thing, Mr. Chairman, is uh, a little bit to staff's surprise, there was interest expressed by a fair number of areas under 200,000 to have the transportation land use uh, measure or factor area, excuse me, apply um, to different PDCs and MPOs. 
before we get started, I just wanted to remind the board, you know, as we move through this, House Bill 1887, as uh, Mr. Lawson talked about earlier, has been passed by both the House and the Senate. And it, as we think about House Bill 2 moving forward, remember, about 50% of the money is going to be at the statewide level where it's a statewide competition, and the other 50% is going back to the districts where each district will have its own House Bill 2 competition. What you see here is the anticipated annual cycle for House Bill 2, and what we've tried to do is really incorporate the existing six-year program cycle and process and modify that to make it work with the House Bill 2 uh, process. So as you look up here, you'll see kind of, let's start with June. Um, let's move from there, and assuming the board acts in the affirmative in June, <laughs> what will happen after that is VDOT and DRPT staff will be available to assist local governments and regional entities to identify potential projects, help them with uh, schedule, cost, and scope issues so that they can refine and enhance their potential applications. We're going to start accepting applications this August. Uh, that application period will be open until October 1st. At that point, uh, staff will take all the applications uh, in-house. We will screen them, walk them through the process I'm going to talk about here in a little bit, consistent with the law, and then we're going to evaluate each of these projects and then convert the evaluation into a relative score based on the cost and the weighting framework for a given region. Uh, it is our goal to have those scores available for the board in January. Uh, at its January meeting, I do want to just to manage expectations, say this first go around, we might end up being February, just as we work through some of the kinks in the system. But it's our hope to have that then in January. And this goes to some, the next step goes to some of the issues that Mr. Fralin raised during the earlier discussion at the end of Mr. Lawson's presentation. We then are going to have to work through a process where the board takes this list of scored projects, both with the statewide pot of money and each district's pot of money, and we move from that list of evaluated projects into a discrete list that the board wants to consider for funding. And I do think we need to come back to you all with some additional, you know, recommendations and guidance on how that process could work for your feedback and input, but that would take place between February and April. In April, a draft of the program based on House Bill 2 would be released. We would go out in May and do the spring six-year improvement hearings, uh, have a revised draft at the May CTB, and then in June, as you do today, you would consider the six-year improvement program. And so we really, again, try to take, uh, just kind of piggyback on the existing six-year improvement program process. So just walking through how this would work and how the process is laid out, I want to go through several different things that are kind of on the front end of how do you get a project in, who can submit it, and some of the feedback that we've received on that. So this slide here walks through the different types of entities that would be eligible to submit projects and talks about the types of projects that they could submit. Uh, one of the things I want to talk about is this does vary from the previous recommendation that staff made to the board. Um, in our earlier recommendation, we had said that MPOs and PDCs would be the only people eligible to submit projects on corridors of statewide significance. We heard very loud and clear from the local um, government community almost immediately that they had significant concerns about that and they wanted to be able to have a, an avenue to submit projects as well for those corridors of statewide significance, uh, particularly in a lot of areas where they see that corridor as kind of both their main street as well as their entry and exit point to a region. And so what we're proposing is that an MPO and a PDC would be able to submit a project that meets a need on a corridor of statewide significance 
or within a, a regional network or kind of metro area. Remember, there's 14 of those in the Commonwealth. A local government would be able to submit a project that addresses a corridor statewide significance, but only with the concurrence of the applicable MPO or PDC. And then they would be able to submit projects on a regional network or one that helps uh, promote growth within an urban development area or locally designated growth area. And then we are proposing that transit agencies would be able to submit projects for quarters of statewide significance and regional networks, but again, only with the support of either the MPO, PDC, or local government there. Um, the reason regional entities and the transit agencies cannot submit projects for the urban development areas is the high priority project program is not intended to support those locally designated growth areas. It's intended to focus on the corridors of statewide significance and the uh, <coughs> metro areas or regional networks. And then under the district grant program, the law states that only a local government can apply. And so our previous recommendations were in effect superseded by the legislation that the General Assembly has passed. So once an eligible entity sends in an application, what staff are going to do with that is we're going to take so that application. Back to Mr. Crowley's question earlier. So, so if a locality wanted to submit something uh, that uh, uh, to the statewide network, they they would have to get concurrence with the MPO that they're in. That's and so that that's going to limit some of the you know where you put it and what you don't because we're looking for the the, uh, the MPO to tell us that yes, it really has statewide significance. See, I'm saying, oh, we're so it's not as quite as wide open as, as you know, just anybody can just pick a pot. Let me ask a question on that. Just, just, yeah. I'm assuming this is true, and I may not, I shouldn't do this. We can submit projects. Uh, we or have do not, we have to go to the MPO and say, hey, we want you to submit this project? Yes, we we may. We think we generally said, and we can decide. The, the, the intent is for us not to submit projects and then approve them. In other words, we are the judge. Well, not, not any one of us can approve a project. I understand, but the intent was that we heard loud and clear that, that, that the, the project should be developed and we judge it. And, uh, so who's going to present projects of statewide significance? Well, I think you're going to have MPOs that, uh, and that, that do that just the way they do now, the, the regions and stuff. That's where they mostly come from now. We said we would reserve, what, one or two? This previous staff recommendation is that for the high priority projects kind of concept that the board would reserve the right to submit one or two projects. Uh, staff talked with a lot of folks across the state about switching to this evaluation process. They, they thought it would be appropriate to have locals and staff concurred with this and regional entities submit the projects and then a different entity who didn't nominate projects would be the one who evaluates and selects them. Um, some folks saw if the board put in all the projects that would be evaluated and the locals got to put in the projects that they didn't see what the effort would be with because if you put in all the projects you wanted, you probably weren't going to fund theirs anyway. Right. Yeah, so that means that, you could work with your localities and your regional MPO if you wanted one submitted. How, but, but for a true project of statewide significance, in other words, this is going to apply across several transportation districts. Say you want to build, say, say we, say Congress comes to their census and we get enough money, we start building, we start building roads, seriously building roads again. Okay, so if if there is a planned uh, interstate that we want to build, say between Roanoke and Greensboro, 
Okay. I got to go to the MPO and say, hey, we're going to do that or not? We, we have not said that. And I said on an exception basis, I think is, like I said, I've always said this doesn't make us give up our brain. But on an exception basis, I think that's a case we can be made. But it will not be, I do not believe it should be the rule, or neither does the rest of them. We are the ones, since we are prioritizing them and are governing them, we are the ones that are submitting projects. Well, but I, I, just, I just disagree with that. I think on, 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 a, on a statewide significant project that, first of all, if we don't support it, it's not going to get passed anyway. Okay? So it seems to me that on those projects where we can, and maybe we say you've got to have two or three of us together to, do, to put one in the hopper or something, but it seems to me that if, if this isn't the policy board that's going to make decisions about what roads are going to be considered, um, we're just going to do the consideration. I think that's a, I think that's a problem. Well, you have the other side is is that uh, we have projects that have no support. So I think there is a a very uh, if if you have a I kind of think of a time I have a conceptual project that I think ought to get done. Right. You know, um, and I can't get the MPO to think it's worthwhile. I mean, that's the other side of it. MPO's only got a certain amount of money. No, no, no. No, you're talking about for screening. In other words, we're, you know, we're talking about for submitting. We haven't made the funding decision yet. I understand, but yeah. where, where I'm going with this is, I think, unless we, when we get to the funding piece, unless we change what we're doing, we're going to be trying to leverage the state money against the MPO money in, in, in terms of the, the 188 money or whatever, whatever that bill number is. And so we're going to say, we're going to score this differently if you put your money on it. Well, you're making an assumption. And maybe so. That I, I don't know that we've made yet. Okay. I mean, right. I've made that. Right. Right. But right. I, I do think we did reserve, like, at, at, the, at the NBCA. Yeah, we, had, we had about three projects that, that were labeled C, uh, from the CTEB representatives. So I think there's some usefulness to say on an exception basis that... Let me ask one more question. I'll be quiet. Say, uh, say the MPO is Arlington... And Arlington has a seat on MPO. And I pick it on Arlington. And say 66 of the project, Arlington says, we're not supporting that project because we don't want to widen 66. Therefore, you can't get the MPO to recommend it. Well, then we're But that isn't, that it, they don't, the MPO is not one entity. Well, say they got enough votes to, to keep it down, but everybody else in the state thinks it's a good idea. Yeah. Well, the, the, if you don't get it in their long-range plan, we can't fund it anyway. If they don't recognize it, we can't get federal funding. Well, I don't understand. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, that's the other other side of this. We have this all the time, you know. So, you know, so I don't think that's any different than we have now, uh, uh, because if we don't have them to put it in their dealing with this on Hampton Road, they don't put the, the Hampton Road bridge tunnel in their in their long range plan. I, we can't make them put it in their plan. I, 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 I just I think what the chairman is talking about is there are some other this was also developed taking into account some federal rules yes that we cannot mm -hmm. you know modify or have we have no discretion over here at the state level and one of the most basic ones is that if an MPO does not include a project in its long constrained long range plan constrained long range plan then the state cannot regardless of its preferences or desires use federal funds I, I get on that. that project strike that let's say it's PDC the PDC won't do it. 
Well, you're right. We can't spend any federal money unless the NPO approves it. I get that. I don't like that. I yeah. think we're setting ourselves up for the same rule with PDCs. So that's why I say I think on an exception basis. But I put your, uh, I try to put myself on the other side too. Um, you know, are we going to? You know, we're saying we're going to make all the projects, and like it or not, that's what we're going to fund. That's what we've heard from all the localities. That's our job. And we still and we still have not, to score. Not if, still believe, have to score. Not if you believe the decision making is best made with, from the local level up. Well, that's true on local roads. On roads of statewide significance, I think it's better made at the state level, and I think that that these roads will have to be scored and compete just like anybody else put one up would have to be scored. Don't, don't we have a process to determine what a, uh, a road is in terms of being of statewide significance? Mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a process that has to go through. It's not a it's not subjective. It's objective. Right. No, it is. So I'm so trying to think through this, but let's just say that the Richmond MPO and, and, and then the MPO and Hampton Roads don't want 460. I'm just throwing out the real life. Let's assume they don't want. We're going to say we're going to continue to build for six. They well, don't have it. Is there? That, you know. If, if the MPO doesn't put on a long range plan, we can't do it. I, I get that. No, I'm just talking. But it, I, I, that's a bad example. But I mean, that's, that's a statewide significant. We got more. You know, more than one. I don't see us building anything if we can't get. If there isn't a regional support. Let me give you an example. Say, say we want to build 295. Say 295 is not there. We decide we want to build it. And the... Uh, That's the way we built federal dollars. So. Well, but, all right. I, I get it. I get it. But say all the NPOs are in agreement. All the localities are in agreement, except for the PDC that covers... Um, um, uh, uh, what's the... Emporium. And they say no. But it meets the criteria. Can we still build it? But yeah, the other ones have submitted it. You've got a valid one for the other ones. We're talking about just being to be able to consider. Okay. All right. I, I think I have that right. Yeah, if you, if you, we're not saying if you've got one that's going to sponsor it, it can be considered. I'm sorry. Mr. Chairman, this discussion, I'm not clear. Have, have we made a decision that we can, as a board, submit projects? Or is that yet to be made? Is yet to be made, we had, uh, Mr. Don, but we had, we had said that would be very limited. Well, I would just suggest that we do that given the conflict of interest potential that would be some criteria that are pretty well identified up front. And let me just, to be, so the board members are clear on where we are in this process, what you have before you is a draft document that will be a draft, that we will revise based on feedback from the public and the board. So when I say the process is this, that's what is proposed in a draft document staff have created that has no actual bearing on the final process except to the degree to which it remains intact as we move forward over the next few months. Um, so what, what I'm referring back to you are the things that we have put together as staff based on feedback from the board and from the stakeholders across the Commonwealth uh, moving forward. And so based on what we've heard in our previous discussions with the board, the recommendation was to limit the number of projects that could be submitted by the board to try and build and gain trust with the local communities who are now getting ready to go through a competitive process, understanding that the board's VTRANS long-range plan still serves as kind of the screening process, and right. so that only projects that this board thinks serve some value would actually move through and end up being evaluated. Well, let me ask a question on a real-world example, and then maybe that'll satisfy me. I believe that we need to fix the S curves at Arcadia on 81. 
I believe that's a place that is, we've had numerous wrecks, people killed. I think it's not safe. I don't know what it's going to score, but I feel like that's something we ought to do. I have been able to get that, the preliminary engineering number on the six-year plan. Under this scenario, I've got to go to what, the town of Buchanan or Botetourt County and see if they agree with that before we can address that? The way the process would work as it's proposed by staff is that you would need to go to the Roanoke Valley Allegheny Regional Commission and ask them to submit that project as a candidate project for evaluation under the high priority projects or under the district grant program. Okay, just want to make sure everybody understands that. Yeah. But <laughs> I'm going to the real world example Bill's looking for. At NBTA, we did submit three projects. They had to be scored. Right. Uh, so, you know, that's the ultimate equalizer. They had to be scored. However, two of them made it into the top eight of the scoring of the 40 or 50 projects. But yet they weren't considered by the MPO to be as significant as their score ended up reflecting them. So that's kind of a little bit of the dilemma we run into that, that opts me to say we should have some flexibility on a limited basis to support some statewide projects. Well, in, that, in your case, you're right, you've got the entity to support it. I mean, that's, you know, so uh, I guess I don't see if it's a, such a good idea. All we're talking about is getting a score. Well, Mr. Yeah, Chairman, well, getting to submit it, there's no skin off of not to submit it. And we, and we, as we're hashing this out, and this is, yeah. this is good. This is what we're supposed to be doing. There's a reason we're not politicians sitting on this. Okay? What you're asking is to say before you, and there's a lot of areas in the state that aren't in an NPO and aren't in a PDC. Well, I guess they're all on a PDC. Yeah, all yeah. PDC yeah. So what you're saying is we've got to go to a PDC, which is appointed by local governments, to get them to approve a road that we think is statewide significant, but they may not want in their backyard. I think that's exactly right. And I don't think that's good transportation. And there are well, a lot of examples like that, Bill. And, and uh, uh, certainly if it's safety <laughs> issues, the example you have, that should be taken care of quite often. But on the other hand, you know, we're not transportation players either. We've got a whole bunch of them around here. Uh, but Mr. Yeah, Chairman, yeah. I, th I think to follow up with that, not to be that of course, I think the difficulty with this is you take it, well, if you're thinking, for instance, Roanoke Valley, MPO, you know, you've got folks who are urban, you've got folks who are representing rural areas, so if you've got a project that is specific to, say, Arcadia, which is specific to one locality that is considered more urban, or I'm sorry, more rural, and you've got a bunch of other voting members on an NPO who may not see that as being as an important a project because it's not benefiting their jurisdiction. And I think that's where we're going to get hung up. The same thing we had recently, I think Jennifer, you might, or Nick might have been there, on the, the discussion of rail funding and NPOs deciding that when you have an urban area that's benefiting from the transit funding and then rural areas outside of that, why are they going to vote for that money for buses when it doesn't? I mean, this to me is very similar. And I feel like this is where we're the real world problems. Yeah, this is the practical problem we're going to have when, we, when the rubber meets the road. Well, and we've, we've tried to make the point, too, that HB2 is not supposed to substitute for the local planning process or the regional planning process. Anything eventually for it to get funded is going to have to be in the region's long-range plan. So, 
even a project with a, state, a quarter of statewide significance is going to have to go through a planning process that's going to involve some level of local um, outreach, extensive public outreach, local approvals. There may not always be 100% consensus from all the parties there, but by the time, hopefully, by the time something actually gets to the HB2 rating process, it's got some <coughs> level of planning and um, consensus behind it. Um, in now, I know that won't always be the case, but I think that's what we've been trying to go to, especially as we've talked about issues like project readiness and when a project is eligible to be scored to. So. This chairman. Yes. I assume that if VDOT comes with a recommendation, you know, of the road significance, then it's going to be scored by House Bill 2. I mean, well, VDOT will work with the localities. That's the way they, they do it now. They work with the well, localities. Well, the, the first VDOT may recognize that a road may need to be built or expanded or so on, and then go sell it to the localities in some cases because you, you're never going to get 100% consensus. And, and Mr. Chairman, I'm telling you, there's a difference between working with them and going to them and getting consensus or saying you have to approve it and you can stop it. That's different. But we have that now. Not, not sure. We get sued all the time. I mean, in other words, we find if we don't get consensus, well, you know, I mean, that, that's where I'm having a little bit of difficulty with is assuming we're going to build something we don't have local input and local uh, 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 consensus say, say you get a PDC that votes uh, 7 to 11 against a project that the rest of the state thinks is really significant but they're not going to submit it because they vote 11 to 7 against it but if it's a statewide significant and you're going to, maybe the other PDC uh, the other place it runs to they, they've got it submitted I mean, the example they're going to have in Poria stop 95 doesn't work because it can be submitted from the other jurisdictions uh, uh, on 95. Yeah. It's not a vote. You're only talking about getting it scored. It's not a vote of whether or not you stop the project. All we're talking about is getting it into the getting it into, into the plan to be scored. Is all sure. I'm saying. Yes. The politics of it, though, could be <coughs> you could have a road in a particular MPO that you know is going to score high, but the political dynamic of that NPO won't allow it to be scored, then what do you do? Then, we're, then you're stuck. Well, if you don't have political support, I don't know how you build a road. I mean, I mean that's, that's what's... But yet the numbers would say it should be built. That's assuming that that's logic and all. You know, we've got many things out here mentioned a couple of them we're dealing with right now that would say logic would be we would have done maybe something different but we're not there I mean so I guess that's where I'm at we don't have local support to even get something scored how are we ever going to get it built I mean I mean that maybe that's too practical uh, in, in that regard but I mean that's work you know but this is just a I think it's a good discussion this is a a, uh, a draft, mm -hmm. and here's part of it, and this is unfair to many of you, we've been bantering this back and forth internally, and you're just having these discussions, and so part of it is something I should, we shouldn't comment at all, because you need to work, uh, work through. On the other hand, we... I think you know, the discussion is helpful yeah, for staff. Yeah, for staff in, in that regard, in, in that regard, but, but um, um, uh, it is. I mean, there are very little clear-cut, and 
And I had to get over the fact to think that logic, and I don't mean that to be flippant, but if I, if we, if we don't have public support, we, we typically you know, cannot get the roads done. And whether we think they're right or not, and I'm having difficulty on a one statewide that goes multiple jurisdictions, if every jurisdiction didn't think it was any good, that would be unusual. But, but as long as one of them thought we got, then it would make the scoring process. But I, I'm Mr. sure we haven't thought through every one. Mr. Chairman, if I could just... Yes, okay. Good. Mr. Yeah, Wasn't part of the purpose of HB2 to take politics out of this process? Well, it is, and I can see it both ways. I mean, what Mr. Phelan said, you know, sometimes... Yeah, I, 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 and yeah. Mr. Phelan's comments are introducing the political potential enterprise. You know, and he's a professional politician. He knows what No. <laughs> what I was, sir, was a part-time public service. <laughs> so I, I think um, this yeah, has been a very yeah, helpful discussion. I think the way we as staff saw this working is the instance that was referenced by Mr. Fralin and Mr. Arzinski, again, it's not likely to happen on the bulk of these projects. So it would be an exceptional outcome. And if the board agreed that those projects where there was the rare instance of the MPO, the PDC, for some political issue breaking down, that the CTB would have the discretion to submit one to two projects in a given cycle if a majority of the board members agreed that that project was pressing enough to kind of circumvent the local and regional planning process. But as a general rule, we would work with the regional and local planning processes to develop these on a ground up so they work with the local economic development and land use plans in a given region. That was kind of where we were coming from. So we thought some of the issues that are currently being raised were addressed within that framework, um, which is not to say they are to the board's um, desire, but that was, that was where we were coming from, is we did not see the, that being a, something that would happen on a regular basis where a project on a quarter of statewide significance would be so controversial that would have run into such regional opposition that you couldn't get the regional planning body to submit that. And so well, we thought Mr. that Chairman, we do need to move on. I get it. I think one thing to consider, Nick, for, from the from the staff support, it's not just that they, we can't get support. It can be that the regional body is hamstrung and can't agree on the solution. That, that's for example, how are we going to get across the Chesapeake Bay I, to, to the Hampton Road? I mean, now, at some point, it's going to get to the point where somebody's got to step in and make a decision. That's right. And if if you've got to get agreement, you may not be able to do that. So I, we need we need I think we need to look at think about that escape valve. I I, could, I think we said the same thing. I just I don't think it'd be a rule, but I think there are times because we're going to vote today on a uh, the high rise bridge um, where we at the end of the day we have to be responsible for the state roads. I mean, so in the road, so I, I couldn't agree more. The only thing I was suggesting is is that had we tried the other approach and then we stepped in, we probably have a you know a uh, I don't know credibility in terms of what we're doing in that. But uh, uh, all good discussion. I suspect we'll have a little bit more as we get through this. And there's a. So once an eligible entity submits a project, what would then happen is the staff are going to take these projects and they're going to take look at the V-Trans Multimodal Transportation Plan, which is currently in the process of being uh, developed for the needs assessment right now. We're working with a lot of local communities, regional entities, as well as both VDOT and DRPT 
to develop that plan and by law that plan needs to look at transportation needs on corridors of statewide significance, regional networks which is kind of the travel within some of the metro areas, and again there's 14 of those in the Commonwealth and then also look at what are the improvements that are needed to support locally designated uh, urban development areas and growth areas there. And so we'll, we'll grab a project on the application the entity would have selected which type of need they thought they addressed and they'll have the long-range transportation plan to look at. We'll go back through and confirm that it does address a need that was identified in that long-range plan and if it does, it will move forward in the evaluation process and if it doesn't, we'll go back to that applicant to work with them to submit a more, maybe a revised or slightly different project in the next evaluation round for House Bill 2. Uh, it is our intent uh, and we are working towards this to have an application process that is as simple and straightforward as possible. Uh, we, as we kind of have thought about how should this work, the real rule has been make sure it's not as complicated as the USDOT Tiger Grant program. Um, we submitted two successful Tiger Grant applications last year in the Commonwealth, one for the Broad Street BRT project that the board just heard about and the other for the ports uh, Norfolk International uh, Terminal's Northgate project, uh, both the port and the uh, DRPT had to hire consultants to draft those Tiger Grant applications, which is to say it's been thousands of dollars. We did get millions back, so it was a winning uh, return on investment if you want to look at it that way, but we're not going to make the local governments, PDCs, and MPOs in Virginia do something similar to that. We didn't think that would be fair. And so what we're proposing is an online application process that will have drop-down menus and maps and other things where local uh, government staffer can go in and very quickly fill in the information. They may need to attach some documents uh, as supporting material to back up some of the uh, factor and measure analysis that takes place, but that this is going to be a very you know, easy process for the, uh, our local partners and regional partners to participate in. One of the other things that we have uh, really put a lot of attention into is we're going to make sure that the VDOT and DRPT staff are available to help support our local and regional partners in developing this. We are the transportation agencies. We handle the bulk of these types of work. And so we're going to, we're going to try and create a process where essentially a local entity or regional entity can request support for VDOT or DRPT to help develop portions of their application where they may need help. So a few key things that we're going to need from every single project to be able to evaluate it and then help the board consider which one should be funded in a given year is really the scope. What are you doing? Where does it start? Where does it stop? What is it? Is this going to be incorporated into the dashboard? Well, I, I was being serious. Oh, sorry. What a great place to access it for people that are, are getting used to using it and find it highly effective. And you, you watch all the curves since we instituted it and everything goes up. Mr. Chairman, Mr. Williams, we are we do have a process and a graphic a graphic user interface tool that's similar to the dashboard that we're planning to use for this. Um, we've actually contracted with a group known as Decision Lens. That citizens would just have an access to. And, and more importantly, you all will have access to that, and you'll be able to go in and look at the district profiles the statewide projects, you can see how they compare against each other and within the weighting frameworks. And so there will be some visual tools that will be available uh, in particular for the board, but also to the general public to really see what a project uh, is, is expected to do and be able to compare that against other projects. Uh, I expect either in April when we submit, show you those example scoring projects, so that's when we'll first show you how that tool 
uh, could work. I do want to say it's, it's a pretty impressive tool. It's currently used by, the, I believe, the Army and several other private companies. It's been used by large transportation agencies to undertake similar efforts to what we're doing here. So in addition to scope, we'll be working with them on the schedule and understanding how ready a project is or maybe whether it needs some additional pre-development before it could be funded, which might influence whether you fund it with you know, some of the early year money or outer year money. And then most importantly, we'll be working with them on the cost. Um, what is it going to take to build this project so that as we go through and determine that relative cost at the end, which will serve as the basis for the score, we have a number that is generally agreed upon as an accurate number and that nobody's kind of lowballing their cost as they go in there to try and get a, a higher score to get funding and then come back and ask for additional money afterwards. Uh, you, before we walk on there, going to go into that. Just back to this topic, is Mr. Patrick and I have been talking. We've obviously really coming from the perception we think we're going to have more projects to be scored that may not score very well. In other words, there's another side to the point too because people want money, and there's going to be a whole lot of projects, and we're thinking. You know, through that, uh, and there's a discussion to be had on, you know, do we actually let them be scored, or I mean, the whole screening process. So it's an interesting, you know, point that you've raised about the, the ones across, because we've been more or less thinking it's going to be the other way, because there's money now, and so everybody's going to try to get a project, and whether it's worthwhile or not, and of course, the score they go out. I think, Mr. Chairman, I think you're exactly right about that. I think I think there's going to be tons. Any, why not? Why not? Yeah. Maybe maybe run up the flagpole, see what it gets. Maybe you know. I think you're exactly right, but I don't think that's. I think it's a whole no, different no, no, problem no, from no, what no, I'm talking. About. I know it is. I think that the, the secretary and I've spoken. There'll be a lot of folks that want to uh, apply, apply, to try and get their projects. The six-year plan, I believe, will actually shrink in terms of the number of projects in a six-year plan. And the reason for that is that once a project is in the six-year plan, it is on the path to construction and open to traffic. We have over, long before I started at VDOT in the 90s, we've had projects that have been in the six-year plan off and on and off for extended period, dozens of years. And so I think what you're going to see is through this screening process, what we're going to say is that project is worth building and DDOT and DRPT program the money now to program it out and deliver that project. So the number of projects I believe in the six-year plan will shrink somewhat. I've used the term thinking about your project. We won't have that $100 million project where we drop a million dollars on it for planning knowing that we're not, it's going to be very difficult for us ever to get the $99 million to finish it. So I don't think you're going to see those kinds of projects. This really, to me, becomes a, uh, a much stronger delivery program of, the, of our capital improvements. Projects in the six-year plan, we're going to fund it as rapidly as we can to get it done within, within all of the, the, the levers that we're pulling to fund that money. But it's not going to be sprinkled over dozens of years. Make sure we don't get a federal earmark in there. We got to find. Right. But I understand what you're saying. No, but I think generally that's right. Uh, so we'll probably see the number <coughs> of projects shrink, but the ones coming to fruition much much quicker. And that's, uh, so. Oh, Mr. Whitman. 
Um, you made mention of our April meeting when we look at the definitive process. Mm -hmm. Would it be helpful? It, it seems to me that sometimes a picture is worth a thousand words. If we would take two or three programs that we have already done, completed, and put it through the process and let us see how those would have scored out and the information that would have been before us, uh, it, it, it may be helpful in seeing how this would be useful in the future. And Mr. Chairman, Mr. Whitworth, what we're planning to do is, I think, almost that, and I think we'll tweak it to make sure it is in fact that. But what we're going to do is we're going to take 40 <coughs> projects that are either con under construction or open already, real projects in Virginia, and we're going to score them. And so then we're going to try and present as much of that information to you all in April and try and understand what is helpful, what is not helpful as we present that. Also to make sure are these measures we have working the way we thought they were going to work there. So we are going to be trying to do some of that in April and maybe we'll, I'll touch base with you offline to see if some of the stuff we're bringing uh, goes in line, in line with what you were talking about there. That's what we're hoping to do in April is to do, I think, what you were talking about. Well, a completed project would help you to judge whether or not, in fact, it was successful. Uh, it did do the things that we wanted it, thought we would. Mm -hmm. Lots assuming we would have built it to begin with. True. Yeah, I mean, in other words, we might. We, we might probably got a lot of things we built and score very well. Exactly. And but but we still get to the same place. I know. Oh, it's just, that's right. I understand. <laughs> we might not like what we see, but... You can't pull the money off now, right? That's right. No, no, no. We're not doing that. But, I mean, yeah. Yeah. But there is some... We thought about this. There is some downside for constructions that aren't done, and they come back and they, they go, well, why are you... But, I, but we're not going to say and use yeah. ones that are complete. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Undo complete. Absolutely right. <laughs> yeah. And that is, we were not, any project we bring to the board that will be evaluated will be either complete. open to construction or very, or does not open to construction, construction or is well on its way to being there. Right. Make, it, make it an old record. <laughs> and so okay. once a project moves through this kind of pre, uh, this process here, we're going to then evaluate based on the measures we talked about at the last board meeting. What I want to try and do right now is really tell the board some of the feedback we heard on the measures as we went across the state. And so remember, under safety, we have two proposed measures. One is the number of fatalities and severe injuries on that facility, or the reduction, excuse me, on that facility in a raw number basis. And the second measure is the reduction in the rate of injuries or severe injuries and fatalities on that facility. Some of the feedback we heard from uh, the local partners as we talked through this process was there was a lot of folks who said, why are you limiting it just to severe injuries and fatalities? And where we are coming from at the staff level is those are the types of uh, crashes that really create economic issues for the Commonwealth and have the most severe impact on our motorists and taxpayers as well as our visitors. Uh, it also falls more in line with some of the federal requirements that are coming online for the Highway Safety Improvement Program where we're going to be required, regardless of what we do in this process, to track the number of severe injuries and fatalities as well as the rate uh, across the Commonwealth as a part of the federal MAPS 21 performance management rules. But we did hear this in several of the different districts um, about really should you expand this to look at a kind of all crashes. Uh, I think part of that was also based on 
the things where a lot of districts where they see fender benders that are creating unreliable traffic conditions. So I think one of the things is, and we get this in the congestion thing, is whether or not the issue there has to do with safety or trying to find a way to capture reliability issues on some of the roadways. Um, one of the other things we heard was concern that the transit projects wouldn't, we weren't accurately capturing the safety benefit of transit projects. Um, in some of the districts they said, you know, transit is the safest mode of transportation has a significantly lower uh, fatality and severe injury rate compared to the other modes and they weren't sure of the way we were uh, intending to capture that really took that into account and just to remind members of the board the way we're proposing you would do that is you would look at the amount of people that switch from driving or you know riding with someone else in that roadway in a car to the bus or tra uh, rail system and then we would reduce the amount of driving on that roadway by that to come up with a number of fatalities that are not happening because there's less driving um, on that roadway. And so there was some concern about that. And then the last one is people were generally familiar with the concept that we under had crash modification factors, but they don't know what they are. And they said, if you're going to really use these and these are going to start determining whether or not we get money, please publish a list of these online so we know that a roundabout reduces you know, severe injuries and fatalities by 80%. Don't make me send in a left-hand turn lane when I could have done a roundabout and gotten the money. And so they really wanted to really understand what those were and what types of solutions help reduce the number of severe injuries and fatalities. On the congestion factor, uh, there was a, remember we have two Jim, measures. Do you want to oh. ask questions per factor or do you want to wait till the ask uh, Okay. On the safety measure, Nick, um, it's the number of annual crashes, which is obviously going to be weighted for a road that's used more because it's a raw number. I mean, the more ro more cars on a road, the more likely is there to be a crash. True. There'll be a greater number generally, not always, but yes. Okay. But, but this isn't a weighted number. It's just the raw number of annual crashes on this road. Well, so there's, there's two factors, Mr. Fraylin. One is just the raw number. The other is the weighted or the rate factor, which would take into account the number of severe injuries and fatalities compared to the amount of driving on that roadway. So on <coughs> I-95, for example, if there's 100 fatalities and severe injuries, but there's a million, you know, people driving on that, that would have a rate of uh, 0.1, if I'm doing my math right. And if I'm not, don't tell me. And then on another road, you know, say 220, okay. where there's maybe um, 10 crashes, but there's only 100 people driving on that, that's the same rate, even though that number's much lower. Right. So that's what I mean. On, uh, so the, on the second factor, it's injuries per 100 million vehicle miles traveled. And I just don't have any idea what that means. I mean, you use 220. Are there 100 million vehicle miles traveled on 220? So, Mr. Um, Chairman, Mr. Chairman, 100 million, 100 million vehicle miles traveled is a national standard. And okay. so on roadways where they don't have that, we would adjust the rate upwards. So if, say there's only... 50 million VMT, yeah. we would uh, multiply that rate times two to get it up to gotcha. uh, a kind of equalized rate so we compare it across okay. facilities. Thank you. Got it. So in the congestion factor, uh, there are few, we have two measures. Again, one is the reduction in person hours of delay along the corridor compared to the facility at a level of service E. Uh, we pick level of service E again to focus on the severe congestion, really the stop and go. Um, one of the things we were hoping to not take into account, there are lots of instances where a project may 
improve a facility from a level of service, say C to B, but the actual change for someone driving on that roadway may be five seconds. And so if you multiply that, say, on a roadway with 100,000 people, we can get upwards of 26,000 hours of delay reduced, and people think that something's really going to change on that roadway, but it's just five seconds. And so we really wanted to make sure when we capture changes in delay, we're really capturing in areas where the congestion is at a level where it's creating an inconvenience and a real hindrance to the daily kind of user and the freight and other goods moving on that roadway. The second measure was the increase in the person throughput along that corridor, and that was just with the improvements we're proposing, how many more people do we expect to move through kind of a given corridor, recognizing that that's one of the key things we need to enhance on a lot of the corridors uh, in the Commonwealth. So some of the main feedback we heard from folks is uh, in certain parts of the state they were concerned that a focus on level of service E may exclude some of their areas. And they said, hey, we're not sure we have a lot of roadways that have level of service E, and, and I don't think, I think they're correct in the areas where that was raised. I also think that it's likely the congestion factor would be weighted pretty low in some of those areas where they don't have a lot of level of service E roadways. And so remember last time when I presented to the board, uh, I, I think there'll be very few projects that score very high in all five or six of these factor areas. I think most projects are going to do well in one or two areas, and we tried to, as we were developing these different measures, make them work for the areas where we thought they would be weighted highest. So, you know, for example, I'm not sure the economic development measure that we put in place is the one that if Northern Virginia developed their own economic development measure that they would select but we developed it based on the areas that we thought would end up using economic development, taking into account the types of issues that we often heard raised by them as we did our outreach meetings uh, earlier in 2014. And so again, the congestion metric here, we did tailor this more to some of the larger urban areas where we did expect it to be weighted higher, particularly in the person hours of delay uh, concept. I think all areas can compete equally under the person throughput measure. Well, and, and Mr. Chairman, I want to ask a question about that because that, this is, this is, this is a, a philosophical point because you're right, in category C or D, even if it's just 10% of their, if, if they don't have any service level E's, the likely score there is going to be zero. So the max they're going to be trying to get is, on, I mean, they can't get any points for that. Well, they, remember, that's, that's half the congestion okay. factor. So half. they can still get five points. Uh, they can the still one. get five. Okay, so, all right. So they can only get five percent, but they're reduced by that. By the same token, help me if I'm wrong on the um, uh, economic development factor or environmental quality factors. I don't see where any of these other categories are going to be zero. For example, I think that there are, there's going to be some economic development activity that you would be able to attribute to almost any. Oh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm I'm a little concerned about that. We're just talking talking among friends here. I'm concerned about that. The, the other piece that I'm worried about in the congestion is it's the peak hour, <coughs> which to me matters to commuters. And I think what this ought to be titled is commuter congestion mitigation. Because the other thing that we're not measuring here is throughput <coughs> of goods. In other words, transportation of goods through a corridor. And this comes to the 81 question, right? How much, how much, yes, we, we may not be moving as many people down 81 as they're moving down 95 or up 95, but I promise you we're moving more freight. 
and those are bigger, they take more room, they damage the roads more, they, you know, all those factors come into play, and I'm really concerned about this congestion piece only talking about people. That, and, and, and we've had this discussion, and, and I guess now is as good a time as any. For those of us that have 81, I'm really worried how 81 is going to score on this. And I, I'm, I think that we, we, I need you all to put your thinking caps on and help, help me understand um, because that is an extremely important economic engine for the western half of the state and for the eastern half of the United States. And we've got to, we've got to make sure we're paying attention to it. And I'd actually like to just jump to the last bullet under congestion because I think that gets at the issue Mr. Franklin was just raising. Okay. Um, and that's really the lack of the reliability of travel on a lot of our key corridors was something we actually heard in all parts of the state. Why aren't you measuring this? Um, at a staff level, it's actually something we do want to measure. Uh, we tried earlier and we were unable to come up with some metrics. Uh, I think we're, we're hearing, I'm hearing pretty clearly from Mr. Fralin, you want us to go back and try again and, and, and we will do that. We do think reliability is an important metric and I think it can apply statewide. Um, and I think we need to talk about which factor area of reliability metrics should go in. I'm not sure if congestion is the right one. Economic development might actually be a better one. Um, for that, but that's a discussion if we figure out, you know, how to incorporate that. But staff does have a very, very strong desire to be able to capture reliability because I do think that's one of, particularly in the areas, in all areas of the state, but also in areas where they don't have congestion. This is that's a big issue both for goods movement and for passenger travel. Um, the tough part, just so that the board understands where we're coming from at the staff level, is we can figure out where a lack of reliability exists today or where there's unreliable travel. What's, what we need to spend some time looking at is how do we determine the degree to which a project will make the road more reliable. Often the things that improve reliability the most are operational types of improvements, like having the safety service patrol come pick up and tow drivers out of the way so they're not blocking you know, two feet of Atlanta traffic so people keep swerving over and everyone's jamming on their brakes. There are capital improvements as well that can help with reliability and so we are going to go back take a look at that see if there's some analysis and correlation we can come up with to look at that issue um, but th that's the issue we're struggling with is how do we say what a what a project or given improvement does for reliability because um, there, there, there aren't a lot of metrics and really any that we found so far that tell you how a capital improvement will change that aspect but we're, we're, I think we will go back and look at it. it is something we wanted to have Initially, we, we just struggled the first time around. Mr. Capers. Nick, on consistent definition of project quarter required, mm -hmm. I, I'm assuming that we are presenting that to the applicants and telling these are the criteria for identifying the quarter. It seems to be a potentially highly controversial issue. How are we moving towards resolution of that? Uh, so, Mr. Chair, Mr. Kashwitz, we are still working on a definition towards that. And what the concern was, again, is that we had initially proposed that the project applicant would kind of tell us this is what they saw as the corridor. There were some folks, uh, particularly in the Northern Virginia region, who were nervous about how some of their peers, and I think even their, their peers in Northern Virginia, might define the corridor. So, you know, if you're doing an improvement on Route 7 and you, you reach all the way down and grab Route 6, Interstate 66, all of a sudden your numbers can really go through the roof with regard to the benefits you might be providing. 
And so we, we as a staff are going to come up with some explicit guidance. Uh, it's not in the current policy guide that you have, but some guidance that will be hopefully clear to all the applicants as to what can be in that project corridor and what cannot be. So this is applied in a kind of uniform way across the state because we did hear a fair amount of concern about this uh, at the Northern Virginia meeting, and it was raised in other meetings, though the bulk of the consternation came from the Northern Virginia district meeting. Uh, on the accessibility factor, again, we have three measures under this. Uh, one is the cumulative increase in the number of jobs within 45 minutes due to the project and any land use changes it may have. The other was the cumulative access to, uh, increase in access to essential destinations within 30 minutes. And the final one was the uh, increase in access to multimodal options. A few things we heard as we went across the state was whether or not 45 minutes was the right threshold for the access to the number of jobs. When we were in Fredericksburg, they thought that probably was an insufficient amount of time. Um, I also, the Fredericksburg region has typically the longest commute time, so that wasn't a surprise um, that we heard that issue there. And then in some of the rural areas of the state, they said, well, we can basically reach anywhere around here in 45 minutes, so we're not sure what more is going to pop up. Um, I think in both those instances, the tool that we're developing is not limited by some type of geographic boundary, so it doesn't start, stop counting jobs that may not be in, say, the city, Roanoke County or Roanoke City. It will look out into Botetourt, into Amherst, and into those other counties to capture those additional jobs someone might be able to access because of the improvement in travel speeds or changes in land use from a project. Similarly, with the Fredericksburg region, they were really concerned about capturing D.C. Uh, I, don't, I, I think that's the wrong focus. What we need to look at is how many more job opportunities can someone reach. And this tool, again, will look beyond the Fredericksburg region into Fredericksburg, the Pentagon, and other areas and understand whether or not more people can reach those job areas, even if a lot of the people today go to D.C. It's going to look at what the opportunity is and how that's enhanced. Um, another concern that we heard was what's an essential destination? Um, and we had some of that discussion at the board meeting last time when we talked about these measures. Um, some folks, you know, wanted to add tourism, particularly in the Hampton Roads region. They said, hey, you know, are, are we looking at, you know, destinations for tourists and other things of that nature? Uh, in some other parts of the state, Northern Virginia, they said, shouldn't we look at activity centers there and some of their locally designated kind of destinations, which is slightly different than the concept that we ran into. And then in some other parts of the state, they just said, I'm not sure this is important. Should the state actually be looking at this and should we be making investments to kind of change the access to essential destinations? Um, and then the last concern we heard was with the multi increase in access to multimodal options where in some of the rural communities they've expressed concern that while they may have access to, you know, some biking uh, and sidewalk and in certain cases rail, options, they didn't really have the extensive bus service or rail transit that some of the more urban areas have. Um, on the environmental quality factor, again, we have uh, three measures under this one. The first measure is the uh, likelihood of the project to improve air quality or reduce greenhouse gas emissions, which is weighted at 50%. And then we have the disadvantaged population accessibility, access to jobs and access to essential destinations with the jobs portion being weighed 40% and the essential destinations being weighed 10%. Um, one of the things we heard is they were kind of wanted to know why we weren't looking at things like wetlands impacts, uh, why we weren't looking at stormwater quality and things of that nature. 
And the, the intent was that we should, didn't want to try and give points for things that would be captured through the permitting process. And it's because at that point, are we just giving every project a certain slug of points because you can't get a permit if you have, you know, substantial environmental impacts that can't be mitigated? Uh, I think some folks thought that that was too narrow of a view and that there are some projects that do actually improve, for example, water quality, where you might add a component to a project to reduce the stormwater runoff or other things. And so they, they asked that we go back and revisit that. Another thing that we heard is with the non-auto access for disadvantaged populations. So, uh, we heard from several different districts that in, they felt that in their part of the state, uh, the disabled, the low income, and the elderly often got rides from other people or had you know friends come pick them up. And so they, they weren't sure if that measure should be limited just to the non-auto modes. And so I think we're going to go back and take some, you know, look at that to see if there's research nationally that gets to that issue. And then again, people just wanted to make sure we had a very clear definition of what a disadvantaged population was. Um, currently, we're proposing to rely on the Title VI uh, definition, which, uh, you know, again, is in the federal code and is something that we're required to do through the NEPA process. I think that's something we'll continue to work on over the next two months to determine whether or not that's the appropriate definition to use as we move forward. On the economic uh, development... Uh, hold on there. Nick, I just have a quick question on the accessibility, um, the measuring of um, access to jobs. Would, would, wouldn't it be more beneficial to look at not just the number of jobs, but the percentage as well mm -hmm. on the application? I, I think we can definitely take a look at it. The reason we did the number is because at the end we're dividing all the projects by the cost. And if we do percent, there could be one project that, say, costs $500 million and increases the, number, the cumulative jobs that can be reached. The increase in that could be, say, 100,000 jobs, and then you, which might be 10% increase. And then you could have a $10 million project that increases you know, access to 1,000 additional jobs, which is also a 10% increase. And when you divide that by the cost at the end, we felt that that might disadvantage some of the larger projects. So it, it was more to try and keep a fair benefit-cost score is why we thought we needed to use the aggregate number rather than the percentages. Because when we did some analysis um, ourselves, we found that using percentages, the lower, the, the smaller projects tended to get it, an unfair advantage, in our opinion. Gary. Yeah, Mark. Nick, is there a uh, component of all this uh, judging and scoring that uh, accommodates somewhere like Hampton Roads where you can't build two miles without a bridge versus the rest of the state where water's not such an impediment. I mean, it just adds so much to the cost. And you always say in the end, the last thing you always say is when they divide it by the cost factor. So is it an accommodation for that? Um, or, or is that even an issue? It might, it might not even be. A Mr. Williams, I think all regions have unique uh, things that impact their ability to deliver a project. So in Northern Virginia, the maintenance of traffic and the right-of-way are different than they are in certain parts of the state. I also, when we get to the project cost, um, staff are recommending that we use the HB2 eligible cost, which might be a mitigating factor for different parts of the state. Um, but I don't want to get too much into that particular aspect yet. But I, I think no is the short answer to your question, is we're not giving any special treatment to any part of the state 
because things may or may not. I wasn't asking about a special treatment. I was asking about punitive measures that, that could impact an area like Camden Roads because of the cost of construction just so much higher down because of the because of the geography. Well, and we hear the same thing in Mr. Matney's part of the state where they say the mountains we'll and the, the terrain. I, th I think everyone, Mr. Williams, has, has indicated they have some special thing that increases the cost in a given area. In Northern Virginia, it's the right-of-way. In Bristol, it's the mountains. In Hampton Roads, it's the water. So I think what we're doing is we're not, we're not in, in special treatment. I wasn't trying to imply that we're going to inflate them. I'm just saying everyone's treated the same way. The cost is the cost, is what we're proposing. <coughs> I'm going to have to work on that. Thank you, Karen. <laughs> All right. So on the economic development factor, uh, just reminders to the board, there are two member uh, measures, excuse me, that we're proposing to use there. The first is the degree to which the project can help support a local economic development strategy. And the second is the kind of freight and intermodal efficiency measure. The first one's weighted 70% and the second is weighted 30%. Uh, we, we had a lot of discussion about this measure, as you might imagine, um, particularly in like the Lynchburg, Stanton, Roanoke, and Bristol districts. Uh, one of the things we heard again and again is, please don't use the DHCD Enterprise Zone designation. Um, and the, one of the, the reasons for that is there were some localities who said, I've applied for this three times, and I get turned down every single time by DHCD, and they felt that that would be unfair where they were taking steps to really apply, but for reasons they weren't quite sure of, DHCD would never approve their enterprise zone applications. Another concern we had is we were proposing that you would get points if a project was in line with a locally adopted comprehensive economic development strategy, which is something that needs to be approved by the Economic Development Administration at the federal level. We recommended that measure because it puts some parameters around what is a local economic development strategy and has some you know, parameters again about you must go through these steps to prove that there's some amount of analysis backing that strategy up. Some uh, PDCs said, well, we don't have this yet. We might be able to have it in the future. Can, if we have some regionally adopted strategy that maybe hasn't been approved by the EDA, can that count, you know, at least for these first few rounds of HB2 evaluation so we're not you know, negatively impacted because we didn't know we needed to do this in advance. Um, there was some concern about the chicken versus the egg and how we were proposing to give points to projects under this measure. So again, remember, you get points if they're, you know, consistent with the economic development strategy. You get points if plans have been submitted. You get points if utilities are in place. A lot of folks said, well, we can't get the plan submitted until someone knows we're going to have the transportation facility. On the flip side, we were trying to make sure we didn't end up funding a lot of projects where it says, build the road and they will come, and we end up with a lot of roads where no one came. And so I think as staff, we're going to go back and look at that. I'm not sure there's an easy way to address it, uh, that issue, but it is a concern we heard in a few of the districts. And then finally, when I presented last to the board, I told you we were struggling as to what should be the scaling factor or how do we determine the magnitude of the development. Um, we asked everyone in all nine districts, and we got no consensus. <laughs> so we're still kind of where we were before, but we're going to keep working on that. Um, people threw out jobs, wages, property taxes, square footage. We, we heard everything. Um, and so there, unfortunately, there was 
nothing that really rang out more as a suggestion for understanding the magnitude of the development than others. And so we're just going to have to keep looking at that issue and you know, we'll keep coming back to the board with any additional progress we've made on that. Mr. Whitworth. Uh, but what there was consensus, I take it then, that the proposed DHCD enterprise zone is not acceptable. I think it's it's fair to say that there was a lot of concern about that in the districts. We didn't hear it in every district, but we, we heard it in the majority. Ms. Um Yes. What came out of the, the meeting, the stakeholder meeting in Lindsborg, as we were discussing this, because in districts like mine, it's such a critical factor, is that to develop that channel <coughs> so that the more comprehensive, the more things that a project could check off is being complete or in development or in process, all of those things um, were important. So it's having, to me, that seemed, did you get that kind of feedback when you were with other districts? Creating a checklist and the more comprehensive the project, um, that that would somewhat determine the economic impact. I think we got a mix of feedback on that. I think people like the kind of checklist concept that we're trying to put forward. And I think some people like the idea that there had to, you had to demonstrate progress towards a development coming online. Um, to be in complete candor to the board, there were also a few areas, though less of them, where they said, hey, we're not sure we can get to that place of being further down the line until you commit the money <coughs> for the facility upgrade to us. Um, I think as staff, we, we would recommend strongly to the board that you stick to that checklist where the further along you are, the more likely you are to get money. We think we can also work with some of these local PDCs and others to help them understand how this process could work. And we also have planning grants where we can try and help them advance maybe some of that work further along. Um, but we do want to stick to, in this economic development measure, two projects where we know there's a strategy and where there are projects that are further along and you know what type of industry you're trying to get to or even if someone submitted plans that those projects would get more points than ones that are really much more at the conceptual level. Right, at least initially. And one of the points that was brought up in the meeting that I thought was very good concerned square footage, that with expansion you may not have as much square footage, but sometimes with industry expansion it can actually create a greater economic impact. And so that was one of the concerns about how we would actually include that on the checklist. I just wanted to make that point because I, I thought it was made very well. Mr. Ayamahap, we had just gotten the word that uh, the plane has to be in the air about 4 o'clock uh, this afternoon or we do not polish to take our people home. So I think we can do that. That will give us about an hour and 15 minutes here left to do uh, unless... Uh, yeah, uh, unless you gentlemen want to stay the evening. Uh, uh, <laughs> I'm not riding the plane back. That's yeah. some bad news. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> Mr. Matney. Is, I just have one more area I need to inquire. I, I guess what I'd like to do is we probably, we probably got about a half an hour of the workshop. I'd like to go to the session at 3 to 3.15. I think we can get through it in a half hour, 45 minutes. But we do have an, we, the... Uh, uh, if we could, I think that would we uh, her go through this. I know this is uh, we cut it to one day, but we, we do have uh, we do have a constraint with the plane on that stuff. So okay. Uh, and the final factor is the transportation and land use coordination. 
um, area. And what we heard here, I think the most prevalent kind of comment was, we're not required to use this, but should we? And it was interest, but not necessarily a commitment. So we heard that in Charlottesville, we heard that in Winchester, we heard in Lynchburg and Danville. Um, some folks were more inclined to say, let me use that. Others kind of said, well, ha help me understand whether or not this may, or may help me or may hurt me on my project score moving forward. And so I think this just kind of goes along to why in the previous weighting framework we had the land use measure in two of the categories so that areas, even those that didn't want to be in with Hampton Roads and Northern Virginia and that category with congestion being weighted the highest would have the opportunity to use this factor. So Mr. Chairman, once we run the, the projects through the different measures, we then need to take those kind of values and go through a quality assurance, quality control process and also turn that into a score that the board can then use to compare that against other projects and that's what I want to walk through now. So the first thing we're going to do is uh, we are going to have a technical evaluation team that's going to do the actual screening and evaluation. And I want to say that we're still examining whether or not this should be several teams, whether this should be staff, whether this should be consultants, or whether this should be a mix of both staff and consultants. I personally think there's a lot of value in having multiple teams and having a few projects scored by more than one team to make sure they're getting the same score when they come out the back end there. And then one of the things we heard from the peer panel that we put together last uh, November is it's very helpful to kind of have an external review group made up of the stakeholders sending in <coughs> projects who have a chance to review the process and see how it's working. And so we're proposing that we put in place what we're calling the external peer group that would have, you know, local governments, MPOs, PDCs, and other stakeholders uh, who get to take a look at what we've done and make sure that we're doing it in the way they thought we were going to do it. I know the application process is intended to be simple without consultants being required, but granted there are probably areas around the state that have more sophisticated modeling tools, maybe more staff. How are we gonna how are we gonna put it all on a level playing field so that the applications are evaluated equally for areas that may not have those types of resources or modeling or consultants? Well, the, that's a very good question, Mr. Tunk. So the first thing we do is we're going to undertake the burden at the state level of doing all the modeling when it comes to scoring the project. So no, no local government is going to have to undertake that burden unless for some reason they want to do it in advance to understand what the outcome might be. The second thing we're doing is we are, via, uh, Commissioner Kilpatrick and Director Mitchell are going to be making their staffs available to the local governments in all of the districts to really help them with the project um, application development up front before they get submitted so there will be several months each year where their staff are really going to be reaching out to local governments to see if they can be of assistance to help with some of those matters and then finally uh, once we have a final process we're going to put a lot of the information online just like with a crash modification factor so you can go there and understand what it would do what a given solution will do for, for severe injuries and fatalities on a roadway. Um, you will have kind of the accessibility tool to kind of understand where there's good and bad access to jobs and things of that nature. So we're going to put a lot of that up there so folks can go tinker with it and play with it to try and understand where their problem areas and where they might be able to really uh, develop some high scoring projects. 
So uh, once we d develop the measures, we, can, we then have to run them through each of the weighting, f the relevant or applicable weighting framework. And just to remind the board, here are the proposed weighting frameworks. We have not changed these um, since the last meeting. We got a fair amount of feedback on them, and we're getting um, letters that feels like every other day from a PDC or an MPO on this. And so we wanted to wait till we got all of that feedback before we adjusted that. Some of the feedback though, that we heard when we went out to the districts is, again, just the urban areas were concerned about whether or not it was fair for them to compete against the rural areas where economic development was weighted and safety were weighted highly because they thought congestion was a more costly thing to address. And a lot of the rural areas were uncomfortable competing against Northern Virginia and Hampton Roads whose needs they saw as just so dramatic. Um, and I think that's, that's just going to be an ongoing tension throughout this process and I think as staff we're going to do our best to try and put forward what we think is an objective process that works for all parts um, of the state but I think at the end of the day this is always going to exist um, in this process and we just have to try and minimize the consternation to the degree possible. Um, as I mentioned earlier there are folks who wanted to really understand and I think wanted us to tell them whether or not they should use the land use factor and that's that's a decision that they're going to need to make. I think we can explain to them how it might work and then they can go back and look at their policies and plans and try and determine whether or not they want to use that, but that's, that's going to be their decision. Um, I think a lot of folks wanted to know, are these going to be the measures you use before you make me pick a waiting frame? So they know we have these proposed set of measures, but I think they, in a way they wanted us to kind of lock those down before they had to say whether or not they wanted to be in category D or category B kind of moving forward there. Um, and then also there were some folks who said, can we make some of these weighted really low? <coughs> so uh, in Hampton Roads, they asked if they could, you know, could environmental quality be, could that be 5%? Does that really need to be, you know, 10%? Uh, in the Richmond area, they said, you know, transportation and land use, can that, can that just be 5%? Does that, does that really need to be 10 um, We've tried to put forward a package where every factor area is at least 10% so that folks will consider it and think about it as they move forward, but that is something that we heard in a few places across the state. What I want to walk through now is uh, something that we haven't discussed with the board in detail, but it's how do we go from a project reduces 900 hours of delay to a score? And so staff are recommending that we have a kind of the ability before you divide by cost to get up to 100 points. And I want to walk through how we're going to propose that's done for a given project. And these are made up numbers. These aren't real projects. These are just inputs. So let me say that before I get started here. Mr. Chairman, you mean 100 points total? Yes, sir. So it, it, the max score for, North, for the, the urban areas, uh, category A, would be 35 points for congestion mitigation? Correct. And so what we're proposing is that within each measure area, we normalize the scores based on the highest performing project in a given year. And what we mean by that is, in this example, there's three projects that we're evaluating for under the congestion mitigation. Project three reduces the person hours of delay by 900 hours. Project B reduces 500 hours of person delay, and project one reduces 10 hours of uh, person hours of delay. Because 900 is the most, and it's therefore the project that has the greatest benefit, it becomes kind of the top score. 
and every other score is proportional in relationship to that score, which does mean year to year, a pro the same project might have a different score, and I think that's okay because we actually have different projects to pick from every year, and while you may be the fifth best project one year, you might actually be the, the best project the next year, or vice versa, just depending on what's been submitted. So in this, they'd get that project three would have 100, and project one would have 1.1, because 10 divided by 900 is 1.1. We would then, to convert that into kind of the congestion score, you know, we have two measures, We'd walk that through for person throughput as well, convert that, and we'd multiply them you know, by 50% to get to kind of what is in the congestion factor is your score. And within each measure, we're doing this to 100. And so again, because on the person throughput, project one is an eight, and project three uh, you know, had 15,000, so they're 100, you get those different scores. And so you divide eight by, multiply eight by 50% and you get four and you take 1.1 and you multiply it by 50% and you get, um, I'm going to screw up the math, but you get something that adds up to, you get point, 0 0.55. Mr. Chairman, Nick, are you worried that if you take, go back to the food person score, um, 15,000 seems like a drop in the bucket. Um, you know, I don't know, but if, are you worried that you will have a bunch of projects in Northern Virginia or Hampton that score really high on congestion and that's the hundred mark and then you've got to go way down to the bottom before you start getting into any projects in any other district so their their uh, score is going to be you know point five or point two or I mean just really off the scale from a hundred is, or is that if y'all looked at these and that's not going to happen so, Mr. Fraylin, I think um, we'll need to take a bigger look at that when we come back to you in April. Okay. My, my gut response is, no, I'm not worried. Okay. And the reason I'm not worried is all of these are going to be divided by cost at the end of the day. And that project, and, we'll, and we'll, I know we're going to get to that issue here in a little bit and you have some comments for me. But um, what I was to say is the projects that increase the throughput by 15000 hopefully would cost, or I assume would cost a lot more than the projects that only increase person throughput by 1,200. Um, and so, for example, in the NVTA 599 congestion rating process, when you looked at the raw score, I think the highest scoring project was the Fairfax County Parkway. And then the Glebe Road ITS project was number 17 out of 37. When you divided by cost, the Glebe Road ITS project had the highest score by a factor of two and the Fairfax County Parkway project fell from number one to number nine. And so don't worry about the, if your benefits are lower than another project, worry about whether or not your benefits are high relative to your cost. Which, Mr. Chairman, goes back to my discussion about how to, to level the playing field on cost. I mean, yes, uh, Mr. Matthews' region is just, probably just as expensive as Hampton Roads, but other reasons aren't as expensive, and, uh, and, and how in the, when you when you're competing for the statewide dollars, when you're when you're internal in the grant program, it doesn't matter because we're all measured skin. But surely VDOT's developed enough uh, mathematical history with construction <coughs> costs to to know to sort of somewhat come up with a factor 
that hey, it cost this much more in the Bristol district than it cost in the Lynchburg district per lane mile, or Hampton Roads versus primarily the highway acquisition is the real difference. Well, I understand that's the last thing we do is divide by money, and we're competing statewide for some of the monies for the statewide significant projects. Then it puts regions like that at a disadvantage when your last thing you do is make that division by if your if your lane miles are historically 60% more to construct than it is in the Lynchburg district, then that's a biggie. Just Not like you said when they did Glebe Road, went from 18 to one. If the benefits are 60 percent more, there's no impact. You still got to do this. No, the last thing you do. Is no, based on the numerator, but you to get there, you have a numerator and a, and a denominator. And, and we can have. But the, the theory is that you, your argument is correct if uh, there are constant benefits in every district to building the road. But at the end of the day, you. But let's take lane miles. You're comparing a district that the benefit may be, up, let's say it's 200,000 cars per day versus one that's 50. So they're going to get a much higher numerator to divide the higher cost. But they're mitigating that in the, in the formulas. The, the only one they're not mitigating that I understood was the last that last stroke of the pen when you divide by the by the cost. And that, there's no mitigation for that based on this so, Am I wrong? Right so or Mr. Williams, I, I I don't think we we know whether or not you're right or wrong. I think you're you're raising well, I certainly don't know. Um, <laughs> and, and I think it's all it's all it all depends on where you're sitting you. as to you're whether or not you're right or wrong. So you're gonna get back to me, right? I, I will do my best to get back I'm right to you. Down the road here on River Road. It's pretty cheap now. I think that as to what regions cost more or less than others, uh, the Secretary mentioned right away that's a big factor. The other, uh, the thing that we do have good information on is asphalt. Uh, we do have information on asphalt, but that's only a component. I don't right. think you could, on most projects, I don't think you could use asphalt or even right of way as a proxy for the, the relative cost. We'll talk with our folks, our economists at, uh, at Victor, and, and just to think that there's really even a a way of, of having a proxy for do we actually believe there are consistently uh, higher or is the cost of doing business in one district more expensive per mile? I think we do some sample scoring that that would be helpful. What if we saw what you know at the end of the day no it doesn't or it's not worth pursuing. I know we keep talking about this ratio as being by cost but and, and maybe I'm jumping ahead here but what it actually is is the funding. It's, it's the amount of funding that we are seeking right. from HB2. So if you look at it as benefit, and, and sorry, I'm, I'm stealing this, but benefit based on the dollar that you're using, right. whether that's a, it, as from the state's perspective, it doesn't matter whether it's a dollar in Lynchburg or a dollar in Hampton Road. It's, it's still a dollar of state funding from a limited pool of resources. I would agree. I would agree that that's the ultimate goal. And as you know, as a statewide urban representative, that's probably how I should look at it. But if you think from the regional perspectives, and I guarantee you from the delegate senators, they don't see themselves, based on their region, being put at a disadvantage because their construction costs are higher or because they're being at an added advantage because their construction costs are lower. So from a statewide perspective, I agree with you. I mean, you described it perfectly. 
it's like the best use of the dollar, and that's the bottom line. But when you jump in a pool to compete for statewide projects, I don't think we want to disadvantage regions. But you know, maybe, maybe Northern Virginia just get it all. I don't know. I'm sure Gary would support that. <laughs> but I mean, you know, if you use the right criteria, they would, they would be number one every time. I think we're hearing it here the same prejudices and biases exactly. and assumptions that we heard all across. And, and I think that's what uh, we're all coming from a point of view. I think that's why we're going through what we're hearing. What we've seen, Gary, the scoring we've seen, it hasn't worked out that way. In other words, it hasn't been that way when we've gone through in the other places. And but it doesn't mean. But then again, we haven't been scoring. You're right. We've been scoring in a region, in a region. Now it's across the state, so it, it could be different parameters. It may not be worth worth worrying about. Well, I, I think the answer we don't know yet. Yeah, we don't know yet. So moving on with the 12 minutes left uh, before I'm pulled off the podium, <laughs> what we're then going to do <coughs> is we're going to have that score. So you, if you look at this table here, you have the weight of each factor area, you have that factor score, and then we're going to multiply the factor score by that weight. And again, the highest you can get in each factor score is 100, and then we'll multiply it by the weight. And so under congestion mitigation in category B, the highest you get there is 15 points. We're going to add all that up, and that's your project's raw score. And again, the scale there is going to be 0 to 100. This example, we just, it's 62. What staff is recommending is that that project's raw score then be divided by the House Bill 2 funded cost. So that excludes um, local revenues, that excludes the statewide taxes that are imposed, the state regional taxes that are imposed in certain areas. And so in this example, say the project's cost was $30 million, uh, but the HP2 funded portion of that cost was 15, we would divide 62 by 15, which would give it a cost-effective score of 1.4. Um, we also have heard clearly from the board that they would like for staff to also provide what is its relative benefit compared to its total cost. And so we would also let you know that that's 2.1 in this instance. The reason we recommended using the HB2 funded portion of the project's cost is because we, we want to try and encourage local communities and regions to bring their resources to bear on these projects that have benefits and leverage them uh, in, into the state projects that we're looking to construct. And we thought that using this would create an incentive for those local communities to bring those additional funds they may have to bear. Mr. Chairman, I, this, and, and we've had discussions about this, and this is, this is uh, it's obviously a ticklish subject, but, but there are a lot of reasons I don't think that is fair. And the, the, the first reason is, is because the, the, the new revenues that were enacted and are paid by the uh, citizens of Northern Virginia and Hampton Roads were designed to help them build roads that weren't being funded by the state. Not designed to help them leverage that money to get more money out of the state. I don't, I don't agree with which is, which is exactly what this would do because they're getting it in the project example you use they're taking 15 million off the denominator that's going to take and score that project higher than everybody else around the state that doesn't have access to that money and doesn't have the ability to put that money on a project the second thing it's going to do is it's going to allow the regional entities to manipulate that denominator 
who's going to decide whether they put 15 million on this project other than them? Maybe they could have put 10. Maybe they could have put 25. Mm -hmm. And th therefore, they're going to be able to manipulate that score based on the denominator. And the last piece is, it's not just the, those regional monies, those two areas. There's a lot of different sources of money. Are we going to say, well, you've got to put your revenue sharing money in this, and we'll count that? Well, are we going to go 50-50? Well, no. So nobody's going to put it in unless they're willing to put 50% of it in. You know, I think we are more, you know, I understand that part of the deal under this legislation that passed to increase the taxes was to, to balkanize a little bit in the state highway fund roads. I get that. But what we're getting ready to do is completely balkanize how we, how we do everything because it's, it's going to be very difficult for, and, and where, I wish, wish Rogers here, what, what, you know, take a Richmond, for example, okay? How are they going to compete with Northern Virginia or Hampton Roads? They don't have this extra money from these other bills. Granted, their citizens aren't paying it, but they don't have the ability to, to, to do that. So I, I've got a lot of concerns about this. I know that, we're, that you guys are working on it, um, but it's, it's a significant issue. Just a comment, the view you're taking would be completely not agreed to in the other regions. The reason being sure. because the state law said it, it did not limit them getting their otherwise statewide money just in the code. That's right. So they're going to say. So they ought to be treated like they're not spending any money. Yeah. It wasn't because they're not, that's what the statewide money is available. It's not limited them, but no, they're no, not no. getting an advantage. But it wasn't enacted on with the understanding no, that it would only be used for projects that VDOT wasn't funding. Yeah. I don't disagree with that. I, 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 mean, I, I thought think, you stated that. No, no. I think, I think in terms of the scoring of the projects, that that was not contemplated. I don't think, I think this, we're always we're going to use whatever sources we can use, but I, I will tell you that people in rural Virginia, that when the legislature didn't vote for this, thinking that they were going to give money to Northern Virginia to be able to use to leverage to get more money out of the state. I don't to know increase their I, score I, I and get more money out of state. Because we, so we basically said we hope that they use every nickel they could everywhere to leverage money. That was the whole idea of the law is to Well, the law, passed, the law passed before you were Secretary of Transportation. No, 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 no. It passed uh, this time. Well, uh, but I'm, ta I'm talking about the, the law authorizing the oh, expenditures. Oh. Now HB two, the HB two, the calculations is, is we are we are we were very focused in HB two on the numerator. You could assume whatever you wanted to assume for the denominator, whether it was total cost or whether it was your regional cost or whether it was not, not defined. In 18, not in 1887. Well, it, it, I don't think it's defined in the law, or we wouldn't be having the conversation. Now, what they wanted, we, we wanted regional money so they'd have monies to to use because every every district has money now. There's nothing that says the district couldn't use their monies also. Well, Mr. Chairman, that goes to my earlier point about if, if we're going to count that money, too, on projects of statewide significance, then we are going to rob, in, a, in effect, what was supposed to be regional money for regional projects to move over to a project of statewide significance to leverage that money in order to get us to appropriate money for statewide. And I don't think that's appropriate either. Well, that's assuming that the project would be uh, applicable statewide. Now, I mean, 
I get, I, I get what you're saying, uh, and I think that, and I'm, and I'm not saying I agree. Well, I'm just pointing out the other, the other things that uh, we've heard as we've gone through here. But that, that is, that is a, a, um, a, uh, a consideration as to what the, the cost that is used um, in determining. From taking everything out from a regional, um, the, 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 the lowest, you know, any source of funds that augments statewide is probably the biggest bank bang for the buck for all citizens in the Commonwealth. Now, that's a big if, so I understand that. So, but that's, that's exactly the pressure points that we're talking about is when we, what was used as the denominator. Exactly those points. And there's a, the other view is, is they got so many more projects that they'll be disadvantaged if they don't use them. You know, they've got so many to do in there. Uh, in there, and they're paying extra taxes. Why should they be penalized? But they want to use it for that. So there's, I got it. There's a, there's. Mr. So Chairman, that's really the key. That, that is exactly the philosophy of MBTA. We not be discriminated against because we're collecting more tax money, but that we right. can also use the funds to leverage to get as much roads and transit that we can. Bill, that, that's that's the reality of the MBTA philosophy. As I sit here as a member of that board. No, I get it. I get it. But but all I'm saying is, this board's going to have to make that decision because we're going to decide what that denominator is. And at the staff level, uh, we had as vigorous, if not a more vigorous, discussion about this. This was one of the last issues that we were going back and forth on, and I think we even discussed the idea of having, you know, taking that 4.1 and 2.1, divide, adding together and dividing them in half, so 50 percent was based on the HB2 funded portion, 50% was based on the total cost to kind of compromise between the two bookends of the potential position. Um, when it came to just, at the, what it boiled down to at the end of the day for staff was we should encourage people to put funds on the projects that they would like the state to invest in. And that, that was where the staff came from, um, just trying to explain our rationale and with regards to some of the regional monies some of the things that we talked about is if they have a bad project, they could just fully fund it with regional revenues instead of putting half the money in and risking that this board may or may not fund it and then put in their good project with not a single dollar in it. Um, and that could then still just get funded. And so there, I think this situation <coughs> could play out in a, in a number of ways, and I think it's all going to depend on the, the personalities of the members of this board when we hit that situation and the personalities of a regional entity or local governing board um, as to how people participate or may, may you know, interact with us. On 66, Nick, okay, Wyoming 66, that's going to be scored, right? Mm -hmm. What's going to be the cost? Is it how much the, the Northern Virginia Transportation Authority decides to put in is going to reduce the denominator or is it going to be the total cost? I mean, that's what we're talking about. So yeah. Asking for statewide funds. Sure. Yes, what's the cost of the funds to the state? Right. How much are they put? Well, we have a side of that. Yeah, we have to talk about, but it's going to be. Uh, it's, it, uh, uh, it won't be inconsequential. At this point, I, I wouldn't want to. I see, Mr. Phil. I, I I get both sides, and I think that's why we need to discuss. And it may be that we need to run through different scenarios to see how it would impact 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 you know, things. Seems to be some type of weighting of those monies, maybe a, a good compromise. But we we got to get through that as we go through. Yeah. 
I don't know exactly. You're right. I think we do need to go some ex examples to see how this actually um, works out. But I do believe at this point that keeping on the table the total cost, whether or not that's the exact figure or factor that we use, but knowing the total cost, I think, is going to be helpful to us as a board making some of our decisions. So I think that is an important factor for us to, to know and to keep in mind and to find out how much of it is actually leveraged. And there are some areas of Virginia that do not have the resources to put in a lot of their own money to projects. Um, and I think we need to take that into consideration as well. And Ms. Valentine, staff are trying to come up with a host of different ways to provide you more information than just one number at the end of the day with no context, because candidly, 4.1 doesn't tell you anything in a vacuum. When you have all the projects next to each other, it will tell you how they relatively scored, but we still think you need to see the raw uh, you know, safety benefits, the raw congestion changes, and then also because the board did say you wanted to see the relative benefit with both total and leverage cost. This is not the prettiest of charts, um, as Mr. Fraley and I discussed this yesterday, but a better version of this or some variant of that is something that we think should be put together for the project so you can see both how a project does on its relative cost, which is the north-south or y-axis, and then also be able to compare that to its relative benefit with its total cost, which you see on the X or east-west axis there. And so you can see that product that got a 12, you know, again, these are just make-believe numbers. That was just, it didn't leverage any money, but its benefits are very, very high. And you can see some projects leveraged uh, their leveraged funds so that their HB2 funded relative cost was much higher than their total cost relative benefit was. And so we are trying to work on some tools like this and other things to provide to the board. I, I don't think if we just came to you and said, it's 4.1, what do you want to do that that would really be fair or responsible um, for staff? And so we are, and that's some of the stuff we're working on for the April meeting. And I, I'm not going to have it all at the April meeting either. I think we're going to show you some stuff. You're going to tell us what, what's helpful, what's not helpful, what you think is missing. And we're going to keep refining that. But there, we're going to have to provide, I think, the board with a host of information. There's got to be one official score because the law tells us there's got to be one official score. I think the board can take all sorts of information into account as it decides what it is that it actually wants to fund. And I don't think it's just going to be that end number you see. I think that's going to be a piece you know, of the informational information that's digested by this body as you figure out what you want to fund. But I expect there can be other things you want to know. You know, geographic equity and other things of that nature. You, there's going to be other discussions. So kind of moving forward, as I said earlier, we're going to come back to you in the coming months with some recommendations about how we go from a list of 4.1s and 2.1s and other things to a funded program of projects. Um, that's going to involve the type of information we give to you. It's going to take into account the new programs under House Bill 1887. It's also going to look at programs that aren't subject to House Bill 2. And then one of the things we also need to start talking about is how often do we solicit projects and score them? Do we do it each year? Do we do it every two years? Um, what's the amount of money we want to try and make available in a given round of solicitation, particularly if we're trying to fully fund projects in an in individual round? And then in the guide, you'll find some components about when a project we're recommending would need to be rescored. I'm not going to go through this in detail, but basically, if your cost estimate goes up significantly, or your scope changes significantly, 
We're going to recommend that you be rescored so that we don't have people who keep coming in with applications with low-balled cost estimates or scopes they know they're not going to end up building that gives them artificially high scores. Just a quick question. When we, when we get the input back from the MPO on scoring, are they going to have their projects in there and scored under constrained budget? Or are they going to give us 20 projects and we know the budget and, and we take the top 10 or don't? I mean, what, how's that going to feedback on the work? So the constrained long-range plans cover a period of 40 years. Right. And so in those MPO areas, again, the projects will need to be within that plan. Right. But because it's over a 40-year uh, period, I think there's still an ample pool of projects that could be submitted by local governments or MPOs within those areas that the board could consider. But, are, but would, all right, they're going to score them. And, and we're going to score them. Okay, we're going to score them. So do we give them back to them and say, here's the scores, and you, you're getting $50 million a year out of the pot, so you you put the projects back in and constrain no, them? No, Mr. Williams, the way this is going to work is the day we submit, submit projects, as is proposed, staff will score them, we'll have a quality assurance, quality control process that involves external stakeholders, we'll then provide the board scores, you as the board, select those projects that you think should be funded within the limitations of state and federal law. So we're not going to tell the MPO we've given you an allocation of 20 million because you sent in a few good projects and go ahead and pick the ones you want. We're going to tell the MPO here's 20 million dollars, 12 and a half of it is for project B and the remaining seven and a half is for project E. We're not giving you any funds for A, C, and D. But there's yeah, we so definitely have to be discretion, to though, once the scores are provided to us, mm -hmm. that we do not have to strictly go by the score, but there is input from every member of this board to, to sway a decision one way or another. So, so my, question is, my, my question goes to that. If the MPO really, if they had their druthers and didn't have to score, they'd be able to these six projects. That's what they would have put in their plan for us to include in the six-year plan. But we could turn around and just say, you know what, we're not doing that. We're going to do these five. The law says we use this, and, but at the end of the day, you choose to do, we choose to do something else. We, so this we, decision. Okay. We just have to explain why we did it. Mr. Okay. Chairman, right. I think on this, call, right. on this scoring piece, you know, it's, it reminds me of the CBO. What's going to happen, I suspect, is people that are really advocating for a project we're going to come in and they're going to say, hey, this economic development score is way higher than what your people are saying because blah, 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 blah. And so I think it's really important that we listen to those people. I think it's important we have this advisory committee. I also think it's really important that VDOT maintain the integrity of the scoring system and that ultimately be responsible for that number. I mean, not, it may not be VDOT, not because they don't have the resources, but I don't want them being lobbied. We may have, we may choose, that's what they talk about, maybe we'll choose the board to have a other entity that scores. Well, okay. Yeah, but, you know I'm saying? But as long as it's controlled, it's controlled by, this, by this board, by that's this right. Board. Because, you know, they work with them every day. You think about governance. Right. Hey, you know, it, it, that's, you know, and, and Mr. Pepper, we haven't decided that. We've just been saying. Well, and if, and if you're there on FPCs and MPOs, and this is not to disparage anybody, this is just a matter of people trying to do their yeah. best for their constituents. I would expect they would. But if you allow them to be the only entity that can propose and allow them to score, it doesn't matter what we do because they're, they're, they're going to only send us one project and it's going to score really high and we're going to be doing it. 
Uh, so let's don't do that. Yeah. The, the uh, Mr. Do you have anything else uh, to wrap up <laughs> with? Nick, of course. Uh, I just want to say that we haven't made revisions based on the feedback we've got over the last three weeks, so we definitely have some work to do in the weighting frameworks and clarifying some of the items on the measures. Uh, based on the discussion today, we have some other work um, that we probably need to get on as well, but here's kind of the schedule moving forward. We've put this document on the website, virginiahp2.org. We're going to go out and hold public you know, comment at the six-year improvement program hearings. We're also going to be available to stakeholders, and we have a email address and other things where they can send comments. We're going to come back to you in May with a revised process based on all of these things for your consideration, and we'll also be here in April with hopefully about 40 projects have been evaluated. Sure, would you mind emailing this to, I, I mean, I know we can get on the web, but I'd like to have a comment. Okay. Um, uh, uh, any other questions? Well, I'll, I'll wrap up with this. Every time I've listened to our discussion, and we discuss this every point as if it is the only point. In other words, and I think we got to keep in mind that it is a, you know, there are some points where I'm going to, this side think it's better for these and stuff. It's really the process when we get through. And I think we just got to keep that in mind. But, you know, we, we tend to, to, to discuss it. Well, gosh, if it's just, um, if that's the only point, and that doesn't work for me, which has been consistent with what we've been hearing around the state. So just throw that out. Um, I did want to recognize there are a lot of people, I know Mr. Donahue's the face, but there's a whole lot of people that are working on this. You'd stand up. I know my deck, Renique, and Friendly, and and uh, the, the staff, all the other people that are all, I mean, there's a, there's a whole lot of, and, 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 yeah, and I, 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 they've been laughing all up here, but I can see their faces, <laughs> but I want to recognize them and the work they've done. We've got a, a lot that's been done. It's really getting to the point where we can really bring it to you guys to really make Well, Mr. Chairman, as, as, the, as the chief antagonistic uh, antagonizer, I, I do want to tell the staff, Y'all have done a tremendous job. There are a lot of policy questions we have to we have to wrestle with, right. and it's, you all understand this better than we do. And I, 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 there's no question. And Nick, you too have put in tons of work in this thing. And just because we may not agree with what the ultimate conclusion was, or may want to talk about it, doesn't mean that y'all didn't do a good job. I'm going to say that. In fact, I think the quality of the information is allowing us to have these type of discussions exactly. and really get into the policy, not worried about if it's a two or a three right. you know, type of exactly. stuff. So I really appreciate it. Mr. Uh, I think I'm going to pat, I think we, if it's okay with the board, we will do the, the legislation next time, mm -hmm. 80, 86 and 87. I think you generally know there was no real specifics, um, uh, but um, um, we'll go through it in uh, more detail. Uh, I will get, Nick, we can give them copies. You all actually have the bills. So we'll get the bills. And so we do those, and we will go through at the next uh, meeting a review of that. Now, one other thing in the, in the workshop before we go, uh, I did mention earlier, uh, Charlie has uh, something. I don't think we're going to vote on it today, but I want him to just briefly tell you about inside the Beltway. And I'm going to have a comment on 66 in general. But Charlie, why don't you start uh, with, with this before we go to our formal session. So what, what we have is a, is a draft resolution. Um, what I'd suggest is, again, it's not be voted on um, at this meeting. But the intent of this is to, for the board to authorize the movement of uh, $5.1 million out of the total facilities revolving account onto the 66 project inside the Beltway. And, and the purpose of that will be to develop the 
the uh, contract documents to develop the scope so that we can go out with the design build procurement for the gantry system and the tolling system. It is also for the, the coordination, the consultation, the public outreach, working with uh, local stakeholders, both DRPT and VDOT, in towards developing the project and program of how the funds uh, generated from this tolling operation would be used. So what it, again, it's the 5.1, it it's really doing two things. It's the, it's the uh, preliminary engineering work on, the, on the, the gantry system that would ultimately go out as a design-build contract and would include all the electronics, the back office support, that, that piece of it. But it's also, and, and just as importantly, how the revenues that are generated, working with uh, the local partners, how we will look at, at projects and programs. And so that's, that's what, what that's for. The intent of this whole facility, the facilities revolving fund is, is to support future toll projects. And again, so this, so this, is, this is exactly what that fund was set up to do. We would expect that these funds would be repaid once tolling operations were commenced, we would sort out the term, uh, but, but again, it would be, it would be repaid. So, so that's what this is for. I think that uh, to give you all a chance to look at it, the, the project team, uh, we do have funds available for them to continue to do the work, especially the outreach work that they are doing. We're doing traffic and revenue work. We're doing a lot of that, uh, that preliminary work, and we'll be able to continue that over the next 30 days and then come back to the board at our <coughs> next meeting and uh, request a uh, approval to actually make the fund transfer. So again, we do have some what I'll call discretionary district-wide money that can be used for, for the, for the short-term purpose, but not for the ultimate purpose of delivering a design-build contract and also that program of uh, how we're going to distribute the project funds and how we're going to deliver those projects and programs. Uh, just a quick, quick question, and, and if we want to hold questions till we get back, until we look, actually need to put. Why are we segregating 66 well, into, make, a, into make, a state project and a private? Well, why don't we let the private sector do all this? Well, let me make a Let me first of all uh, make uh, respond to this. I'll get to that because I am. Okay. Uh, I'm going to get that. That's my comment. Is, is directly related to that. Uh, uh, the I wonder you consider this also. Remember now, 1887. Changes the flavor of the toll facilities account. In other words, in the future, it's you know, it, it, Charlie's right up until now, that's what's been used, but in the future, it's going to go into the VTIP and into that. So, uh, just we didn't want you to get confused. I mean, there are some funds in there, but they're all going to be converted eventually into going into the VTIP bank or the TPOC monies in, in that regard. So, um, now, uh, is there, first of all, any questions on there that? Any? Yes. Yeah, I, I would just uh, concur with uh, the commissioner. This is a very high profile, covered by multiple <coughs> media outlets, uh, the inside the beltway. And I think for a resolution like this, even though its intent is spelled out, that 30 days held in abeyance is the, is the right and proper thing to do with this we have done everything, and I want to have the public plenty of opportunity to comment on anything we've done, and that's why we decided, even though we think it's much administrative, but I think that's right, Mr. That's, that's why. Well, let, me make, let me make a comment to Mr. Fowler's point, and in general, had comments with many of you. 
we announced a year ago we would start the procurement, not the procurement, the development of outside the beltway, which we have. That project continues on track in terms of its development, uh, and uh, Jennifer and Mitchell and Charlie have uh, been actively involved in what we want it to look like, what we think it'll be, a multimodal uh, uh, solution. And inside the Beltway, uh, we announced just this past week, uh, and that uh, <coughs> project we felt like had to be considered as we considered what was happening outside the Beltway, as you get people coming in. Um, there are many stakeholders involved in these projects, not just the construction companies, not just our citizens, but the politicians and all that. So. Uh, and including our sister district of the District of Columbia, because hopefully we'll roll those right on in, in there. In fact, I've had several meetings with my counterpart. They're very amenable to us doing that. Uh, so that's the overall strategy. Now, when we announced uh, last year, we did not announce how the, what the procurement would be, but we did say we generally thought it probably would lend itself to a P3. Uh, but that decision has not been made yet. Uh, and in fact, uh, I've asked the commissioner and, and, and uh, Director Mitchell uh, to, uh, and working with their departments and, and our P3 department, to give me a sources and uses of cash. In other words, you know, convince us uh, you know, or that this is the way to finance the project. We're only talking about how we finance it. We are going to have a private sector build it. We are going to have a private sector operate it. We may have a pri private sector help finance it, but that decision hasn't been made yet. Um, inside outside the Beltway. That, that's outside, that, I'm talking about outside the Beltway. Inside the Beltway, we have made a decision that to, to, to meet the political and transportation needs of the court, that the monies generated off of that inside the Beltway need to be used in that quarter to support multimodal solutions uh, in that particular area. Uh, it, we will not begin with right-of-way acquisition or expansion. There will be other things done uh, through there first. Um, and so we have decided uh, that that is the appropriate use of the funds in that area, to have them reinvested in the area. And in fact, we've worked, uh, we've identified NBTC as the organization which we'll be working with in that regard, the sponsor organization in that regard. <coughs> Outside the Beltway um, is undecided. Um, it's going to require a large public sector. We have monies to do that. Uh, we believe that there's available funds that we can raise outside of that between other federal programs. And so we're trying to identify just how short we are and what the cost of that, if we decide to go, a P3 route, what the real costs we're giving up in terms of negotiating. Now, uh, I've talked uh, not only <coughs> legislation of General Assembly that require the Secretary to, to have to recertify that it is in the best interest of the Commonwealth that we go under a P3 procurement, but over and above that, Governor's made pretty clear up front we're going to be good fiduciaries and also, we're in a little different position. We have monies. This board has monies. Initiating tolling uh, in the area is not the risk it was in previous deals. Tolls have been uh, introduced in, in the Commonwealth in both Hampton Roads and in Northern Virginia. 
Um, so the risk uh, associated with those deals, I don't think they're cookie cutter deals that we automatically assume that this worked for the last one, and this is the way we ought to do this one. So if we go down that, it'll be we've decided to make a recommendation to this board that our opportunity costs are better to use private capital and, you know, and to use that in there. So that decision is to be made. Hopefully we'll have it ready for you guys. Probably not April. Probably we'll have make decision by the end. <coughs> Um, but uh, uh, I spent uh, most of this general, a lot of this session, uh, having the General Assembly uh, want me to um, buy back uh, roads we've already done, change the laws on P3s we've already done. Um, so uh, I think it's incumbent upon us to make daggone sure that if we go forward under uh, this scenario that uh, we have looked at all the other alternatives. So that's where we are, uh, and I want to make sure we may end up, very well may end up being a, a public-private partnership. Uh, but we have not made that decision as of yet, and that's what we're working through in that. So uh, I'd be happy to answer any questions uh, uh, with the, the board or, uh, or anybody, because I know I've had several conversations. The project is moving full speed ahead as far as development in that regard. So. It is really how we're going to finance it uh, and what we believe is in the best interest of the Commonwealth taxpayers uh, and, and in that regard. So that's what we will be doing. And it very well may be a P3. Very well may be a P3. Uh, but we don't know that answer yet until uh, we've, we're going to look at different alternatives. And once we've decided that that's the case, um, then, then we'll move down that way. Uh, or I recommend if we don't, uh, then we'll, uh, I will tell you the board will be fully informed uh, before we ask you to allocate any monies as to why we make a decision. You'll be part of it. So that's, that's where we are on, uh, on um, uh, 66. It's a vital, uh, very important project to the Commonwealth um, and uh, determined to see it to get to procurement. And I'll reiterate the private sector is going to be a big part no matter what we do because somebody's going to build it, somebody's going to operate it, and maybe they'll finance it. Um, but I think it'll be on terms that probably uh, are, are not uh, the way we've done things in the past because I don't think the risk profile is the same as it's been in the past <coughs> in that regard. So that's what we're trying to get uh, to work through. I, I, uh, Mr. Kilpatrick and Ms. Mitchell are leading that. They are the procuring agency with the support of our P3 department. Uh, they will be making a recommendation uh, working together uh, as to uh, what they think the sources and uses of cash are, and then we'll make a determination what's the right procurement and going forward. If I could, there's a, two projects inside the Beltway and outside the Beltway for, for some of the board members maybe not as familiar. Outside the Beltway, I would describe as an as a infrastructure-heavy project that will likely require uh, uh, significant physical improvements to the roadway. Inside the Beltway, it's a much less intent, uh, I'll call it infrastructure light. The infrastructure needed to toll it is, is a fairly simple, it's a, it's a series of gantries, overhead <coughs> structures, electronics, and the like. 
the balance of, of what we're looking at in terms of how do we move more people on the corridor inside, and again, we briefed you last month, is a focus on how do you move more people, not on, on uh, looking to add more pavement. Additional improvements to the physical pavement may be needed at some point in the future, but that is not the first, that's not our first uh, uh, look and, and where we're directing our attention to first. We believe that the use of HOT 3, uh, high occupancy toll 3, along with uh, alternative transportation means, is going to give us additional throughput on that corridor uh, for, for some period of time without adding physical pavement. And that's, so that's, it's a, it's a very different type of project and the, the scale in terms of the dollars needed for initial uh, development is significantly less inside the Beltway than what we'd be looking at outside the Beltway. And that's the key point. I mean, it really is the inside, the infrastructure is significantly less out there. So, I want to make it clear we're the governor and the department, and I think this we're very strong believers in, in public private partnerships. Uh, but uh, um, we also believe it's incumbent upon us to make sure. Um, that we have presented all the options uh, and that, uh, that the procurement we chose, and I made, a, I made a commitment to this board that before you would vote to move monies, you would, you would know what, uh, what, what you know, our recommendation is and, and, uh, and how we're proceeding, and that's, that's what we're going to do. In that. So I do not think we've slowed the project down one bit. So I want to make that clear. It's moving down, down the path uh, uh, and... Uh, um, a lot will have to do um, as we come over the next, uh, I suspect by the May board meeting, I don't, may happen in April, but probably not. For outside the Beltway. For outside the yeah. Beltway, probably not, because we want to make sure we've gotten all that. But in terms of actually, we've met several times with the full team, studies, everything's going uh, full blast. So I'm very comfortable on, uh, on uh, uh, meeting the timetable we've talked to you about. Uh, but what we need to do is to make sure that uh, stand in front of you, I can stand in front of uh, the General Assembly, stand in front of myself and, and with us to say this is in the best interest of the Commonwealth taxpayers and <coughs> the appropriate procurement to go. And that's what we're doing.